Tiny Tim Santa Claus has got the eighth this year. It is a poker fraud alert radio tradition to play this on or around Christmas. I am proud to be able to play that song on Christmas Day, at least Christmas Day on the West Coast. I realize on the East Coast and even in the Central Time Zone, it is no longer Christmas. But close enough where I am, it is still Christmas. And Santa Claus once again has got the AIDS this year. Too bad Tiny's not still alive. Otherwise, he could do a COVID update. He could say uh, Santa Claus has got the COVID this year. That'd be more topical, I think. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on, yes, Christmas Day. Actually, Christmas night. December 25th, 2021. 10.07 p.m. is the time right now. Do we have a free roll? Yes, we have a free roll, even though it's late, even though the participation will probably be pretty light. That's good for you if you can play it, because that means less competition for the same money. When it's a static prize pool, it doesn't matter how many entrants join, then you want fewer entrants. So this is a good thing. It's a $50 free roll, thanks to Belly Buster, who also runs the No Fraud Online Poker Room. I appreciate both the money and the time and the use of his computer to run this room, it's actually always up 24-7, even though we mainly use it only during radio. It started at 10 p.m., which was eight minutes ago, but you can still get in for another 17 minutes with late registration with a full stack. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. On the No Fraud Online Poker Room, you can find that near the top of the screen, near the top left on PokerFraudAlert.com, and you need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room to play. It's not the same as the forum account. And it needs to be validated. You can PM Belly Space Buster on the forum to get validated. And if for whatever reason you have an issue, you can message me, Dan Space Druff, or contact me another way. And I can push that along if it's having an issue. But contact him first, and then you can play our free roll, provided that you meet the qualifications, which are not very stringent. I mean, I take them seriously, but they're not very difficult to meet. If you go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll, PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll, all lowercase, exactly as it sounds, then you can read about how you can qualify for the free money we give away just about every show. Almost all of it comes from user donations. Next week, we're going to have a special free roll, which I'll explain shortly. It has to do with the theme of this show, at least the theme of the beginning of this show. This is officially the Mark Shushine Box Fusil Memorial Show, which was a show I hoped I wouldn't have to do, at least not anytime soon, but that's the way life works. Shushine Box, Mark Fusil, he's called into this show several times. I have met him several times. He was a personal friend of mine. I got to know him through the Vegas poker scene. Very, very nice guy. I'll tell you more about him when we do the segment, but he did pass away since our last show, and it wasn't expected. He was very sick, but it wasn't expected that he would pass away this soon, but at the same time, it wasn't completely a surprise. So he was only 58 years old. He passed away from cancer. This is the Mark Fusil Memorial episode, and I was very, very, very sad when I heard about this. I mean, we've we've covered a number of deaths of poker players or people associated with the community, even people who listen to the show. And they're all sad to me when I hear about them, but uh, the closer I am to someone, the more I know someone, the more it uh, gets to me. And this is one that really got to me. I really like this guy. And, and I talk to him pretty regularly. 
So anyway, he passed away on December 12th from cancer at the age of 58. So I'm going to tell you some about Mark Fusil, a.k.a. Shoeshine Box. Some of you knew him as uh, Robert Souza on Facebook, but his real name was Mark Fusil. And uh, if you are part of the Vegas poker scene or have been for the last two decades, you probably have encountered him at some point. And I have to imagine that your encounter with him was probably a good one. I don't know anyone who disliked him. So we will talk about him, and that'll be our first topic, and this show is dedicated to him. And because this show was announced so late, and it's late at night, and we're just not going to get a good free roll participation, I didn't want to have the Mark Fusil Memorial free roll on the same episode, because we wouldn't get uh, good numbers for that. So next week, that's going to be planned. It'll be a bigger free roll. This week's only $50, but it'll be a bigger free roll next week. And that'll be the Mark Fusil Memorial Free Roll, but this is the Memorial episode. And this is dedicated to him, and he loved this show. And during the Memorial segment, you'll hear about how much he loved this show. And I I really liked him. So that's kind of a somber note to begin on. But hopefully, at least when you hear about Mark, then uh, you can appreciate him as the man he was. And if he were... Around, I'm sure he'd appreciate the segment I'm doing about him. If you want to call into the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone. The cabin it's located in is covered with snow right now. They've gotten a lot of snow in Mount Charleston. Southern California and Southern Nevada getting uh, plenty of rain in this second half of December. In fact, as I uh, record this right now, it is raining where I am at the moment pretty hard. But plenty of snow up in Mount Charleston, and our phone is okay. It forwards to me, 702-430-1808. If you want to text me during the show, or before the show, or after the show, or anytime you feel like, just you can text me. 775-372-8355. Really, don't feel shy to text me. I'm never going to feel like you're bothering me. I'm never going to feel like it's an inappropriate hour. I'm never going to be mad at you. It doesn't have to be important. Just whatever. You can just text me for whatever reason at any time, and I'll probably respond to you. 775-372-8355. However, if you text me during the show then I might read it on the air unless you ask at the beginning of the text not to. If it's before or after the show, then I will not read it. So, by the way, I I saw that a listener is going to be donating $100 for the free roll for Mark Fusil. That's uh, very nice, and uh, I don't know if he wants me to say who he is, so for the moment I'll say a listener, but it is a regular listener, and I appreciate that. Anyway, if... You want to listen to the show through our call to listen line. That's something that does not require a computer, does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, doesn't need an app, doesn't need the internet. If you just want to use an old school way to listen to the show that all it requires is a telephone that can dial the United States of America, that's all you need. And it'll never use up any of your data. I promise you that. It won't use up even one byte of data. You can call the call to listen line. That phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. There's the alternate call to listen line, which is 641-741-1095. And it's just very simple. You just call up, you listen, 
and it never buffers, and it never freezes. Unlike all other streaming media, which counts on a good connection, or otherwise it freezes up. You've all had that happen before. I'm sure you hate it. I hate it. So I said, this will not happen. The call to listen line will never buffer. It will never freeze. I promise you that. 605-313-0736. And you can call it to your heart's content. And as long as you can call numbers in the U.S. for free, it is a free call unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it'll cost you one cent per minute, which I don't get. I get none of it. I wish I did, but I don't. If you are listening live, you can go into our chat room. I will not be chatting with you there, but I will be glancing at it every so often and answering questions or comments there. You can chat with the other members there. And if you're not listening live, then uh, you can go in and scroll back and see what people said. Other than that, there's not really much of a point. It is our chat room that was built in 2007 and installed in 2020. And uh, Calwatt was very impressed, as you guys have heard. By the way, you may be wondering about Calwatt and Trey Will they be on the show? Well, I didn't give them much notice here, and I think they are both sleeping at the moment. Calwatt is in New York, so it's uh, after one in the morning over there. And, of course, he spent Christmas with his family, so he was probably up quite early. And then uh, Trader Ruski just has a very, very early sleep schedule for re- reasons I still don't completely understand. I think he just has to wake up really early. So for that reason, he goes to bed really, really early, like a very old person, which kind of sucks for this show. But uh, I know he can't revolve his life around this show. So we take Trader Ruski where we can get him. We, we did get him last week, though, if you remember. Or last show, not really last week. But last episode, we got him for some time. Uh, they've both been invited for whenever they wake up. Whether it is for the day or to go to the bathroom, whatever it might be, they are both invited to come on here to co-host with me. And they always have that standing invitation to come on and co-host with me. I always enjoy having both of them, or one of the two of them, when I do this show. The thing I least enjoy is doing it by myself. But I will. I will, and I am right now. And if I must go through the whole show without a co-host, then I shall, as I have many times. Because one thing I can do is I can just endlessly talk. People have asked me, how do you do that? How do you endlessly talk like this? And I think some of it's just natural. You know, some people have that ability and some don't. But also, I think all the time I spent talking on the phone as a teenager and in my 20s, I think that actually has kind of prepared me for this in a way. Because I used to have like really, really long phone calls with people, both with uh, girls I was dating or hoping I would be dating, and with friends that we just talk on the phone a long time. We just sit there on like these massive three-way call chains where we all three-way each other on. There's like six of us together and we sit there talking for hours. I used to do that when I was a teenager. So I think just I'm used to talking for long periods of time. I got used to it from that. I didn't talk this long, like eight hours straight, but I think that kind of helped me be used to something like this. I've also always been a big fan of radio, ever since I was a kid. So since I'm not on a terrestrial radio station, and terrestrial radio, honestly, is kind of going the way of the dodo. So this is, I wouldn't say the new media, because I'm not doing it in video form. These days, in the 2020s, it's all about video stuff. But I'm not a video guy. I'm not a young guy. You guys don't need to see me. I mean, who really wants to watch me broadcasting? Do you really want to watch some 50-year-old dude broadcasting? I don't think you do. I think it's better to listen to me. And it's easier to listen to me because you're not missing anything. You can do a lot of things in the background. You don't have to watch. And that's part of the reason I like doing an audio show. 
It's easier for the listener. Now, sometimes I wish I had a video show when I'm showing video and I have to describe what's going on. So that's one handicap, but I work around it. Anyway, I'm rambling here and wasting too much time. We have a lot to cover, so I will stop. So here is the agenda. If you want to get into the free roll, you got six more minutes to get in there. But here's the agenda, then we'll get going. We're going to do the uh, segment memorializing Mark Fusil. Then I will tell you about something that happened to me when I was between L.A. and Vegas. I did just visit Vegas. It was uh, only a short visit, but I had an incident that occurred in the middle of the drive, in the middle of the desert, and it was scary. I developed a sudden and intense illness in the middle of the desert, which you don't want, especially when you're my age and you're not sure exactly what that sudden and intense illness means. If you're 30, you usually have to worry about that, but if you're 50, well, you kind of do. So I'll tell you about what happened to me, what I did about it, how it disrupted my short trip to Vegas somewhat, but not as badly as it could have. Then we'll talk about another health-related issue. This this has been a wonderful month for me, hasn't it? Uh, we'll talk about my ER visit. And you'll say, wait a minute, you did that last show. Well, I did, but I have an update for you. So I have an update regarding my complaint to the hospital about the fail that occurred during my ER visit, which, of course, has nothing to do with what happened to me in the middle of the desert. So... I've had a lot of stuff happen to me this month. That's part of the reason that I have not done this show every single week. That's why we've had some missed weeks here. But hopefully going forward, it'll be weekly and it'll be fine. So I'll give you an update on that. The gambling world is all abuzz about a guy who goes by the name Mickey Maz. M-A-S-E. Mickey Maz. Now, he was on that infamous Hustler Casino Live episode where he was there and he was playing a really reckless style and somehow doing really well because he was getting really lucky. Then there was a guy who went to a Lakers game right after he played at Hustler Casino Live and got arrested for an incident with a Lakers player. There was another guy in the game who uh, turned out he had been arrested in the past for kidnapping and rape and some really bad stuff so <laughs> definitely some characters in that game it's funny because it was promoted as a, a game featuring big names there like very very big names in poker and yet the biggest stories that sprung from it were from the three nobodies at the table but we're going to talk about mickey now shortly after mickey was on there a regular listener to this show got my attention to him and said you've got to pay closer attention to this guy because he's not what he seems to be And I wish I had jumped on it sooner because nobody was really talking about him then. But since the last episode that we did here, there's been an intense increase in attention on Mickey. And now the gambling world is very interested in him. I invited him on the show. I had a dialogue with him. I'll tell you some about that when we get to the segment. But anyway, I've been meaning to do this for a while. But we're going to finally have our Mickey segment. I know I've been teasing this for a while, so we're going to have our Mickey statement segment, and we're going to, we're going to have several Mickey Mickey segments during the upcoming months. I would think. I don't believe this is going to be the only time we talk about this guy, but this will be your introduction to him. Very interesting story. Let me just say that. Bovada and Ignition had a massive multi-day crash, the worst in the over 20-year history of that network. 
We'll talk about that and some free money, which might be waiting for you, that you may still have time to redeem, depending upon when you listen to this. A new rule on 2 plus 2 may mean that the days of trolling on that site are over. And you know, Mason Malmuth always liked to posture that this was a clean site and that it wasn't a place of hate and trolling, but that's not true. There's been tons of hate and trolling over there pretty much since it opened. In fact, I have even been on the receiving end of some of it, but I'm not anyone special. A lot of people have been hatefully trolled on 2 plus 2. But supposedly that's going to be a thing of the past. So we'll talk about the new rule on 2 plus 2 handed down by the Russians. You might qualify for a free crypto token worth real money if you used OpenSea, that's OpenSEA, to buy or sell NFTs. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then don't worry about it because you won't qualify. But if you have, then you might. So listen to that segment. It won't be a long segment, but I want to alert everyone to that and also the possible free money they may have on Bovada and Ignition. So a lot of free stuff we're going to be talking about this week. Update on Johnny Chan's 88 Social. It has sold to a new owner and changed names. The whole thing has already happened. It's, it's already taken place, and we'll talk about what the future is for that club and for the chips that people are holding that they couldn't cash because the club just closed down. Sam Farha got roughed up by a poker dealer at the club right down the street from 88 Social called Legends. This is in Houston, Texas. And this is following a pattern, an alleged pattern, of chronic rude behavior. So a lot of people were happy to see it occur. So we'll talk about Sam Farha, World Series of Poker 2003 main event runner-up to Chris Moneymaker. And the favorite to win, but didn't win. And he's still playing. He's playing in Texas, and he got roughed up by a dealer. Pretty interesting story. And you, the listener, can decide whether you think that dealer was in the right to do what he did. Las Vegas McCarran Airport has officially changed its name. It is no longer McCarran Airport. It is now Harry Reid International Airport. And I will give you my thoughts on that. I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again since this has now officially taken place. Poker Fraud Alert member Jeff Dime, he's been on the show before, he ran into a weird tenants' rights issue during a long stay at Bally's Las Vegas. I've never thought about Vegas casinos and tenants' rights, but something happened to him there in relation to that. And we'll discuss this, see if we can get him on, but he may be sleeping or uh, busy, whatever, but... uh, If not, I will just uh, talk about what happened to Jeff Dime there. I think you'll find the story interesting. Paris, Las Vegas, which, by the way, is connected to Bally's, and we'll have the WSOP at it in the spring and summer of 22. Paris security dropped the ball, and they allowed a man with a knife into a secure area who then attacked one of the employees. That is not very good security, is it? Especially when you hear what happened. MGM National Harbor, where 
other crime has taken place in the past, but this is not a crime story about them this time. They are doing a rookie event, a poker tournament called a rookie event, on February 19th for people who have not cashed all that much in poker events. So I'll tell you about that and whether or not you qualify. Finally, we're going to do a coronavirus segment, and I bet you know the topic. Yes, Omicron. Should you be afraid of Omicron? What can we expect of it? And what can we expect in the future regarding COVID? I've got my theories, and I will give them to you in that final segment. So we got a lot to do this week. We're going to start with our memorial for Mark Fusil. So I received news that Mark Fusil, who's known as Shoeshine Box on the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, known as Robert Souza on Facebook, never understood why he used that name, but it doesn't really matter, and his real name is Mark Fusil, that I found out that he passed away a few days prior. I heard about this on December 15th. Actually, on December 14th, I heard about it, but... Uh, I happened to miss that message, so I learned about it myself on the 15th, and he had passed away on December 12th. Mark Fusil had a number of jobs in the Vegas gambling community. He was a chip runner, he was a craps dealer, he was a poker dealer, and a lot of people got to know him over time. In fact, you may have noticed him, even if you didn't know his name or didn't know that he listened to this show or that he's been on this show or that he posts on the forum. You may have been dealt to by him at the World Series of Poker. He was a pretty prolific dealer there. He was someone who definitely didn't blend in with the crowd. He definitely stuck out. By the way, if you hear that in the background, I don't know if you guys can hear this. It's it's pouring where I am. So that's uh, hearing pounding rain. It's not interference in the show. I don't know if this is coming through or not. Anyway, I got to know Mark through the Las Vegas poker scene. Or it's more accurate to say that he got to know me. And I noticed him over the years, but I got to know him after he found Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I don't know how he found it. I never asked him how he found it. But he found Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and he took an immense liking to it. In fact, when he would deal at poker tables where I was playing, whether it was cash games or the World Series, he would actually instruct everybody at the table to start listening to my show. He'd make sure they listened to him and say in his trademark loud voice with a thick New York accent that they need to listen to the show and hear about all these uh, scums and cheats in poker, he said. And he said, it's a great show. You got to listen to this guy. He was very emphatic about it, and this was not with any prompting from me. He'd come and sit down at the table and see me and greet me and say hello, and then he'd tell everybody who I am and that he listens to my show and how he liked it so much. Now, this eventually evolved into a friendship, not right away. Like At first, he was just this dealer who I knew listened to the show, and also I always ran well when he dealt to me. I know I've talked about this before, but like whenever he dealt to me, I, I would just always do well. Which is nice because I didn't want to like be a total fish in front of him after he said these nice things about me, and then I'd suck and lose a lot of money or lose all my chips. Like it just seemed like I always ran well when he dealt to me. 
But eventually this did evolve into a friendship, and he and I would text back and forth a lot. And he listened to every single Poker Fraudler radio episode. He appeared on here a number of times. At one point, he appeared on here to talk about his battle with cancer, which ended up being his cause of death. But this was a few years ago when he appeared. And he's been on since. Most recently, I think he was on to talk about a woman who had been uh, having issues with Bovada, and I was trying to help her, a friend of his. So he's come on a few times. He's texted me a whole lot. We've talked back and forth a whole lot. And as I said, I've seen him around Vegas and uh, countless times. And this guy really was a friend of mine. A few months ago, I had a long phone conversation with him. And I really liked him. Now, there's a lot of guys in poker who seem nice on the surface. But when you look at them carefully, you notice that they're really out for themselves. And you wouldn't have a hard time picturing them stabbing you in the back if the opportunity came up and they could gain from it. But that wasn't Mark. He was one of the people in poker that you knew was extremely genuine. You knew was always telling you what he really thought. You knew he didn't have a mean bone in his body. He didn't have a shifty bone in his body. This was a guy who was very straightforward, very kind, very trustworthy. And you don't find many of those in poker. And there's people in poker I get along with well, but if someone asked me and I knew it wouldn't get back to them, hey, do you think that person could ever screw you over? Do you think that person could ever backstab you? I'd say, well, like, I don't see it happening, but yeah, I could picture this. There'd be a lot of people I could say that about. But he's one I can't. One of his other friends said of him, it's hard to find a more earnest person than New York Mark. That was how he was known to a lot of people, by the way, was New York Mark, because he had that thick New York accent. And that's 100% correct. Hard to find a more earnest person than New York Mark. Totally true. I agree with every word of that. Now, as I said, he's someone that didn't blend into the background. He was someone who stuck out. He was definitely a character. Really tall. Taller than me. He was probably like six or five or something. Uh, you'd never forget him after you met him. A thick New York accent. Really tall. Always saying what's on his mind. But he did it with a kind demeanor rather than a brusque one. You picture a tall guy from New York who's just always saying what he's thinking. You picture kind of a brusque jerk. He was the opposite of that. Now, when he dealt at World Series of Poker Tables, people who weren't familiar with him didn't know what to think because he wasn't one of these dealers who would just quietly sit down, keep their heads down, and pitch cards. He would immediately join whatever conversation was going on, he would give his opinion on things like, yeah, how many World Series dealers could you picture sitting down and immediately instructing the table they need to listen to some guy's show who's at the table? Like, you, you wouldn't see that from anyone, but that's what he would do. But it wasn't just about me. Like, he, he, he was very, very outspoken, but in a nice way. So people didn't always know what to think of him. In fact, I remember when he was just kind of going off one day just about a bunch of random topics and the table didn't quite know what to think when he switched tables, a pit boss is there and said, yep, that guy's a real character. Like he was kind of 
<laughs> trying to make the players understand that, yeah, he's a bit different, but he's just a character and he's harmless. But he'd never make anyone feel bad, never insulted anyone. So, like, I, I don't want people to think that he made people uncomfortable. They just didn't quite know what to make of him because he was unique. By the way, you may wonder, well, how did he deal? Was he distracted with all the conversation? Did he do a bad job? No, he actually did a very good job dealing cards. He performed his job well and efficiently. I'm not just saying that because I liked him. Like, that was kind of a surprise to me at first when I first got to know him because I figured a guy so distracted with all the conversation and everything else that that he would neglect the job. No, he was really good at actually dealing cards. And he dealt quickly. He dealt efficiently. He didn't make mistakes. So he did a great job. And that's why he got hired year after year after year whenever uh, he wanted to work. Unfortunately, Mark did not run very well with his health. He had cancer. Obviously, he wasn't very old. He passed away at the age of 58. And he came close to death once before. And he came on the show to talk about it. He called into radio in March of 2019. And he told a story which would really freak anyone out if they went through it. He had cancer, and this was a few years prior to March 2019. You can go back and listen to the episode. This was the episode where I talked about Annie Duke. It was from March 6th. His appearance had nothing to do with Annie Duke, but that was uh, one of the main things we did on that episode. Anyway, March 6th, 2019 was that episode. You can go back and listen to him. But he told a story where a few years prior, he needed a dangerous surgery to extend his life because of the cancer he had. And there was a 30% chance that he would die on the table. 30%! Now imagine if you went down for surgery and they said, yeah, there's a 2% chance that you're not going to wake up. I bet you would be super nervous about going down for that surgery. Why? Because while 2% is not a high percent, if the result of that 2% hitting is you die, it's very, very scary. So imagine that you are going to go down for surgery with a 30% chance to kill you. So they put you out, they do the surgery, and you don't know if you're going to wake up. You don't know if when they put you out that that's it. You could just be gone. Three in 10 chance, you're just going to be gone. So this doctor actually told Mark, look, I don't think we should do this. I don't like doing this surgery because of the 30% death rate. My suggestion is instead of trying to extend your life with this surgery, that why don't we just make you comfortable or as comfortable as you can be and just live out the remainder of your life uh, without this surgery? Because yeah, he wasn't going to die the next day if they didn't do it. He could have continued living on for some time, and they could have given him some drugs for the pain, as they do with terminal cancer, cancer patients. The doctor suggested that, and he said, nope, I've already made my peace with the chance that I might die here. I want to do it. And the doctor said, you sure? He said, yep. And he said, right before he went down, the doctor asked him one more time, are you sure you really want to do this? And he said, yes. And he bravely went down for this surgery with a 30% death rate, and he woke up from it. 
And he lived several more years because he was telling this story almost three years ago. And this had occurred a few years prior. So he got a lot of extra years out of that surgery. So he actually made the right decision. Unfortunately, he wasn't cured. And this surgery, I don't know the specifics on it, but it was not to completely cure the cancer. It's one thing if you've got cancer, which is going to be terminal if they uh, don't do the surgery, but won't be terminal if they do. This was something just more to extend his life longer if he wakes up from it. So he fell on the right side of that one. But unfortunately, the cancer eventually got him and he passed away from cancer in December of this month, December of 2021 on December 12th. Only 58 years old. We lost this guy way too young. This guy deserved to live to 100. And I say that because he was so good-hearted. He he was someone who was so genuine. This is who you like to see live to a really old age. I don't like to see people like Mark dying at 58. Ironically, his last post on Poker Fraud Alert was on December 10th, just two days before he passed away. And he was saying RIP regarding somebody else. Now, this somebody else wasn't someone he knew personally. This was Michael Nesmith, the former monkey that I discussed a little bit on the last show. And he wrote, RIP, thanks for the laughs till I catch your act again. And Mark didn't know that two days later that he might be joining Michael Nesmith. So maybe he is catching his act again. Now, he knew he was very sick. He knew he's had a lot of surgeries since that one he talked about. He told me in October in our long phone call about a surgery that was coming up within a few days and told me it was pretty major. Uh, He made it out of that one. And I never got from him that he was on the verge of death. I was getting from him that he was sick, that he had to keep having treatments and surgeries and but things weren't looking that great, but it never looked like he was on the verge of death. And and I don't think that he believed he was on the verge of death, but at the same time, he knew what his condition was and he knew that uh, any day this could happen. So this wasn't a completely healthy guy at 58 who just died. But at the same time, you know, even like from what he posted on the 10th, I don't think he was thinking that in two days that he'd be in the same spot as uh, Michael Nesmith. It's strange to think about after I do this episode that I won't get my usual texts from Mark talking about some of the things that were discussed here. Strange to think about that I'm not going to get dealt cards from him again, or that I won't get to talk to him on the phone or text with him anymore, that he's just gone. But anyway, I'm glad to have known him. He's one of the good guys that I met from my time in the Vegas gambling scene. And I'm glad he found my show. I'm glad he enjoyed my show. And I'm glad I got to know him. So rest in peace, Mark Fusil. Just know a lot of people in the poker and gambling community really liked you and really thought highly of you. And this episode is dedicated to you. So I'm going to move on to the next topic here. I had a trip to Vegas that I did complete. I'm not in Vegas right now, but I I did go to Vegas recently. 
And I had something occur that I never had before. In all my times driving between L.A. and Vegas, I've never had this happen before. And that was developing a sudden intense illness in the middle of the desert. Now, I did have two kind of close calls of that occurring. I'm talking about in the past. One of them was at the beginning of 2005. Some of you might remember this guy who was in the online poker forums and on poker stars named Online Champ. Online Champ wanted to meet me in person. <laughs> so he came to Vegas. He was from Florida. So he came to Vegas and uh, he met up with me around New Year's of 2005. I was living in Vegas at the time, but I had a girlfriend who lived in California. So uh, we were driving back to her place from Vegas after New Year's. I had just moved to Vegas a short time before that. Anyway, we were on the way back to her place after the New Year's festivities a few days later. And about 90 miles into the drive, I told her I felt like really, really, really cold. And I couldn't continue, like cold and fatigued and just like something felt wrong. So we pulled over in Baker, which is 90 miles from Vegas, and we just switched off and she drove the rest of the way. Now, if she wasn't in the car with me, I may have had to stay in Baker because I don't think I could have continued the remaining like 210 miles of the drive. But uh, she was right there to switch off with me. I also wasn't worried about what was happening. I just felt like I was getting sick. Now, it turned out I had the flu. I had caught the flu from Online Champ. And he texted me a few days after that. And he says to me, without even knowing this had happened to me, without even knowing that I was sick, he texted me a few days after that saying, oh, dude, I think I may have gotten you sick. <laughs> And sadly, I think when he got me sick was when I gave him a ride to a strip club because he didn't have a car. And like at the end, like he came down to watch me play at Bellagio. He was sitting next to me. So it may have been there, but I think it was probably more likely in the same car with him when it happened. And he's like, uh, he told me he didn't, like he felt tired, he said, but he didn't understand why. But he quickly learned that. But he, he begged me to drop him off at a strip club. So I did. Like it was one he had chosen. I wasn't just picking it for him. So I, I was nice and dropped him at the strip club when I was on the way back to my apartment. And I have a feeling that's when he got me sick. But uh, I said, yep, you did get me sick. He's, oh, dude, that was a really bad one. I go, yeah, I know. So I was pretty much knocked out for three days. But it didn't peak till after I got to my then girlfriend's apartment. So I was just starting to feel the effects of it then to where I didn't feel comfortable driving anymore. But at no, ta at no point was I worried and... At no point did I feel any different than the, just like the beginning of a flu. And also, I was only uh, around 33 years old then. So, you know, how concerned are you going to be when you start to feel sick in the desert when you're 33? So anyway, that was the first time. Second time was about eight years ago. In January 2014, I had just been to Harris Rincon, and then I was going to continue driving to Vegas, which I did. On the way from Harris Rincon to Vegas, about, I'd say, maybe 
80% into the drive, I started getting really tired and I didn't understand it. And I said, wow, I'm glad there's not that much left. Otherwise, I'd have to pull over somewhere and take a nap. But I toughed it out and did the remainder of the drive. I was exhausted when I got to Vegas. And then I thought to myself, you know, this is weird because when I went to bed, I didn't have the desire to have anything to drink. And I don't mean alcoholic beverages. I mean like water or, or Coke or whatever. Like I always have something to drink before I go to bed. I've just done that since I was a kid. And it just seems so unappealing to drink anything. And I go, that's kind of weird why I don't want to do this. But okay, whatever. I just didn't really think much about it. Went to bed, woke up, felt extremely tired for the amount I had slept. And also, again, just didn't feel like drinking anything, which is weird. And turned out this was a stomach flu and one where not only didn't have a desire to drink anything, but if I tried to force down water, it would come right back up and I'd vomit it. So uh, this actually I kind of mishandled because I wasn't going to the ER to get an IV and I was quickly losing fluid from just vomiting everything. And if I tried to get more water down, it came right back up. And my girlfriend, who's the same girl I'm with now, she kept begging me to go to the ER. And I said, I just don't want to go there. I just, I see, so, so unappealing to go to the ER right now. I just want to get in bed here. But I, I promised her that if by 7.30 p.m. that I couldn't keep any water down, that I would go. Well, at about six, I was able to keep water down, so I never ended up going there. But uh, I was still suffering the effects of dehydration, which caused me to faint about four hours later when I went to the bathroom, and I broke three ribs. So that wasn't good. <laughs> but again, this didn't really interfere with the drive. I actually completed the drive there. I was just feeling the beginning of it on the drive. So those were my two times going between somewhere and Vegas. In, in this latter one, it was going from Harris Rincon to Vegas. The first one was Vegas to LA. But neither time uh, was it particularly worrisome. And one of those two times, I was able to finish the drive by myself. Well, this time was different. When I left, I felt fine, 100% fine. About 50 miles into the drive, this is going towards Vegas, I started feeling nauseous. A little bit tired, but mainly nauseous. And I didn't understand it. I thought, why am I feeling nauseous here? So I thought maybe I was just getting a little bit car sick. Maybe uh, just something about the drive was making me a little bit sick. It wasn't like major nausea. It was kind of like a background nausea. And I thought, okay, this could even be in my head. Who knows? So I was kind of in denial that anything was wrong. I figured that just if I, I take some drinks of water and just uh, kind of ignore it. It'll go away in 15 minutes. Well, it didn't go away. It kept getting worse. I was still kind of in denial. I did not want to stop anywhere. I just wanted to complete the drive. This was also fairly late at night. It started out about uh, 10 p.m. this drive. Maybe 9-something, but you know, around that hour. So I kept driving. Then I just was feeling so lousy around when we were at Victorville, which is about 100 miles in. I thought, okay, I've got to get out of the car. Maybe the fresh air will make me feel better. So I stopped to get gas. Figured just getting out, getting gas, being in the fresh air, breathing in the gas fumes. Maybe not that part, but I felt that doing that might help. Well, it kind of seemed to. The fresh air was nice. And I felt a little bit better. And I walked around. You know, I started the gas pumping, and then I kind of walked around away from the pumps so I could get breaths of fresh air. And I, I thought, okay, well, I'm not as 
much better as I hoped I'd be, but this did improve a little bit. So yeah, let's just continue. So I kept driving. Well, then in the next like 50 miles, it got worse and worse and worse rapidly. When we got to Yermo, which is about 10 miles past Barstow, it's probably about uh, uh, 140 miles from Vegas, I couldn't continue. I cannot tell you how sick I felt. I felt not just very nauseous, but extremely fatigued. And I felt like something wasn't right. I felt like just something was just going wrong with me. I can't even describe it in words, but it was different than other illnesses I felt. This was like something was happening to me. It had that feeling to it. Now, when I've told people about this, they go, oh, this is just anxiety. Now, not really. See, remember, I was kind of in denial about this. I was trying to convince myself I wasn't sick. I was trying to convince myself it's going to go away. Now, once it got to this really, really bad point, then some anxiety kicked in. But that wasn't fueling this because, like, I went into a gas station bathroom and thought, okay, maybe if I go crap in this bathroom, because I kind of felt like I had to do that too. Maybe if I do that, then that'll relieve my stomach and, and this will go away. Because I've, I've had this before where I have diarrhea and uh, once I go to the bathroom, then other symptoms that diarrhea is causing kind of lessen. I'm sure you've probably had that before too. I don't want to gross you out too much. but So I go in this dirty gas station bathroom and do this. And I mean, I can't tell you how bad I was feeling in there. It didn't help at all. It was getting worse. I was able to go. It actually wasn't diarrhea. I was able to go. But... Like, I was just feeling worse and worse. I, I, I was clutching my phone just in case I had to quickly call my girlfriend who was with me. And so was Benjamin. But I was getting ready to call her in case I was going to faint in there or something. Because it was, it was, it, something was really wrong. I've never felt like this before. And I'm thinking, crap, I'm in the middle of the desert. I haven't Googled if there's any hospitals there. Which, believe me, I didn't want to go to a hospital there. I mean, I just had ER fail near me. But that... I did not want to go to a Barstow area ER, which is where Yermo is, about 10 miles north of Barstow. I did not want to go to a Barstow area ER, nor did I think they could do much for me. Like I, I just decided that I will only go to that ER if something happens to me, not just if I feel really, really, really crappy. But I'm thinking if something does happen to me, I don't want it to be here. This is not where you want to be with some kind of major problem. I didn't know what was going wrong. And keep in mind, I'm not young. You know, I'm almost 50 years old. I'm just about to turn 50. So things can happen. In fact, I'll tell you what came to mind when I'm sitting on the toilet. In the year 2000, I knew a guy who was 49. He was healthy. He was fit. He had no issues, no known issues. And he got on the road for a Vegas trip by himself. And somewhere in the middle of the desert... On I-15, he started feeling worse and worse, pulled over to take a little break, and died. Just outright died. Wasn't drug abuse. Wasn't anything he did to himself. Wasn't any known condition. I don't even know what his cause of death was. But I know that he left L.A. believing he was completely fine, age 49, Started feeling real crappy in the middle of the desert, pulled over and died. 
So here I am, 49, and I left feeling okay. I kind of thought about him. I, the way I was feeling, I'm like, is this the way you feel when you're dying? Because it was a way I hadn't felt before. Now, remember, I mentioned that Benjamin's mom was with me, and Benjamin was with me. You may ask, why didn't she just take over driving? Well, two reasons. She had a pinched nerve in her neck that she woke up with the day before. So she couldn't turn her head. It wasn't very safe for her to drive because she was kind of physically unable to do that. If she absolutely had to, she could have, but for her to go another hundred-something miles wasn't very safe. Furthermore, the way I was feeling, I didn't want to get further into the desert because once you continue, then between there and Vegas, there's basically nothing. So as small as Barstow is, it's huge compared to what remains. So I didn't want to go into no man's land there feeling this way, even if she was driving. So you may ask, well, why don't you get a hotel? Well, that's what I did. Now, I thought it would be very easy to find a hotel. It was on a weeknight. Yermo is not a tourist destination by any means. It's the opposite of that. Like, why would anyone stop in Yermo? Why would hotels ever be in demand there? Well, somehow, the one hotel in Yermo was completely full. So she drove the car with me now in the passenger seat, went in and got the bad news. They had nothing. So we had to go back about 10 minutes south to Barstow. Again, she was driving. I had looked up a hotel on my phone that I called up and check that they had a room. They did. We went there, and all they had was a room on the second floor, which normally I would want. It was a motel with two stories and no elevator, and that was the key. (laughs) I didn't want to go upstairs. I wasn't sure if I could go upstairs. And I'm thinking, not only am I not sure if I could go upstairs, but how do I get my stuff up there? Because, like, I don't think I can drag this upstairs, and She's got this pinched nerve in her neck, and she can't carry my stuff up. I mean, it, it was kind of a problem, but we took what we could get. So we got the second floor room, and uh, this is in Barstow. And I got out of the car, and I said to her, you know what? This is going to sound weird, but even though I feel really sick, I actually think I can get my luggage out and drag it up the stairs, because I... I don't feel like I have no strength. I just feel extremely fatigued and nauseous and very, very sick. So I actually do have the ability to pull this uh, suitcase out of the trunk and uh, bring it up the stairs. And and that's what I did. I actually was able to do that. So I did that, opened the room. She went and got the room for me as I was just sitting in the car. Opened the room, crashed down on the bed, and then she followed... And it felt nice to get on that bed. And I was hoping I could sleep it off and maybe continue the remainder of the drive the next day, even if I didn't feel perfect. But there was one other issue. There was one other issue. And that was that I had a room in Vegas for that same night. And as bad as I was feeling, there was something making me feel even worse. I didn't want to lose that night I had paid for in Vegas. 
Now, there's no way I was going to get to Vegas to use it, and it was now after midnight. So, what could I do about it? I mean, could I really call the hotel on the same day I was supposed to be checking in after midnight and ask them not to charge me? And would I even do this when I was feeling that way, when I was feeling like close to the worst I'd ever felt in my life? What do you think? Yes. I actually grabbed my phone. I was lying on the bed, feeling extremely, extremely sick. Couldn't do anything. But I was able to grab my phone and call up the hotel and try to ask them to cut off that first night because it was a multi-night reservation and not charge me. (laughs) And you're probably saying, oh, come on, you couldn't have been that sick then. There's no way you're that sick. And I respond by saying, yes, I was. But unless I am either unconscious or on my deathbed, I will always make that call to save that money. So I did. And I did decide I'm not going to argue about this. If they said no, I was just going to accept it and let them understand I'm coming in the next day. So not to cancel the reservation, but if they're just going to leave the room empty and charge me for the first night I don't show up, I was actually going to accept it. So I did have to call them anyway to let them know that we're not checking in tonight. But I was going to also take a shot at getting that first night cut off. And that's why I didn't have my girlfriend call up because I could have had her call for me. But I wanted to also try to convince them not to charge me. So amazingly, I did. Amazingly, I convinced them not to charge me. <laughs> they just they just cut off that first night and had me checking in the next day. I was pretty shocked how easily that went. So maybe that's what made me feel better. Okay, I'll be honest. It, it did kind of make me feel better. <laughs> it kind of did. It kind of gave me like a, like a positive feeling through my body. Like, oh, wow, I, I don't have to pay for that night. Wow. Like, the, the motel wasn't cheap in Barstow. It definitely wasn't worth the money we paid for it, but, you know, I was just happy to get it. So the discounted night I had, I, see, that first night I was actually paying for in Vegas, and then the next few nights I had comped. So uh, oddly enough, uh, the weeknight was comped and the weekend, uh, I mean, the weeknight was not comped and the weekend was, just the way it fell. But it ended up about a wash because what I was going to pay for that first night, I ended up... Uh, paying for in uh, Barstow. So I was very happy that I got wiped off. Anyway, uh, I didn't get up from that bed and I just stayed there and I slept and in the morning I woke up and my girlfriend said, well, how do you feel? I go, I'm not sure, but I think it's improved. I, I don't feel perfect by any means, but it doesn't feel as bad as last night. And I got up to go to the bathroom and go, yeah, well, so far it, it doesn't feel as bad. So we still had the problem. We couldn't even leave right away because uh, I had to wait until I could check in. I didn't have to show up at 3 p.m. or anything. I, I could check in earlier than that, but I couldn't get to Vegas at like 11 a.m. So we waited a little bit in the room, and I still wasn't quite ready to leave. I was still relaxing. And then I got up for a little bit longer, and I said, you know what? Yeah, I can do this. I can do this. You can stand by. You know, You can uh, be ready to switch with me. But I actually think me driving not 100% like this, I mean, it wasn't we're close to 100%. I, I definitely still felt sick. But I said, you know, me completing this the way I feel, I think is safer than you who can't turn your head. Too bad Benjamin couldn't have dri- driven because if he could have, maybe he would have been the better driver here, given the way we all felt. But uh, I did complete it. 
And it wasn't that tough. Now, I did notice some things. Namely, I had no appetite. And I was able to drink water, and I wasn't throwing it up or anything, but I didn't have a desire to drink that much water either. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going to screw around here. I'm not going to force myself to drink a lot of water and then vomit it. I'm not going to force myself to eat for sure, because you can go without eating for a very long time. The human body can go a long time with no food. Some people don't know that, but you, food is not the problem. You really can go a very long time with no food. I mean, there's people who've survived like over a month with no food. The water is a problem. You get dehydrated, the no water can kill you after a pretty short time. People sometimes die after 24 hours of no water. 48 hours of no water is pretty common to die at that point. So you got to make sure you can get liquid down. And it was staying down. I just didn't have a desire to drink that much of it. And the eating, I said, I'm just not going to do toward Vegas because the last thing I want to do is, is bring on a problem. At this point, because it didn't get worse, because of all things, it went from totally healthy to peaking to where I felt just absolutely awful. Like that happened in about a two-hour span, which is very unusual. Think about when you get sick. Usually you don't get to the worst point within two hours. But that's what happened. After the two hours, it started to improve. Slowly improve, but it was slowly improve. It was slowly getting better. So when I woke up the following day, not following day, I, mean, I woke up that next day from getting that hotel in Barstow, and I was better, not worse. I thought that's a good sign. So at that point, I wasn't worried anymore. And at that point, I was starting to attribute this to being a stomach virus, which it probably was. And where did it come from? Do I blame the COVID vaccine for this too? No. Benjamin had a weird virus which made him nauseous three days prior. So that's just about certain where it came from. Mine presented a bit different than his, but it had some similarities too. So it's got to be where it came from, especially with the timing. So I had the unfortunate circumstance of the symptoms of what I caught from Benjamin coming up and peaking super fast right when I was in the middle of that drive to Vegas. Because had it happened a few hours earlier, I wouldn't have left. And then I would have called Vegas and said, you know, I'll come tomorrow. Had it occurred a few hours later, I would have already been in Vegas and I could have just gotten in bed. But it had to happen right there in the exact middle point of the freaking drive. So that was pretty bad luck. But at least we were in a spot where we could get a motel. That was the one part that wasn't bad luck. So we weren't in no man's land. We were able to stop somewhere and get a motel. And uh, things kind of improved from there. That day in Vegas, I didn't feel great. Um I was actually able to finally eat at dinner, but I ate ate like a reduced dinner. I didn't eat my usual giant meal. I kind of ate the equivalent of like what a kid would eat. And also I was getting nauseous a few times at dinner. Never threw up, but I definitely wasn't all better. And then uh, the following day, I was mostly better. And then the day after that, I was completely better. Seemed like a stomach virus. Stomach viruses get better pretty quickly. Unlike colds, which can hang around for weeks. This was definitely not a cold. I never had congestion, never had a runny nose, never had a cough. So it wasn't a cold. No chance it was a cold. Was it COVID? No. In fact, when Benjamin got it, uh, he actually missed school the following day, and 
the policy at the school is you have to take a COVID test to come back when you miss for being sick for any reason. So we got him a COVID test and it was negative. But I, I don't believe it was COVID. It doesn't present like COVID. It presented just like a, a stomach virus. Just bad timing. I don't know why it got so intense. Like I've never had anything that intense that quickly. I've gotten sick quickly before, but it, it's never quite felt like that. It really, really, really felt like something major might be wrong. And it was just rapidly coming on. It's very, very bad timing there. How do I feel now? Yeah, I'm all better. There's no trace that ever happened. How is my foot? Remember I had that where I couldn't walk earlier this month? Remember that whole thing? That's actually better. So that's the good news that at least these things are getting better (laughs) or they are better. That's why I'm doing the show now. And you may ask, well, why wasn't the show earlier? Well, I was doing some family things when we got back. I, I just didn't have time to put this all together and do it. I was going to do a show right when we got back from Vegas, but then just some things came up. So that's why we missed a week again. But I'm hoping we'll be on again next week for the first show of 2022. Okay, so one more topic about me, and then we'll get to our regular stuff. I I know we haven't talked about uh, anything going on in the poker and gambling world. The first thing was about uh, the unfortunate passing of Mark Fusil. The second topic was about my weird illness in the middle of the desert. By the way, that was the first time I ever stayed in uh, Barstow in my life. I've gone through Barstow well over 100 times in my life, maybe over 200. I, I can't even count, but... Never once have I stayed there. That was my first time and maybe my last time staying in Barstow. So I have an update for you regarding that fail that occurred at the ER from my last thing that happened to me, which I I won't bother to rehash because I talked about it extensively in the last episode. So if you want to know my ER story, then go back to the last episode and listen to it. But I have an update for you because... Remember, there was all that fail at the ER. So I put in a complaint to what was known as the patient safety officer there. The patient safety officer is supposedly in charge of patient safety at the hospital. So from that title, you would think that this is a person whose job it is to care about patients and to make sure that they're keeping everybody safe. But of course, that's a misnomer. What patient safety really means is the hospital covering its ass, the hospital trying to prevent situations where they get sued. So some of this can be preventative, where they just make sure not to put themselves in such a spot. Some of it can be corrective, where if they've made a mistake, that patient safety officer investigates and makes recommendations of what they need to change. And part of it is covering up where if there's an allegation where they think they might end up being legally liable, that they find ways to make it look like they are not. So these are the actual functions of a patient safety officer, from what I understand. I'm not an expert in that industry, so I can't say this for certain, but from my observation, that's what that job really entails. The woman I spoke to 
you know when you speak to someone in any kind of customer service capacity, you can kind of get an impression from their tone with you how much they're really going to help you and, and what they're really thinking. So sometimes I'll speak to someone who seems like extremely concerned of what happened and really wants to help me. Sometimes I'll have someone who uh, fakes concern, but you can tell is being very phony and probably won't help. You have some people who are kind of combative. You have some people who are kind of dismissive. You know, yeah, I'm sure you've encountered all of this in, in your times dealing with various forms of customer service in your life, as have I. So my impression of her, and she sounded like a, a woman in her 50s who seemed kind of like a bitchy office woman type. That's, that's the best way I could describe her. So I didn't feel the best talking to her. But at the same time, there were a few reasons to possibly be optimistic, kind of cautiously optimistic, because, for example, she admitted to me that if no doctor examined me the entire time, and that I didn't even see a doctor or a PA, physician's assistant, until they discharged me, then that was a problem. She also acknowledged that if they didn't check what meds I was on, which they didn't, and made mistakes based upon that, that's a big problem. So she said she'd be looking into those things. Those are my two major complaints, along with everything else. And she said that she would get back to me probably within seven days. And then I made sure she understood, because remember, I know she's there mainly to cover the hospital's ass, not to work for me or help me. So I made sure she understood that I wasn't looking to sue anybody. I wasn't looking to get rich. I wasn't looking for any payments from them, that the resolution I wanted was just that they were not going to charge me the patient portion of the bill. They wanted to bill the insurance company, whatever, they can do that. That's not my problem. But as long as I didn't have to pay anything out of pocket for this horrendous visit, I was willing to drop it there. And I made sure she understood this. Now, she came back with, well, we're not up there yet. I have to investigate first. And I said, no, 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 I understand that. And I want you to investigate everything. I want you to see what happened here. But once you see it, and once you see I'm telling you the truth, that's what I'm looking for. So please keep that in mind when you're doing the investigation that I'm not trying to do this to build info for a lawsuit. Now, of course, that's just what I'm saying to her, and she has to keep that in mind when she's doing her job, that uh, I can claim I'm not looking to sue them, and then she can come back and admit fault for the hospital, and then I go, ah, guess what, I'm suing you anyway. And it's not like my claim is binding. But I did say, I made sure she understood, that I was willing to even sign a document, if necessary, that it ends here, that if they drop the patient portion of the bill that I agree not to go after them for anything further. And that would be binding if I signed such a document. So I put this in her head because I wanted her to investigate from that view, not from the view of, oh, here's the guy looking to sue us, but, oh, okay, here's a guy who thinks we messed up royally, but is willing to just uh, have us not bill him for it and just drop the whole thing and even sign a paper indicating that. And you may ask, well, why were you willing to give up all your rights to sue them? Well, because I knew I was okay at that point. So there was nothing to sue them for. I had no real damages other than frustration and what could have been harm had I followed the stupid advice they gave me, the malpractice medical advice they gave me there. But since I didn't follow it, nothing happened to me. So I had no damages and I had no future damages from that. So I, I knew that uh, there was no lawsuit to be had here. So all I wanted was not to pay for it. And I wanted them to understand that. So 
Nine days passed and I didn't hear from her. And she told me seven. So I called her up after it had been nine days. And I politely said to her, um, yeah, you said to be get back to me in seven days, but it's been nine, so I'm just looking to find out the status of it. So she says, well, we technically have 28 days by law to investigate. I'm like, okay, this isn't starting out well. But she says, but I will look into it further. We're still investigating, but from what she was saying, it kind of sounded like they hadn't done much yet. So it sounded to me like she was committing to actually doing something that day and getting back to me. I called her fairly early in the morning, like 9.30 a.m. So she told me she'd call me that afternoon and let me know if she had an update. She said she's going to call me for sure, even if she hasn't learned anything new, but she's going to try to look into it further and speak to people at the hospital and hope. hopefully later that afternoon I'd find out more. But she was definitely going to call me. So, okay. I waited. And sure enough, at about one thirty, I got a call. So, good news, she said. She completed her investigation. So she says, first of all, Regarding a doctor not seeing you, you claim no doctor saw you, no physician's assistant saw you until you were being discharged. That's actually not true. A doctor examined you. I said, huh? When did that happen? She says, in the triage area, you were examined by a doctor. I said, no, I wasn't. She said, yes, you were. I said, I'd remember if I was examined. She said, you took off your shoes and they looked at your your swollen ankles and feet. I said, I might have done that. I'm forgetting if I took off my shoes or not to show them. That I might have done, but I was showing uh, two nurses there. She says, no, one of the two people you showed was a doctor. You just don't realize it because uh, he's pretty young. Now, it is true that there were two people that were... Uh, taking the information I was giving them there in the triage area. One was a uh, female around my age who was a nurse, at least I assume was a nurse. And then there was what I thought was a male nurse who did look pretty young. And I just thought that was a second nurse there. This person never identified themselves as a doctor and this person never examined me. This person may have asked me a few questions, but they never touched me, never examined me. And to me, it just looked like two nurses taking information. That's how much I didn't think this was a doctor. And again, he did not say he was a doctor. Now, she was insisting that guy was a doctor. No, maybe he was. Maybe he was the doctor, but he didn't examine me. He may have happened to have been there. I was not examined. And the physician's assistant definitely didn't have any contact with me until I was discharged. But she says, nope, doctor examined you. I'm satisfied with that. I said, well, that's just not true. I go, okay, but hang on. Even if you want to say that, what about the medication thing? Because if you remember, you guys didn't find out what meds I'm on. And you accidentally re-prescribed me something very similar to what I was already on in the same family medications, not realizing that I was already on it and that I'd be taking a double dose. And when I asked about that, I was told to take it anyway, which was incorrect advice that I've since found out from a number of doctors, including uh, one I just went to. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. We knew what meds you were on. I said, well, then why would I have been double prescribed? And she said, well, because uh, you were on a diuretic. And if your ankles were swollen like this, obviously the diuretic you were on wasn't working. So you need to take another one in addition to that. (laughs) No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. In fact, taking more of a diuretic could make things worse especially if it is gout 
which at the time it was suspected. Probably wasn't gout, it turned out, but at the time it was suspected. If you have suspected gout, the last thing you want to do is, is take more of a diuretic. So that would have been a very bad advice, no matter what, to take more. So not only was that very bad medical advice that could have been harmful, but clearly it was not because they thought I was uh, already on one. Because when I told the nurse I'm already on one, the nurse was like, what? What? No, no, we don't show that. <laughs> they, they didn't have that information. So they were just lying about this in this investigation that, that, that they decided consciously to prescribe me a second one. That's not the way it happened. So she says, no, 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 we, we did have your meds list and that's what happened. So whether you agree with it or not, uh, that part of the complaint is also not valid. And I said, wait a second, wait a second. All right, you want to play this game? I didn't say those words. That was in my mind. I said, okay, we can solve this really easily right now. If you know what meds I was on, because you supposedly got that information from me, then tell me what meds am I on? If you have that information, then obviously I'm wrong. But if you don't have it, then obviously I'm right. It's one of those two things. Because I know what I'm on. I can prove what I'm on. So either you got that information and can tell me right now and it's going to match what I'm really on, or you don't know. Well, there she was trapped because she knew that they were full of shit over there. She knew they didn't really ask for this. They were, they were reverse engineering the story. And I'll tell you what I think the real story is in a second. But they were reverse engineering it for my complaint. So whatever I complained about, they were trying to come up with an excuse that matches the closest to what sounds reasonable to what occurred. So, for example, the doctor never examined me and the PA never examined me. Instead of admitting that, because the doctor happened to be in the room when I first came into the triage area, oh, he examined you then. That was a reverse engineering. So when they double prescribed me meds, not checking what I was on first, instead of saying, yeah, we didn't check what you were on first, which is a huge mistake, they said, oh, we knew we were on first. We just thought we needed to take a second one. So that's what I mean by reverse engineering from my complaint. The problem and where they run into an issue they can't get around is if they don't have the information about what I was on, they can't just make that up. They can't read my mind and know what I'm on. So obviously... If they could tell me, then I remembered it wrong, and then that's the end of my complaint, at least that part of it. But if they can't tell me, then that's a smoking gun proof that they didn't check what meds I was on. And I knew I didn't tell them what meds I was on. So what did she say back? She said back, "Uh, sir, I'm not doing this with you. I said, what do you mean you're not doing this with me? She says, I've completed my investigation. You received a a satisfactory standard of care. I said, what? What do you mean? I said, I thought you were the patient safety officer. One of the main things you need to do at an ER is find out what medications the patient's on. So that's a huge patient safety issue if you're not doing that there. So you're telling me you're, you don't care whether they check this or not? You don't want to verify this? It's, it's very quick. Just tell me what meds I'm on. And if it got it right, then obviously I'm incorrect. And if you don't have it right, then obviously I'm correct. It's very easy. It's one or the other. Either you have it or you don't. Um, Sir, I've done with my investigation. I'm not playing these games with you, she said. So she absolutely would not. And I said, why can't you tell me? Why is it a secret what meds I'm on? She says, I don't have it in front of me. I said, okay, no problem. Go look it up and call me back. I'm not doing this with you, sir. I'm done with the investigation. So the translation really was, you caught us. There's no way we can fabricate the meds you're on because we don't know. And... We don't want to admit this, so we're just, we're just done. We're just closing it. 
So I was getting real pissed. So I said to her, I want to know who your direct supervisor is. And she said, I'm not telling you that. And I said, what? Why is that a secret? Why can't I know who you report to? I'm not telling you that, sir. And I said, you can't do that. I said, I want to know who you report to so I can report this whole situation to them. And then she hung up on me. She hung up on me. (laughs) She also said shortly before hanging up on me that I'm responsible for the entire payment and they're not waiving anything. Isn't that nice? Cover-up mode. So I'll tell you what really happened there, in my opinion, and then I will tell you what I'm going to do about it. I think that when I came in, for whatever reason, they got distracted and forgot to ask about the meds I was on. In the middle of my visit, they did tell me when I was asking to see the doctor, they, they eventually told me it was a PA and that the doctor had gone home. Now, I had never seen the doctor yet. There's, I, I'm sure I hadn't because no one had said they were the doctor. Nobody examined me. So I, I was a little surprised there even was a doctor. But they said the doctor had already gone home in the middle of my stay there. Well, I think I believe that now. I think the guy was there. I think the guy had meant to examine me But then he had to go home. Maybe his shift was over, who knows. But either had to go home or the time he was expected to be there was over. So he probably decided to assign my case to the physician's assistant, who could legally take it over. And he felt that my case wasn't of any urgency where he had to still be there. And he gave a way to contact him, if if anything was necessary, and handed it off to her. So I believe at that point the doctor felt That was fine because uh, he is not required to examine me. The PA could examine me in his place, and that would be legal in the state of California. So he probably expected her to do this. Now, where the wrinkle came in was twofold. Number one, when I kept asking for them to test my uric acid, the PA was getting flustered because she was in a battle of wills here and didn't want to do it. So... uh, she kind of decided to passive-aggressively hide from me. She didn't want, didn't want to see me and have this argument. This was a young physician's assistant who just decided she's not going to test my uric acid, and uh, she didn't w- want to even like argue with me about it. So I, she, she avoided me, basically, is what I think happened. And then the whole thing with the meds, they had just forgotten to take it. That was a separate oversight from the rest of all this. So... When she saw my blood test results, decided to prescribe me things she felt I needed, not understanding I was already on these things because the people in the triage forgot to ask what meds I was on. So on her computer, it just showed I wasn't on anything. And then when I asked, well, what do I do? I'm already on this thing. Then she gave terrible medical advice because she just wasn't very good. She wasn't very competent. So this is a person who is both probably passive-aggressive and afraid of confrontation and also just not very competent. So anyway, the whole thing was a mess. And by the way, (laughs) the patient safety officer told me they did test my uric acid. So I'm actually going to get a copy of those records soon and see this. But that would be funny after that whole argument about uric acid if they ended up actually doing it. Because they they insisted to me at the end that uh, they didn't do it and they had a good reason not to. So it would be funny after all that they did test the uric acid. But anyway, I think my... Asking for the uric acid to be tested and the resistance to it was why she was avoiding me. And then it just kind of slipped through the cracks that I was never examined. Maybe she thought the doctor did it. Maybe the doctor thought she was going to do it. So I ended up never being examined and they never knew my meds from two different oversights. So now they had to cover this up 
because here's the problem. If anything were to happen to me, and then I were to blame this or my family were to blame this on their, these oversights that a doctor never examined me and that they didn't take what meds I was on, then they could be subject to a lawsuit, a malpractice lawsuit. So the best way they can get around this is by blaming this all on me, claiming I don't remember that I was examined, claiming that uh, they did take my meds and I just don't remember giving it to them and then that, that them double prescribing was intentional. That's what they're attempting to do. Why, why didn't they just take my offer about waiving the bill and having me sign something that uh, says I won't sue them? Well, I think because it's not binding until I actually sign it. So once they own up to the fact that they had some wrongdoing, then I think they were worried that I go, oh, well, okay, if they're going to admit they had wrongdoing, you know what? I've changed my mind. I am going to sue them. So they just decided it's safer to just tell me, F you, you get nothing, and we are not going to help you at all. And uh, we're just going to pretend that this is all in your head. I actually recorded the uh, the very end of the call that I had with her. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Yeah, that was the very end of the phone call before she hung up on me. So what am I going to do? Well, I've been getting some guidance from... Uh, an individual listens to this show who is in the uh, medical profession. I, I thank him for the guidance he's been giving me here. And I'm actually going to follow his advice. I am going to get my records from the hospital, which I have a right to get. And then I'm going to make a complaint to the state of California about this. I don't know if the complaint is going to go anywhere because... Again, I didn't get harmed. So there's ER fails that are much worse than mine that actually result in either death or uh, major health consequences. For me, there was neither, fortunately. But still, there's a lot of fail here and a cover-up. And uh, I'm also going to try to find the uh, way to contact someone at the board of directors of the hospital and let them know about the unprofessional handling of this and as well as the hanging up on me and the refusal to check into the situation about the meds and to just tell me what I was on to prove they knew this. So I'm going to let them know as well, and maybe this patient safety officer will get some discipline over the way she handled this. But maybe she did her job. Maybe they want her to uh, act like this and cover up as much as possible. But whatever. I'm going to try to attack it from those angles. Am I going to pay the bill? Because they're still billing me. Am I going to pay it? Nope. No. Not going to pay a penny. The amount I'm going to send to them will be... Zero point zero. I will accompany my my refusal to pay with a letter explaining why. I'm not going to just not pay. I will send them a letter explaining why they're not getting my payment. And I will threaten to sue them if they attempt to send it to collections or try to do anything with my credit. However, if necessary, I'll take the credit hit. I will take the credit hit. As I mentioned in the last show, that's not a big deal. If they're going to put it on my credit, I will do everything I can to avoid that. But if that ends up what occurs, which could be, then so be it. But I will not send them another penny. You may say, wait a minute. Why are you doing this? Why are you being such a hard ass? What if you need this ER in the future? They might turn you away. Well, number one, they can't. By law, they have to take me. 
And number two, I'm not going to go back there unless the situation is dire. There's another ER about the same distance away from me. So I will go to that one in the future. I will not go to this one, not just because of the little battle I had with them here, but because uh, this really showed me how incompetent they are there. I also didn't really like who was in charge. Apparently, it was a very young doctor and a very young PA, both of whom didn't seem very competent. So that's not who I want there in charge if I'm having a major issue that's life-threatening. Now, I realize you don't get the A-team usually on Saturday night, but it's hard to imagine getting that much worse, even in Barstow. So I won't be going back to that ER, and I'm not sending them a penny. That's a little update. Since you guys are following this saga, I'll give you any more major updates to this whole thing. There probably won't be one for a while, though, because uh, these things all take time. Okay, enough about me. Let's get to the good stuff here. We're talking about Mickey Maz. This is a very interesting story. We're, I think, only at the beginning of it. And there's going to be a lot more to say going forward. In fact, the whole thing's already starting to crack. In general, when somebody shows up on social media and postures about how much money they are winning from casinos, they are full of crap. I'm not saying this about Mickey specifically. If you asked me for my opinion about this several months ago, before I knew who Mickey was, I would tell you the same thing. That any person showing up on social media and flashing huge piles of chips and huge stacks of cash and claiming to be beating the casino for millions is almost always full of crap, especially if they are playing games that seem to be negative expectation with no way to beat them. So I'm not talking about blackjack. Blackjack, you can count cards and be positive expectation. I'm talking about games like roulette and baccarat, games like that where you can't beat them. You can beat them short-term, but you're not going to beat them long-term. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute, Phil Ivey was beating Baccarat. Yeah, but that was a very unique circumstance where he had an accomplice who was helping him look at the backs of cards. When I say helping him, she was the one looking. She had a talent to see these tiny defects in the cards to where they could tell what was coming. But aside from something like that, you can't beat Baccarat. So whenever someone comes forward and postures all over the place about how much they're winning, there's just about always some dishonest element to it. One notable exception to this, by the way, was Don Johnson. You may remember him. The man who broke Atlantic City. There were some articles, that's what they called him. And when I first saw the article about Don Johnson, I thought he was full of crap. But it turned out he wasn't. I mean, Don Johnson single-handedly knocked a lot of the drug trade out of Miami in the 80s. So, of course, he could beat Atlantic City. A different Don Johnson. But this Don Johnson, I'm just going on a small tangent here, kind of related. He was doing it in blackjack, and he was doing it in a very clever way. He was supposedly a whale who was betting huge amounts of money. 
what he was really doing is by a combination of negotiating loss rebates, that is where the casino agrees beforehand to pay you a certain percentage back of your losses. They will only do this for big whales who bet really huge. But a combination of loss rebates and also counting cards and creating such huge distractions that they didn't realize he was, he was able to win. And what he would do is instead of being like a regular card counter who's constantly raising and lowering their bets based upon the count, which is very obvious to anyone watching. So you you can't go in at these nosebleed stakes in a casino and just count cards in a normal way uh, because they're going to kick you out real fast when moving your bets up and down like that. So the way he got around this was that uh, he would be counting but uh, he wouldn't be moving his bets up and down really quickly. What he'd be doing is he'd be firing, and then if the count got uh, very negative, which means the it's worse than average for the player, then he would throw a tantrum about something that's bothering him and walk away. And they were actually believing that he was just irritated about uh, whatever stupid thing. A lot of big whale gamblers are like this. Like They're so sensitive to a lot of things, they think they're kings of the place. So this wasn't even out of place that he was doing it. So they were believing he was just throwing a tantrum when in reality he was just doing this when the count was very negative, and then he'd come back later after they reshuffled and pretend to have calmed down. And, and then uh, he'd also sometimes slowly up his bet when the count was positive, but he was doing these in like less obvious ways to where he was able to get away with it. So he really was able to play the role of the just eccentric whale and between that and the lost rebates, he was able to play a positive expectation game. And since he had a very deep bankroll, he was able to beat them in Atlantic City for a lot of money. So he was actually someone who did this in a smart way. And they did do some articles about him. And I thought, oh, this is just a guy posturing. But I will say he was not doing this on social media. Uh, I'm not sure how the articles about him came to be. I don't know if he went to them or if they just heard about him and interviewed him. But he was the exception. However, just about everybody else who claims that they are destroying the casinos, they're not. Does that mean nobody beats the casinos? Well, only a very, very small percentage do. But of that very, very small percentage of people, how many of them posture about it and brag about it and draw attention to themselves? Just about none. Because that's the last thing you want to do. If you have figured out a way to beat the casinos, you want to just quietly keep doing it. You don't want to say to the casinos, hey, guys, you know this game you thought was unbeatable? Well, I have a way to beat it. Ha, 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 ha. Look at all the money I've won. Ha, ha, ha. Look, everybody, and I'm going to teach you guys to do it, too. Who wants to learn from me? Who wants to back me? Who wants to put more money into this? Like You don't do that because then the casinos will scrutinize your play and figure out what you're doing, and that'll be the end of whatever scheme you have to beat those games. So in the advantage player community, of which I'm part, there's a lot of secrecy going on. In fact, uh, there's advantage players who take a lot of heat for sharing plays with too many people, because the more people that know about any kind of particular positive expectation play the higher chance is that the casino will catch on and the play will be over or they'll start banning people for engaging in that play. So the fewer people that know, the better off for the play. Now, sometimes people will trade advantage plays they know about with other advantage players. Sometimes they'll tell close friends that are also advantage players just to be nice. 
But really, with every additional person that knows and tries to take advantage of it, and also may tell others, you're risking that the play is going to be ruined, or a lot harder to do. So that's the last thing you would ever do, especially if you're making millions. If you're making millions, you keep your mouth shut, and you try to make as much as you can before it's over, because these things never last. The absolute dumbest thing you can do is go on social media and brag about it and try to get others in on it and wanting everyone to know you're doing it. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that. So when you see these people posturing that way, there's always something that's highly suspicious about it. But why? Why do people do this? What would be a reason that someone would claim that they are destroying casinos and posting evidence at the very least that they're playing at very high stakes. I'm not talking about a Christopher Mitchell type who's, for the most part, usually broke, except for short periods of time where they get a little bit of money and then gamble it away or spend it away. But I'm talking about people with big money where they're, they're flashing millions of dollars and they're flashing huge stacks of big chips and... These are real pictures. They're not doctored. They're not fake chips or fake cash. So obviously, when people are posting things, they if they're not faking it, then they must really have these chips and this cash. So this can make you think maybe it's real, but I'm telling you it just about never is. But why would someone do this? It's one thing, again, to pretend like you're a high roller killing the casino because it's a fantasy of yours when you're really broke, but... If you really have all this money, what's the point of going around on social media trying to posture like you're winning it from casinos? Like, What would be the reason anyone would do this? Well, before we get into the whole story of Mickey, which obviously is connected to everything I'm talking about here, I want to go over some reasons that someone might fake that they're destroying the casinos. Why someone might lie about that. And again, I'm just speaking generically here. Not about uh, Mickey or anybody else right now. Reason number one why a gambler might pretend that they're killing the casinos for huge money on social media would be scamming or keeping in action. So if somebody is a degenerate gambler and the money that they're gambling at high stakes is starting to run short because... They are losing, as will always happen when you play negative expectation games for long enough. What do they do? Well, one thing they can do is they can create an image of a nosebleed stakes gambler who's actually crushing the casinos, and they're hoping that others will see this and say, hey, how can I invest in this? How, how could you gamble for me? Can we have a deal where I give you money to play for me and that we split the profits? Can we have something like that? They're, they're hoping to reel in suckers who want a piece of that pie. And this way they can stay in action. So when they're getting very short on actual funds, they can show what they have left or show old pictures they took of themselves. Not even that old, maybe from last month or two months ago or whatever, but they can show pictures of themselves with a bunch of chips or cash, pretend they want it, and then they can get people to back them and they can stay in action. So that is one reason someone might go on social media and posture. In fact, this is actually an old multi-level marketing trick where salespeople would present a lavish lifestyle in order to sell, quote, opportunities 
for people to sell whatever crap product that the multi-level marketing is pushing, which is really not the main point of multi-level marketing, is really selling the opportunity to sell. But people who are MLM salesmen are instructed to prevent to present a very wealthy image to make it look like they're living the good life at all times to always present like a rich person who doesn't care about money who just has so much of it they don't know what to do so this is kind of a form of that show yourself in beautiful suites inexpensive cars uh, with with tons of cash and chips around you that at high denominations you have to show that to get others to invest in you. So that could be one reason. Christopher Mitchell, who we've discussed on this show, is kind of like a very low-rent version of that. Okay, reason number two that someone might want to posture on social media that they are beating the casinos for huge. Money laundering. Ah, I may not have thought of that, huh? Casinos are a frequent tool for money launderers as I'm sure all of you know if you listen to this show, because we talk about it sometimes. And what money launderers at casinos really like is when they can control the loss. And there's various ways to do that. Poker rooms are a big target, because poker rooms you're not playing against the house. So if you have uh, two players who are in on the money laundering playing each other at very high stakes, one can dump the money to the other, the second person can appear to have won the money gambling instead of uh, whatever illicit source the money originally came from, and then that immediately cleans the money. So that's one way it can be done. But what about casinos? What about casino gambling? Well, one way you can do it is by playing both sides of a game like roulette or baccarat, where one person bets one side, one person bets the other, and very frequently, one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. So this pretty much establishes that one side is going to have a phony win and one side is going to have a phony loss. Again, you need two people for this, but you can do something like that and then the money can come out clean on the other end because one person is always going to be a winner and then a fake win can be established. Now, this of course can be done without a whole social media backstory. You don't need to uh, create a social media profile to pull this off. However, By creating such a backstory, it could allow that scheme to fly under the radar amidst all the noise. Because if just two people show up at the same time at a roulette table or baccarat table and they're both betting opposite sides, uh, that's going to stick out to the casino right there. But uh, if it appears that it's just a friend of somebody who's who's a social media star that's just a very big gambler and that uh, for whatever reason one of the people that's playing with them just happens to want to bet the other side because they think the other side is going to be luckier, that can kind of be explained away. Reason number three that this could be done. Celebrity. Who do we know that has built a brand on playing the part of a high-stakes player who's also kind of like an alpha male playboy type and has gotten a good deal of fame from it? Hmm. Would it be one uh, Dan Bilzerian? Yes. Dan Bilzerian developed a huge Instagram following and is now semi-famous. Keep in mind, when I met Dan Bilzerian for the first time almost 15 years ago in Lake Tahoe, he was a nobody. Nobody knew who he was. They called him the suitcase guy there because he carried around a suitcase with like 100k of cash. That's all he was known for 
for like that week in Lake Tahoe. Nobody had any clue who he was. And now compare that to today, where a lot of people know Dan Blazarian's name. He, as I said, he's like a semi-celebrity. He's not a household name, but he's also very well known. So he did all of this through his posturing on Instagram about his high-stakes poker play and also just his lifestyle with all these hot chicks constantly surrounding him, almost all of whom are paid models. So Dan Bilzerian, if looking to accomplish celebrity, which he definitely wants, remember he even once invested a million dollars in a movie with the agreement that they would let him have a role in it. So this is a guy who loves celebrity, and he basically bought his whole celebrity with this whole story he crafted for himself, and there's a lot of doubts about his stories and about how much he really wins in these private home games at, at high stakes and all that. Like, who knows? But this was the image he sold, and people liked that image. A lot of guys saw Dan Bilzerian and thought, wow, I wish I could be like him. I'm just a boring guy with a 9-to-5 job with, with an average-looking wife, and boy, I wish I could be him who's uh, winning millions of dollars playing poker and has... 10 hot chicks surrounding him at all times who are probably having sex with him and he gets to uh, always go on yachts and go out in the desert and shoot guns and blow things up. Wow, this, this guy's the coolest dude ever. I wish I were him. And, and you want to follow him. You want to see what he's doing next. You can kind of live vicariously through Dan Bilzerian. So it's not surprising that perhaps maybe someone might want to be the next Dan Bilzerian. So that's some reason that someone could be doing this on social media, even without any kind of uh, desire to scam anyone. Number four, just a rich guy who likes attention. See, nobody likes feeling like a sucker. So let's say you have a lot of money from whatever source. Could be money you made, could be family money, could be both, whatever it is. You, you have a lot of money. If you want to get attention, if you want to get positive attention for your mega stakes casino gambling exploits, you don't want the attention for all the money you're losing. And it doesn't take a genius for the average person to see someone betting very, very big and think to themselves, well, that's a lot of money, but eventually this person's going to go broke because the house always wins. So the only way to show yourself betting at very high stakes without looking like a sucker is portraying a story that you're actually beating the casino. Now, will the casino care? Is the casino going to be angry if they're actually beating you, but in reality, you're losing a lot? In reality, uh, your story is very different from what has happened, that you're actually losing and you're claiming you're killing them? No, they don't care. They're not insulted. In fact, the casino likes it. The casino likes when people say they win when they don't. That encourages more people to go and try. So the casino is happy for people to put out false stories that they're crushing it as long as they're really not. So it could just be a rich guy who likes attention and doesn't want to be seen as someone just chunking off money at the casino. Reason number five that someone would posture on social media that they're crushing the casino for millions, access to celebrities. Now, how would losing a lot of money in the casinos give you access to celebrities? Well, let's think about the story of Rob Gorodetsky. Rob Gorodetsky was a young fraudster who pretended to be a sports betting genius, but yet 
he had an odd story that he barely knew anything about the games he was picking. Just somehow he knew how to pick winners, almost like he was psychic. Well, in reality, he wasn't winning. In reality, he was just using other people's money that he had stolen to fund his own degenerate lifestyle. This isn't just my theory. He has actually been criminally convicted for this. So there's more to this story, though, of Rob Gorodetsky, because he actually befriended various celebrities and athletes who bought into his lie, because most celebrities and athletes are not gambling geniuses. They may like to gamble, but they don't know that much about gambling or about the gambling world. So when someone is appearing to be a person with the ability to beat the casinos, sometimes celebrities and athletes will be very interested, especially if it's someone they meet while they're betting big themselves. So here they see another guy who's betting really big, who says he's doing it because he's winning. And the celebrity or the athlete says, hmm, you know what? Can you show me how to do that? I'd like to do that too. And a friendship forms. And Rob Gorodetsky, despite being in his mid-20s, he made a number of famous friends just because they believed that he was the sports betting prodigy. Have to be pretty naive to believe that, but some did. So he really made friends that he could have otherwise never made if he didn't do that scam. So it really did give him access to celebrities that he never would have had in a million years if he didn't have that fake winning sports better at high stakes persona. Number six, and then we're going to move on and discuss Mickey himself, creating other opportunities. Now, what other opportunities could you get from posturing on social media that you're beating the casino? Well, as long as you get a lot of eyeballs onto your success, then it can open the door for others to want to work with you in a variety of ways. Not even just about gambling. Maybe they have uh, business opportunities. People will want you to invest in their business or some kind of media opportunity. Or even if you get well-known enough, you could get some kind of opportunity to have your face be the face of some sort of product or service. The point is, if you get this type of attention, there's other things you can do that otherwise people wouldn't really have the desire to be talking to you. So these are six reasons that anyone might want to pretend they are crushing the casino if they have a fairly big bankroll to be able to posture like they are. Again, you can't do this. You can't just go on YouTube and say, I just won $3 million this month playing uh, roulette. You can say that, but no one's going to believe you. However, if you got $3 million stacked behind you, if you're showing all these $25,000 chips from the Aria, yeah, people can start to say, hey, well, this guy, I don't know if he's winning or losing, but he does seem to have a lot of money. Maybe that is where he got it from. And remember, you don't have to convince everybody. You can have your doubters. You can have your haters as long as you've convinced the right people you're trying to convince. Then it's okay if there's people who criticize you or say you're a fraud or say that you're a phony. You don't have to convince the entire world. So let's get to Mickey Moss. Now that I've given you all these generic descriptions of gamblers who would posture on social media. Mickey Moz first came to our attention on Hustler Casino Live. He sat down in a high-stakes game 
that was being broadcasted on that stream. He was playing very reckless, very crazy, and it was working out. He happened to be running very well. This can happen with very aggressive, crazy players because you can't put them on a hand. You, you just have to, as someone playing against them, you have to make a lot looser calls, you have to take a lot of guesses, and you have to just hope that they're on the wrong side of it. Now, the reason that this doesn't work long-term to play this way is what I call dumb aggressive, is that eventually you're going to run into enough tough hands against you if you play this way, and also people will adjust that they don't fold to you easily, that eventually you're going to chunk it off. Eventually, your opponents are going to run hot and you're just going to get destroyed. Because while it can be tough to call a lot of money in a high-stakes game when you've only got top pair and the maniacs firing, 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 when you flopped a set then you're very happy to put the money in against him. So it's going to happen enough times where the guy just fires into something he'll never catch up with and chunks off big to where whatever he wins from the blind aggression isn't enough to cover it. And that's what I call dumb aggression. Smart aggression is where you do act very aggressive at the table, but you uh, pick the right spots to do it. And also realize when not to put in money. Realize when you are up against very tough hands that are going to beat you. And then you uh, you let it go. So there's smart aggressive players and there's dumb aggressive players. The dumb aggressive player, though, can win a lot short term if he's running well. Because he does have the advantage that people don't want to fold to him. Anyway, Mickey was said to play kind of like a dumb aggressive style. But he was doing well. I'm not sure what his total tally was in that game. But he was uh, crushing it at the beginning. And people were commenting on that. However, after that, the attention on him kind of faded away. Especially because two bigger stories sprung from that game. One was about a guy with some pretty serious uh, violent criminal convictions from another state who was in that game. And who may have actually been playing with stolen money. And then the other one was a guy who went right to a Lakers game from Hustler Casino Live and proceeded to get thrown out of Staples Center for having an altercation with uh, Rajon Rondo at his courtside seat and uh, actually slapped Rajon Rondo's uh, hand away. So those were the bigger stories to come from there. And Mickey was kind of forgotten about for a little time. But I was getting texts, as I mentioned a little earlier, I was getting texts saying, you got to focus on this Mickey guy. It's going to be a huge story. You got to be first at this. It's going to get Poker Fraud Alert a lot of positive attention, I was told. Well, that person was right. I, I should have. By the way, the same person also told me that Resorts World was going to be a big fail. And I told him, I don't agree. And I guess he was right there, too. So I, I maybe should have listened to this guy more often. But uh, uh, anyway, Mickey is getting attention now. And I was not the first one to bring it. Though I was teasing I would. But I, I the bottom line is I didn't. And I kind of feel stupid I didn't. But we're going to do it now. The story is by no means over. In fact, it's just beginning. I'm going to play you a little clip from Mickey's own Instagram. Now, if you want to take a look at his Instagram, you can find it at Instagram.com slash Mikhail, M-V-S-E. That's M-I-K-A-E-L-M-V-S-E. So it's almost like Mickey Mays, but there's a V instead of the A, and it's with Mikhail, M-I-K-A-E-L-M-V-S-E. That is his Instagram, and you can take a look at it. But I'm going to play you this clip, which he posted. 
from one of his suites, and it features him, a guy named Mike V, and a guy named Kendall Williams, who is a minor league pitcher with the Dodgers. And we'll talk about Kendall shortly. Listen to this. Kendall Williams here, right-handed pitcher with the Dodgers. Mike V, CEO of NS Modern, gave Mickey 150 k He racked it up to 373000 Profit, 200000 Now, that was uh, Mickey saying profit, 200000 Profit. It's showing him counting money. Then it's showing big stacks of cash on the table. Mickey, what happened tonight? Kendall and Mike V, they came out to Vegas. They put together 170000 in cash. Okay, so let's stop right here. He talks pretty fast. So he said, Kendall and Mike V, I don't know how these two know each other, but Kendall is a young minor league pitcher with the Dodgers. He originally came, was with the, uh, drafted by the Blue Jays, the Toronto Blue Jays, but was traded to the Dodgers for uh, Ross Stripling, who was a major league player. So he's presently in the Dodgers organization. He's never thrown a major league pitch, but he is only uh, 21 years old, I believe. So plenty of time left for his career. We'll get to him shortly. I don't know this Mike V guy, but uh, he and Kendall are friends, and they, they came to Vegas and brought $170,000, according to Mickey, for him to play with. Let's go on here. Right at just 373500 so th- This video is cutting here, so it's, it keeps cutting from scene to scene. So he's saying he ran the 150K up to 370 uh, About how long it took. They're so asking Kendall right now, the pitcher, how long it took. He sat down and he took five grand and flipped it to 200 before I knew what the fuck happened. So. Wow, okay, so now, and this doesn't even quite jive with the rest of the story. Remember, he had, they had 170 k that they brought, so instead of him just immediately buying in for that 170 k or at least 100 or something, he took 5 k of the 170 and before Kendall knew it, it was run up to 200 k Yeah. <laughs> two, two 10 minute sessions. We sat there, he put 5 k out, v. he flipped it, got it up, like 15 k came down, like break even, and then he just he went, ran it up to 100K, like, just in a row. Um, at that point, you know, him and his coach just were like, hey, let's take a break. Went back to the table, same thing. He, I think he ran, like, eight in a row. Let's stop here. So he says that him and his coach ran it up. His coach? Hmm. Why does he have a coach? He's a gambling coach. He doesn't mean, like, a sports coach. But that uh, Mickey and his coach went to the table ran up to 100K, left and decided to come back and take a second shot and ran it up again to 100K. So make it 200K total. And we got another 100K profit and we were done. I just watched it with my own fuck eyes. So then they just showed them holding it, almost like in a trash can with like a bunch of cash. How did the night go? What expectations did you have coming into the night? Honestly, I was scared going into it. I didn't know what the fuck was going to happen. Here we are. turned out great. It's all good. True or false, you came here with the cash, and then before you went gambling, Mickey took on a wild goose chase for a birthday present. So that's... I don't know who this person is who's asking the question to them, but basically they're interviewing both Kendall and Mike V, and they're answering questions about that night. Into some weird spots. (laughs) They could have killed me. You came here with a lot of money. What would you have to say to any of the haters online that don't think he's the real deal? It blew me away. Mike got to see it to believe it. You know, it's hard to prove things to people, but he won 15 times in a row. Okay, let, let's stop right here. We're going to hear more from Mike V, or I'm going to read you more from Mike V shortly. That was the guy who said, this is you know, for the haters and for those that don't believe it, but we saw him win 15 times in a row. 
Okay, now was this all recorded live? Obviously not. This was something that Mickey posted to his Instagram after the fact. So let's say Mickey had lost all of the money that they had brought. Would they have done an Instagram video saying, yeah, this is Kendall Williams, the Dodgers, and uh, Mickey ruined my life? Yeah, this is Mike V. Uh, he ruined my life too. Yeah, he lost all the money I brought. Like th- That video would have never been made. So that's the first thing, is that anybody can have a winning gambling session even when they're not playing positive expectation. Anyone can have a single winning gambling session. And if you're only posting the testimonials from those of, that, that came one time with you and you won, it's not going to be hard to find some people like that if you take enough people with you to gamble. That is not proof that you're an overall winner or that you're winning money for more people than losing. It just means that certain people are getting lucky and you're winning money for them. And those are the people that we're hearing from. So that's the first obvious problem and saying, well, I watched him win 15 hands in a row. Well, that's dumb luck. There's really no way to win 15 hands in a row in anything unless you just get lucky. You can put yourself in a position to win more than you lose. The whole point of advantage play is to have a greater than 50% chance of winning every time you put money out there. But, you know, it, it, there's nothing you can do to make yourself win 15 hands in a row. So if, if something like that's happening, you're just getting lucky. That's not the proof that you're beating the game. That's proof that you, that you just had a very lucky streak that someone witnessed. Go into this with the same mindset every time. No, nah, I mean, I got different mindsets depending on, like, some of the slight, like, variables. Like that, That's Mickey talking. Is what people's objectives are. Um, they had a good time. Everybody went into it pretty much understanding, like, we are gambling and nothing's a guarantee, but being an advantage background player, I have the best odds at anybody else gambling. What? Wait, what, 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 what? Hold on. Being an advantage baccarat player? <laughs> okay, let's go on here. To become a winner, and uh, when everybody like really seemed to believe that in their heart and they understood all the aspects of it, I felt really comfortable going into it and saying like, "We're just going to give it our best," you know, which I did, and and you know, statistically speaking, is exactly what had played out, and, and we did win. Now they're showing them bagging the money at the cage. Massive money. A lot of people think that this is bullshit. They think that this is this is an act. That this is they're fucking actors. What do you have to say to the people out there that don't it's believe this? It's not bullshit. If you believe that, you're stupid. Okay, so that's Kendall Williams, and that's the end of the video. Okay, so before we get going with all this, I want to talk about this Kendall Williams. We'll get to this Mike V, the other guy who brought the money later, but Kendall Williams is a minor league pitcher with the Dodgers. He is fairly well rated as far as minor league prospects. So it's not super unlikely that he'll make the majors. However, it's not anywhere near a sure thing either. He is not a very top prospect, but he's also not a fringe prospect. He's kind of uh, in the upper echelon of prospects last I looked. Also, there's a lot that can happen. A lot of times there's really, really good prospects who just turn out not to be that good and never improve and just do not become major league quality players. And eventually they are dropped and their career is over before it begins. There's also the reverse where people who are not very big prospects end up uh, becoming big stars. So it goes both ways. Of course, a top prospect is much more likely to become a top player than someone who's a fringe prospect. 
So like uh, take someone like Bryce Harper, there was a lot of excitement about him from the very start. And, and of course, uh, he's a great player and he won the MVP this year. So obviously someone like Bryce Harper's caliber has a very high chance to make the majors. But, you know, even these middle high level prospects, a lot of times uh, never see the majors. Now, the reason I'm having this discussion here is because you've got to think about Kendall Williams and what his future holds. Now, the way it works in baseball is that these players signed to minor league contracts tend to get a fairly large signing bonus. When I say fairly large, I don't mean tens of millions of dollars. I mean something like $1 million around there, depending on how good they are. Sometimes it'll be more, sometimes it'll be less. But they, a lot of times, some prospects who aren't that great will get some pretty good signing bonuses that are good money for the moment, but that will never set them up for life. So in Kendall Williams' case, he got a $1.5 million signing bonus with the Toronto uh, Blue Jays. And as I mentioned, he got uh, traded to the Dodgers in 2020 for pitcher Ross Stripling, who was an existing major leaguer. So that's why he's on the Dodgers at the moment. He didn't get that signing bonus in the Dodgers, but nevertheless, he got $1.5 million as a signing bonus. Now, he did have to pay taxes on that, and his agent gets a cut, but he still came away with some decent money there. Not huge money, but with some pretty good money. The problem is, in the minors, you're paid shit. Minor leaguers make very, very little money. Like, very little money. I don't mean by athlete standards. I mean by anyone's standards. You you would not want the minor league salary as your salary. Now, you're not getting $1.5 million signing bonuses at your job, but the salary in the minor league sucks. So as a minor league player, what you want to do is you want to make sure you don't blow your signing bonus. You want to make sure that your signing bonus can be saved and used to support you for a while while you're trying to make the majors, and that if you fail, you still have plenty of money to start another career up, and uh, you'll have a lot of savings in the background. The problem is, these are not older, mature people who are getting these signing bonuses. It's kids. You know, it's people right out of high school for the most part. So usually kids of that age do not have very good money management skills, and usually these signing bonuses get blown pretty fast. It's much more the exception than the rule that a minor league player will be very careful with his signing bonus money. Also, a lot of them are unrealistic about their chances to make the majors, and they figured, hey, I I can live well for now because I'm going to make the majors and make tons of money one day, but then the truth is most of them don't make it. So Kendall Williams, he could still make it, but I will say that his first full minor league season, he played uh, a little bit in the rookie league, the, the rookie minor league, and he did very well, but he only pitched in like six games. But in a much uh, longer season, and I, at, at the single A level, which is one above the rookie league, he didn't have that great of a year. It wasn't a disaster. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't that good. There's still plenty of time. He's 21. But it was not something that really suggests that uh, he's going to have an easy path to the majors. He's got to improve, and he's got to do a lot better than he did in that uh, first season. He he didn't play in 20 because of COVID. No minor leaguers did. But in 21, he didn't do all that great. He had a very mediocre season with the Dodgers minor league club at single A. So we'll see what happens in 22. And sometimes this happens. Sometimes a prospect will just uh, not do very well 
in in their first single A year and then rapidly improve, it's possible that he will be a factor on the Dodgers going forward or maybe even with a different team. He does have a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, so that's good. That's what is really liked about him at the moment. But there's a decent chance he'll never throw a major league pitch, or there's a chance that he will, but he'll barely be up and he won't do that well and he'll never get a major league career going. If he does get a major league career going, it's no big deal if he blows that $1.5 million. However, if he never makes the majors, then him losing that $1.5 million is is a pretty big tragedy. It's pretty common, but it's a pretty big personal tragedy, financially at least, for one of these minor leaguers to blow their signing bonus and then never make the majors. Now, if you blow it from just kind of irresponsible spending, well, that's that's one thing. But if you're scammed out of it, oh, that's that's really bad. So I'm watching this guy, and of course, I'm a big Dodgers fan. I hadn't heard of him before, but I, I mean, I, I probably read his name when Stripling was traded because I did follow that, but I didn't remember the name Kendall Williams. But of course, I took note of it, and I was thinking, wow, I, I hope this kid isn't getting scammed here. Because if he is, that's going to just make me feel bad as a Dodger fan. And just to watch this happen to a 21-year-old, it just kind of makes me feel shitty, even though I have nothing to do with it. So anyway, I looked at Kendall Williams' Twitter, and I'm already seeing some clues that things aren't going that well. On December 19th, remember this is a, a while after he posted that video, that Mickey posted that video, the video Mickey posted that I just played you was... Uh, so November 1st, and it was a little while ago. So December 19th, about seven weeks later, here is something that uh, Kendall Williams posted on his own on Twitter that might be indicating that he's getting short on funds. He tweeted, 2019 GMC Black Widow for sale. DM if interested. And it looks like a, a pretty nice truck, this uh, 2019 GMC Black Widow. Now, what are those worth right now? Well, taking a look just by uh, Googling how much a uh, 2019 Black Widow is worth, uh, I see one here being sold for uh, 66K. This is used, you know? So I don't know how much he bought it new, but this isn't a piece of crap car. Now, he bought this obviously uh, about two years ago probably shortly after he got his signing bonus. Remember, it's a 2019, that's when he got his signing bonus. So why is he selling this? Why is he selling this 2019 truck in 2021? Maybe he wants to get a new car, but it also could be that he needs the money. He also made a number of posts about uh, learning from adversity. Things don't seem to be going that great for him, and it couldn't be baseball-related because they're not playing right now. Baseball doesn't play in the winter. So he has some weird tweets that seem to be indicating that there's a problem on December 21st, now just uh, five days ago. There is no better teacher than adversity. Every loss, every heartbreak, every defeat contains its own seed on how to improve your performance in the future. Now, why is he writing this on December 21st? It's not like he's been released from the Dodgers. It's not like he just had a bad outing where he got hit for eight runs in one inning. He's not playing right now. So why would he go post this if this isn't from some other form of adversity that has nothing to do with baseball? I know I'm just guessing here, but I'm a little worried that his money's been chunked off. And I, I think we might find out about this 
in not too long. So that's Kendall Williams. I don't have anything more to say about him at the moment. But what about Mike V? What's his story? Well, Mike V, remember, he was saying that people think this bullshit and he's been, uh, he watched Mickey win 15 times in a row, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Mike V is not a happy camper. Well, I was just guessing about Kendall that maybe he's out of money because he's selling his truck and talking about adversity. Mike V is definitely saying that he lost money with Mickey. First of all, Mike V started some weird websites about the whole thing. I don't even completely understand them. But he started uh, a Reddit thread, which was called, Here You Can Share Your your Staking Experience If You Staked With Mickey Maz. And then he made three websites. Mike V did. One called MickeyMaz.com, M-I-K-K-I-M-A-S-E.com. Then there's Mikhail Maz, M-I-K-A-E-L-M-A-S-E.com. And then there's Dirty Goth Boy, that's D-I-R-T-Y-G-O-T-H-B-O-I, Dirty Goth Boy with an I at the end, .co. These are all the same site. If you click on them, they're all the exact same site. And it seems to be some sort of blog he's setting up that kind of looks like it's Mickey's site, but it isn't. Now, it does clearly say it's not Mickey's site. It's not affiliated with him. But it has a link called Experiences, where you're supposed to read about experiences with being staked, with staking Mickey. And he has three experiences posted there, October 20th, November 7th, December 16th. Presumably, October 20th was the first one that we saw on that video from November 1st. But he hasn't filled them in yet. They're like placeholders. So there's nothing that interesting on the site. You can look at the structure of it, but there's nothing that interesting up there. But this is put up by that Mike V guy. This is not put up by Mickey, and it's very clear that this is not affiliated with Mickey. They put that right at the top. But it's definitely trying to catch people who are Googling Mickey's name. But what does that really mean? Well, people asked that on Reddit. He posted on Reddit, Mike V, as Mike Makes It Happen. That's his name on Reddit. And he wrote about Mickey. He took off with 150K with no explanation. Uh-oh. 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 Yeah. Mike V, who was vouching for him on November 1st, now on uh, December 24th was saying he took off with 150K for me personally with no explanation. Someone said back, no way that's true. Did you lawyer up? What are you doing to get the money back? I don't know why you could say no way that's true. (laughs) It could easily be true. So then Mike V said back, it was just this week. Before I share my three experiences, two wins and one loss, presumably uh, the two wins were the ones that he did first and the one loss was the last one. I'm giving him time to explain and see what's going on. I don't have the facts that the 150K this third time was even played. Mm, So... Mike V is saying that he's not even sure if this 150K that disappeared was even really played in the casino or if just Mickey stole it. So then someone wrote back to Mike and said, I mean, it isn't as simple as he just lost this time. Seems like he can fall back on that excuse no matter what. It's gambling. Nothing's guaranteed. Granted, it could also be a convenient cover for just stealing it. But how could you hope to prove otherwise? That's a good question. So then Mike said back, yeah, he took it and four days later said it wasn't salvageable, whatever that means. <laughs> oh, boy. 
He gave me specific details about how it would be played, and his coach was going to notify once they played. None of that happened. So according to Mike V, and we, we haven't heard back from Mickey on this. This is just one side, but still, according to Mike V on Reddit, that Mickey took this 150K, claimed that he and his coach were going to let him know when they're going to play the money in the casino, and then just uh, four days passed hearing nothing, and then he was told, uh, yeah, uh, it's not salvageable. It's gone. Bye-bye. <laughs> they wouldn't explain what that meant not salvageable. Now, someone asked him about the Spencer video. You may say, what Spencer video? Well, I'm going to play the Spencer video and comment on it shortly. There are actually two Spencer videos. We're going to talk about that. And I'll introduce to you who the Spencer character is. But he was saying that he was asked to keep quiet regarding the Spencer video. Because someone asked him... Uh, Interesting timing with this video just getting posted, linking to the second of the two Spencer videos. And uh, Mike said, basically, I was asking my mouth shut during the interview with Spencer. And then someone asked him, interesting, did you? And Mike said, basically, till now. And then the person asked back, wonder if it was just your story or if, if other people came forward that caused Spencer to make his comment under that video. Maybe reach out to Spencer and see if he will tell your story. It won't help if you recoup your losses, but uh, help others avoid it. And he said, I have no idea. I haven't talked to Spencer about it. By the way, uh, Spencer has reached out to him. I can tell you that for sure. Anyway, we'll get to the Spencer video in a second. But... Mike is making some uh, pretty serious allegations here, and he is no longer confident with Mickey like he was uh, in early November. It's not 100% guaranteed that the person posting on Reddit is actually Mike V, but do I believe it's Mike V? Yes, I believe it's Mike V. I think it's highly unlikely that it is a fake Mike V. In fact, uh, I think we would have heard by now if that was a fake. And also that account is not new. The account was uh, around for a while on Reddit and it seems to be the same guy. So it's very unlikely to be a fake Mike V. It seems to be really be the same guy from everything I can see. So we haven't heard Mickey's response to this. I, I look forward to hearing that if we get one. But I'm going to play to you the second of the two Spencer videos. The Spencer videos are by a guy named Spencer Cornelia. Spencer is kind of new in the whole gambling scene. And Spencer looks like a younger guy, maybe around 30 years old or so. Definitely way younger than I am. And uh, he has a lot of subscribers on YouTube. He's 361,000 subscribers. And I hadn't heard of him until recently. And he built his channel by exposing scammers on the internet, mainly sports tout scammers. Sports tout scammers are guys who claim to have winning sports picks that they sell you for a lot of money and they're full of crap. So there are a lot of sports touts out there. There have been for decades. And Spencer was going after a lot of them. And to be honest, he was going after a lot of low-hanging fruit, uh, obvious scammers that just haven't been exposed in this way that much. You know, there's been talk about them being scammers, but like he, he does one after another after another. And I mean, he jumped on a, on a good topic because while anyone aware of the sports betting industry 
knows about these touts, knows about these scam touts. Um, I don't know of a high-profile channel that exposes these like Spencer has been doing. Spencer, and I, I talked to him a little bit, so that, that's where I'm getting this information. He is not a longtime figure in gambling. I knew he couldn't be that long time because he doesn't look that old. But I thought maybe he was kind of like an under-the-radar advantage player or under-the-radar plus EV sports better that I just hadn't heard of. So I asked him, I said right away, are, are you someone from the advantage play gambling community that I just never ran into? And he said, no, I'm actually not. I'm just kind of new to the whole thing. I just mainly use my channel to expose these people because I think it's interesting and I think the viewers will find it interesting. Spencer appears to be somebody who is just trying to build an audience on his channel and has done a pretty good job with it. And in fact, he even made one video at one point explaining that this really turned his life around, that he's, he's actually making good money from this channel and that this has been very good for him. So he, he was basically saying, hey, this is a win-win. I'm exposing these guys. I'm getting a lot of eyeballs on it. So these scammers are not uh, victimizing as many people. And at the same time, I, I'm making more money than I ever have before. So everybody's winning here except the scammers. Uh, he has gotten some pushback, as you might imagine. Uh, one guy is suing him. He told me some about that, but I don't know if that's supposed to be public, so I won't make it public. But he has been public that he's getting sued, not by Mickey, but by uh, one of the people that he accused of scamming. And he is dealing with that. And he's had others calling him names and uh, accusing him of things. But, uh, you know, that that's par for the course when you're going to expose people who are behaving badly. In fact, I've dealt with that myself, but unlike Spencer, I haven't been making money from it. So maybe he's the smarter one here in the way he's approaching it. Anyway, Spencer has rapidly grown his channel and people enjoy his videos. He does a good job with them. They're usually about 15 minutes long, sometimes a bit shorter, sometimes a bit longer. And he packs a lot of information into that 15 minutes and he also makes them somewhat humorous, and he kind of does it with a snarky, sarcastic style, and he's also pretty good at breaking it down in terms everybody can understand, so you don't have to be an expert on the sports betting industry or any of these other industries that he's exposing to understand what he's talking about. So the, a, a very average person who knows nothing about this stuff can watch it and be informed and entertained. So he does a good job with these videos, I'll give him that. And... As a result, his channel has grown very much, so he's done it right. So he did a video on December 17th about Mickey that got more views than uh, any of his other videos. He ended up getting uh, 338,000 views as of right now on that video. This is in less than nine days, and it's called Is Mickey Legit? Now, I'm going to play the very beginning of this video, but I'm not going to play the whole thing or anywhere near the whole thing, because I, I've already... I, I'm going to explain what Mickey's doing in my own words beyond what I've already kind of indicated to you guys here. But I'll, I'll play you the very beginning of how it started, and you'll, you'll get an idea how this proceeds. A couple weeks ago, someone sent me an Instagram account that claimed to be helping people win millions gambling at the casinos. I decided to check it out to see if it's legit. Kendall Williams here, right-handed pitcher with the Dodgers. Mike V, CEO of NS Modern, gave Mickey 150K. He racked it up to 373,000. Profit, 200,000. This was the first video I saw from this account, and my skepticism was high from the jump. Whenever I feel like I'm getting pitched for someone to make extraordinary amounts of money, for me, my content senses are going through the roof. Okay, so 
I'm not going to play the rest of this video, but it's basically him going through this little Instagram video, commenting on it, then playing another video where Mickey did an interview and commenting on it, and then saying that he found Mickey's real name, which is not Mickey Moss. It's, it's, he found out what his real name is. And then while he didn't give the name out in the video, he explained how he deduced the name. And from his research, he couldn't find that some of Mickey's claims of his life outside of gambling matched up with what he was saying. So that was the first video that was 17 and a half minutes long. And it really put Spencer on the map as far as people taking note of him in the gambling world. Now, you may say, wait a minute, I thought he was doing a bunch of other videos before about sports touts. Yes, he was. But this wasn't that interesting to the gambling world because he was doing it about people that everyone was aware of were shady. So while it's interesting to the average YouTube viewer, for the rest of us, we go, yeah, yeah, we, we know this guy's a phony. We've known this for years. So people weren't going, oh, wow, look at this cool video exposing such and such guy. Yeah, we, yeah we've known about this guy. Yeah, no big deal. So that, that's the way those of us kind of in the know would have seen these videos. So as a result, they weren't well shared among gambling social media. And I hadn't seen them. Well, the thing with Mickey is different. This was really the first real major attention given to Mickey. I mean, yeah, there were some posts on uh, forums about him and some posts on Reddit about him, but this this one was going over someone who's relatively new on the scene, and Spencer was going over a number of things that he had noticed and even researched. So this was of interest to a lot of people, myself included. This was no longer just rehashing things we've known about uh, scammy sports touts that go back years. So this really got Spencer a lot of attention. By the way, Spencer also did a video on Christopher Mitchell recently. <laughs> so uh, That's actually when I first heard of him. It wasn't even about Mickey. It was about Christopher Mitchell. But I will say the Christopher Mitchell one didn't get a tremendous amount of attention. This, this one got a lot more. The Christopher Mitchell video was kind of funny. But, uh, you know, Mickey's a lot more interesting than Christopher Mitchell. Christopher Mitchell's kind of more entertaining to watch and laugh at. But you can tell that Christopher Mitchell's a very low-rent scammer. Whereas uh, whatever's going on with Mickey is, is a much more high stakes. So he's a much more interesting person to delve into and discuss than Christopher Mitchell, who's pretty much just a clown. He's a scammy clown, but nevertheless, he's a clown. So back to Mickey. So this really put Spencer on the map and a number of gamblers reached out to Spencer to say, hey, we want to talk about this. And Spencer has been rapidly learning more and more about the community from people that have reached out to him as a result of this uh, first Mickey video, including me. I, I reached out to him after this first Mickey video. You may ask, well, how are all these people finding him? Well, on YouTube, some people make their address accessible, their email address accessible, and others don't. So Spencer does, and anybody who goes to his YouTube channel, which is Spencer Cornelia, C-O-R-N-E-L-I-A, and I believe that's his real name, Spencer Cornelia. And uh, you can go to the About page, and there's his email right there. So it's not hard to find. And I reached out to him. I told him who I am. Uh, maybe we'll even have Spencer on the show at one point. I, I even discussed this with him, but I, I could easily see him coming on here. So uh, we'll see if he ever has any interest in that. 
Uh, as I said, he's he's relatively new to the scene, and I've I've been discussing a few things with him. But regarding Mickey, something surprising that Spencer told me was that he was going to do a second video about Mickey, and the day that I was emailing with him, that he had just gotten back from spending the day with him. Hmm. He had just spent 17 and a half minutes trashing Mickey, saying he didn't believe him, that while he can't prove that Mickey's full of crap, the video was basically 17 and a half minutes of strongly implying that Mickey was full of crap and that something was wrong and that none of his claims were adding up. So instead of Mickey coming after Spencer, like notice the number of these other people that Spencer bashed on his videos, called him names, one's even suing him. Mickey didn't do any of that. Mickey said, hey, man, how do you like to meet up with me and I'll show you I'm legit? And Spencer's like, yeah, okay. And they were both there in Las Vegas. I don't know if Mickey has a place in Vegas. I, I know he's from L.A. He was Before that, he was from New Jersey. But I know he's presently living in L.A. I don't know if he's got a Vegas place, too. But uh, Mickey was there in Vegas, and Spencer lives in Vegas. So he said to Spencer, hey, you want to meet up? I'll show you everything's legit. And Spencer said, sure. So Spencer was very excited about that, and he was particularly excited because everyone was so interested in his first Mickey video that he thought, wow, imagine if I spend the entire day with this guy and then come back and report on my findings. That's going to really blow this channel up because nobody else has been able to do this. You know, here I'm skeptical of the guy and the guy lets me come spend a day with him. Wow. So he was very excited about that and he had just spent the day with him. So I asked Spencer, I said, well, how did that go? What was that like? I'm really looking forward to that follow-up video you're about to do. And he said, actually, I was surprised the guy was really cool. Whoa. That did not sound like a skeptical video was coming up. That didn't sound like he's going to be tearing into him in the second video. And this is to me privately. This was not something he's saying in public to pacify Mickey. This is, he's telling me this privately. Yeah, the guy was really cool. I'm like, well, that's, that's not what I expected to hear. At least not privately. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll look forward to seeing your video tomorrow. That was this past week. Let me get back a little bit here and talk about uh, what some of Mickey's claims were. And these claims were made, a lot of which were in an interview he did with somebody else. And among other things, he claims that, number one, he beats the casinos. And he's won millions of dollars at the casinos that he wins for the most part, uh, the vast majority of the time. That, yeah, occasionally he loses, but it's uncommon. He doesn't win 100%. He even went as far to say that anyone who claims he wins 100% of the time is a liar, which is funny because that's what Christopher Mitchell claims. But he says that you can win a very high percentage, just not 100. That's totally not true, by the way. Anyone who claims that is lying. It's kind of like a sports better who claims he's hitting like 75% of his plays. Also not possible. Unless they're betting like super high favorites, which it's not going to pay anywhere near even money. But like anyone who's betting on spread plays on sports and claims they're hitting 75% long-term, 70% long-term, they're not, they're lying, they're scams. So similarly, anyone who claims they're beating the casino in just about every session, but occasionally they lose, 
is full of crap. So anyway, Mickey said that to a different person interviewing him. Mickey also said that where he got his money before was that he owned 300 pharmacies and that he doesn't have them anymore, that he uh, sold or gave away all 300 pharmacies. (laughs) (laughs) This is on a previous interview. He also said that he was banned from casinos for uh, winning too much. I'll play a little part of this one. Every week I'd go for anywhere from like two to f- two to four to five days, whatever, in Vegas. So I was immediately spending ha- living half Vegas and half LA. <clears throat> and I was winning pretty good. And in the beginning, it was like when 20000 to 50000 And that was pretty tight. You know, I was like, I don't need this money. Cover- they give me everything for free now. Comped. And I like made 20 to 50 bands this weekend. No doubt. Right. Then I was like, let me play a little bigger. And then I was winning like, 100, 200, 300,000 in, in, in those couple of days. And I was like, I said, I think I'm on to something here. And I was doing it like every week, kind of. And I was like, I'm kind of on to something. And I said, this is becoming so much money now that I'm risking and rewarding that I should really pay attention to what I got going on here. Huh. I said, I always knew that I was like maybe above average player, but this is enough money where I really should focus. And your game's Baccarat? So my number one game is Baccarat, but it used to be Blackjack and more specifically Double Deck Blackjack. And you were counting cards? Not counting cards. Uh, is that like extremely hard to pull off these days? <laughs> it's not impossible to do. People do it, and they usually always are caught doing it. I mean, the, the security systems and the skill checks in casinos are so above and beyond that. I mean, th- that last part's true. <laughs> he says he, he made all this money in Blackjack not counting cards. That, that, that's funny. And anyway, let, let's listen a little bit more. This is uh, this other interview I'm talking about. This is not Spencer. Um, countries, governments actually contract to secure, uh, casino security to mm-hmm. hire them to do national security. I mean, that's how advanced a lot of them are. That makes sense. Yeah, so I'm not counting cards. Uh, I am really good at math, and, and I am really an emotionally sound guy in such regard. I, I do have discipline in that. So I think I'm able to make clear-headed decisions when a lot of other players can't because they're getting emotional Uh as well as they make silly decisions and like convince themselves that they have a feeling about something but let me okay none of this matters if you're negative expectation you can be the most disciplined player in the world if you're playing a negative expectation game then you're going to lose not only long term but also medium term right now feelings have no regard to math right but I'm also like hearing you, you were talking about like how your coach, your gambling coach advises you. And I'm listening to you talk about, this was at the poker game the other day, and you're basically kind of saying like, he'll instruct me on like, okay, when I'm feeling good or if I'm in the right state of mind to get, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I don't know anything about Baccarat, but I'm thinking, these are all just casino games. The house always has an edge. No matter what kind of pattern you bet in, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't really matter because they always have the edge. And if you just keep playing in the long term, you're always going to lose. I don't know. Like, what, what do you say? I'm sure you've had plenty of people say that to you. I'm super stoked you just said that. So I'm going to be the end-all, be-all of that doubt that everybody in the world gives me. Okay. If that was true, then why am I banned from the city of Las Vegas gaming? I mean, yes. To me, that is the greatest testament to you being something special at gambling is that they would be willing to ban you because I know... False. False. There's a lot of reasons you could be banned. It could be because you're an advantage player in beating them. It can also be that it's the opposite. The biggest whale of all time, Terrence Watanabe. Google him. Terrence Watanabe. 
the biggest whale of all time, who made huge money for Caesars in 2007, was first chunking it off at the win. And then Steve Wynn himself called in Terrence Watanabe and said, I am very worried that you are a problem gambler. And in fact, Nevada gaming requires that we ban problem gamblers. But since you are gambling at such high limits here, I wanted to meet with you myself and talk to you about your gambling. And I want to determine myself if you're a problem gambler. So he had a conversation with Terrence Watanabe. And at the end of the conversation, Steve said to him, well, I'm sorry, Terrence, but I believe you're a problem gambler, so we're going to have to ban you from the property. And they banned Terrence Watanabe, the biggest whale of all time. Not only was he betting huge, but he was awful at every game he played. I mean, just absolutely awful. And also was apparently getting hopped up on some substances or whatever. But whatever it was, he was just absolutely terrible. And what did he do? Moved his action over to Caesars, chunked off like $60 million, then got credit for like another $60 million that they didn't realize he couldn't cover, and chunked that off. And then there was a lawsuit where Caesars was suing him for the giant marker he had that he couldn't pay off, and then he was suing them back for applying him on uh, drugs and alcohol to keep him in this uh, state where he was just a terrible player. And eventually there was a settlement where both just kind of walk away, where Caesars keeps the money they won from him, but uh, he also doesn't know anything further. So you can Google it, Terrence Watanabe. It's a very interesting story from 2007. Biggest whale of all time from Vegas. And he was banned from the win for being a tremendously losing gambler. But that's not the only reason you can be banned. You can be banned for behavioral reasons. There's a lot of people who are banned from casinos because of bad behavior. Now, the more you chunk off in the casinos, the more they will tolerate from you. But there is a limit. So if you are too much of a headache, they will get rid of you at certain properties, even if you do lose a lot of money there. So it does not mean you're crushing the casinos just because you're getting banned. No, they ban very few sports gamblers, for instance, but they do ban some sports gamblers that they really feel like have a, a real edge. So there's been uh, four Baccarat players in history to be banned from the game Baccarat. Uh-huh. Um, two out of the four were accused, possibly caught doing what the casinos refer to as cheating, right? My opinion on it uh, is not relevant, but again, I'd love to see the casinos burn. So if it was up to me as a gambler... I would love to see those two Baccarat players continue playing, right? Right. So that... The- I believe he's talking about Ivy and his partner here. Anyway, I would stop this here. This is on a YouTube show called No Jumper, if you want to watch this. But you hear what he's saying. He's saying that he was banned because he's one of the very few people who can beat Baccarat. And that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of reasons one can be banned. A lot of reasons. There's even been people who've been banned from just doing drugs on property. Some properties will catch you uh, doing drugs in the parking lot or somewhere in a common area, even in your room. And some properties are very hard line about that and will say, no, we don't want you here. Goodbye. Now, again, a lot of this still has to do with your level of play and how much they'll tolerate from you. But you can't just say, well, this place banned me. Therefore, I'm an advantage player. By the way, There are also cases where people get banned when they're negative expectation players, 
but they do some things which kind of indicate they might be a positive expectation player, and the casino just bans them because they don't want to have to wait around to find out. So I actually have known some blackjack card counters who suck at it and who I would love to invite to any casino I own to come play, but they do have some of the basics of card counting down in their head, and they get banned a few places anyway, and they're so proud of themselves that they get banned. Oh, look, they're afraid of me. They're banning me because they can't beat me. And no, they're just banning you because they ban anyone who has any appearance of being a card counter. So a bunch of twos, threes, and fours come out of the deck, and then you multiply your bet by five, and they go, up. Oh, that's a card counter, and they kick him. And in reality, this is a negative expectation player that they just don't realize he is. Mickey claims to have been banned from a lot of casinos because he beats them for so much. And at the same time, notice he is asking for people to put up money to play for him, for him to play using their money, which doesn't make any sense. So you would also think that he would just absolutely refuse to play for anybody if the case is that he has so much, he's winning so much that he just, he'll say to others, look, I'll, I'll coach you, but you, you, I'm not going to play for you. But he doesn't do that, which of course is weird. So there's a lot of weird elements to this whole thing. And then there's the whole claim about having 300 pharmacies and having sold them and give them away. And of course, the question is, where did all the money come from? Now, in what I've looked at, and I haven't looked at enough yet, but from what I looked at, I believe he's 30 years old. And where is he getting all this money? Because I will tell you, there is a lot of money being gambled. These huge stacks of cash, these big stacks of high denomination chips, I believe they're real or mostly real. I believe there is a lot of money behind him. So where is that coming from? I mean, anyone can make up stories, but if you got actual money and you're relatively young like he is, then where does it come from? Where did he get it? Maybe he did own 300 pharmacies, you may think. So we're going to get into that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the second Spencer video. I'm going to play parts of it. It's a 28-minute video, but I'm not going to play anywhere near 28 minutes. And I will comment on it. Now, as it goes... Keep in mind what Spencer said to me. Spencer said to me personally that Mickey was a cool guy and he was surprised. By the way, I'm not that surprised Mickey's a cool guy. I have a feeling if I hung out with Mickey, he'd be a cool guy. I think if you hung out with Mickey, he'd be a cool guy. By the way, in case you wonder what Mickey looks like, I mean, you can Google him, but he calls himself Dirty Goth Boy and <laughs> kind of does describe him. So he's got this long, kind of greasy-looking hair. He wears a kind of ski hat type thing. And he always has a uh, Star of David necklace on. He is Jewish, in case you're wondering. He's short. And he's got like a scraggly looking partial beard. So he does kind of look like someone who just doesn't care that much about his appearance. Just kind of a guy who just throws on whatever and doesn't give a crap. So I, th I think that's part of the whole look he's trying to put out. That's why he calls himself Dirty Goth Boy. And uh, by the way, similar to Dan Bilzerian, 
he claims that he bangs a whole lot of women. In fact, we're going to hear about that in the second video that Spencer had, and then we'll talk about that too, which of course is not as interesting as all the gambling stuff he's talking about and the people he's gambling for, but uh, worth touching on as well. So I'm going to play the second Spencer video for you. And keep in mind, again, that Spencer said that he was cool and that he enjoyed the day he spent with him. And then we will comment on all that. And then we're going to comment on uh, the reaction to Spencer's second video. But the the video is called Confronting Mickey in Person, parentheses Las Vegas. And this is on Spencer Cornelius' channel. It has 320,000 views already, so very well viewed. And we're going to hear... Spencer, who's, by the way, visiting Mickey in his expensive-looking hotel suite, and there's some girl there with Mickey. There's some other people there, too, but there's some girl there with Mickey who kind of looks like a porn star or stripper or something, but uh, I, I didn't quite get who exactly who she is. But Spencer and Mickey are sitting together in that hotel room and just talking. So let's listen to... Why Mickey claims that he really doesn't want to gamble for others. So it's true, but to be honest with you, I hate playing for other people. Um, I would like uh, avoid it at all costs if I could. So what happened was like some of my friends that want to like just be around me, like let's say we're going to dinner or whatever, I, I feel like gambling. So they'll come with me. They're like, hey, can you teach me? Can you show me? So I'm making some of my friends money, right? But we're friends. It's just like what we're doing on a night out. I'm not going to be like, you guys have to go away. You know, and do your own thing after dinner. I'm gonna play. So I started doing that, and some of like my famous friends, you know, started posting about it. So I started getting exposure. So I started getting harassed online from like st- all these strangers. Make me money, make me money, make me money. And the truth was, there was like never enough. I, I, you'll never. It's really hard to stake me enough where I'm winning enough where it has such a positive influence on my life. So I'm really not making any. I'm not, I'm not making enough money doing it. It's so much pressure. What if I lose for like one of these people who gave me their last money? You know, some people don't understand how gambling works. They just think I'm a money printing machine. So I really don't want to do it. But I was like, I'm getting the exposure that I'm doing it for my famous friends. I'm getting all this harassment that I don't want to help the little guys. So I was like, you know what? Screw it, man. If it helps them and it eases up on all my harassment, I'll just give an opportunity for me to allow strangers also to, to stake me. And that- okay, so let's talk about that. It's actually not quite as ridiculous as it might sound from this explanation. You may say, oh, come on, that's totally full of crap. Well, I will say, as a professional gambler for the last two decades, that I have friends who are non-gamblers or recreational gamblers who say, oh, can you play for me? And I go, what do you mean? They go, well, can I give you some money to play poker with? I go, well, that doesn't really work that way. Like, <laughs> um, If you were to give me money to play poker with, you'd have to give me the entire bankroll I'm going to be playing with in that session. Otherwise, it would be mixing with my money. It would be impossible to say whose money is whose. And they're kind of confused. And then, <laughs> and then they'll say well, can I give you money to play blackjack with? I'm like, I'm trying to explain it's not that simple. They can't just say, you know, play blackjack with this $100, play poker with this $100. You can't do that, okay? Like, I guess in a tournament you can, because you can buy a finite piece of it, but in a cash game it doesn't work that way. So I have to explain to them it doesn't work. They, they don't quite believe me. They think I'm just trying to be selfish and make all the money for myself. I can tell. Like, I, I hate having those conversations. I did once actually play for somebody, and this was after I kept objecting and saying I don't want to, but a guy that I know who, again, isn't part of the gambling world at all, just a 
friend I made, and uh, this is probably close to 10 years ago now, but we were uh, walking through a Vegas casino when he was visiting Vegas, and he's like, hey, hey, can you play poker for me? So I tried to explain again why this doesn't work, but he kept shoving $200 in my face and wanting me to go sit in this low-stakes poker game. It wasn't even a, in a casino that has a big poker room. It was like one that had like one table going, like a one-two-no limit or something. And I kept saying, look, I don't really want to do this. And saying, anyway, at least $200 is a okay buy-in for one-two-no limit to where at least I could sit with that entire 200 and none of my own money, play a little bit, and whatever I leave with, I'll just give back to him. So at least this was an easier way to do it rather than, like, you can't give me 200 and say, oh, go play 4080, hold him with this, because that, that doesn't work for the reasons I just said. So I took his 200. I was committed not to mix my own money with it. If I busted the 200, I was going to leave. If I won some, I was going to leave. It also wasn't going to be a long session. I wanted to do it for hours playing one, two, no limit. I was going to play a little bit. And whatever happened, happened. Anyway, um, I, I ended up uh, winning. I think I think I doubled the money, and I think I kind of got lucky in one hand to do it. <laughs> I got involved in some big pot at one point, and I got lucky, and I'd already been there for like half an hour while he and another guy were just standing there watching. So I, I kind of felt like I'd been there enough, and I actually stood and left with a $200 profit, and he was so happy about this. And the other people at the table were pissed. They thought I was a hidden runner. They should only know that like I played for way higher stakes than that. But I didn't explain anything to anybody. Just too bad if they don't like that I hit and ran. <laughs> but uh, um, I gave him his profit. He was thrilled. And that was the only time, to my knowledge or to my memory, that I actually played for somebody. But I really didn't like doing it. And I did kind of feel like if I lose this, even though this guy wasn't broke or anything, so it's not like I was losing his case $200, I, I still would have felt bad. I, I, I think that he was kind of looking at me like, oh, Todd's a professional poker player. He's just going to effortlessly turn this into more money. He just kind of pictures I just sit there every day and just crush, which I don't. You know, Some days I, I do well and some days I lose. Some days I sit in a good game and I lose. In fact, uh, guess what? Before this radio show, I was playing in a very good poker game online and I lost. So, you know, that happens. And it sucks and it's frustrating, but that, that's just part of playing poker. So fortunately in that session, I won for the guy, but I, I did have it on my mind the whole time. Like, ah, I don't really want to do this. And what if I lose? And people don't understand. So he's kind of explaining this here. Mickey is saying here, look, I, I don't really want to do this, but... Uh, uh, you know, people don't understand how gambling works, that you lose sometimes, and uh, also, like, if, if I just do it for the people who can afford to put up enough money for what I want to play, then the little guy sees this and thinks I'm just trying to make the rich richer, and I look arrogant, so now, now I'm taking it from everybody. So, on the surface, this can actually seem like it's a reasonable answer, but let me tell you where this breaks down. He's not saying that he's taking very small money from strangers. It's not like he's saying, well, from the people who can afford it, I take hundreds of thousands and, and will try to gamble with that. But I'm also taking small amounts and playing at low stakes for the little guy that just wants me to win a li little bit for him. So, yeah, some strangers give me 500 bucks and say, do what you can with it, and I'll play a session at relatively low limits to run up his 500 somewhat. And I do it because I don't want to seem like a jerk and I'm just... But that's not what he's saying here. See, he, I, I've never seen any evidence that he has played low stakes. He doesn't say he plays low stakes. So this, this explanation doesn't make any sense. But let, let's go on. 
that's the only reason I did it, but honestly, it's like, I'd, I would not do it if I could. A big reason why I made the first video was because it appeared that he was asking for people to stake him with his gambling. I felt it was appropriate to see if he was legitimate or not. Well, hey. Okay, that, you know, that's exactly, that. that is a good goal for Spencer to have here, that he's uh, meeting up with Mickey to see if he really is legit. Hanging with Mickey for a few hours, I never got the belief that he was raising all of this money and taking people's last dollar and hoping to help them get rich. My interpretation was that he took very few people's money and it usually was a celebrity or influencer with a large amount of cash. Yeah, I actually signed up for your form online. Did you see it? This, okay. I don't check it myself. Oh, okay, yeah, I signed up because I wanted to see if there were any disclosures. This was during the period where I was kind of like, I was aware of you and researching and I was just curious at, like what type of terms there would be. Because gambling, I mean, I think you would agree there's a chance of losing money. Of course, right? yeah, of course. And I think that We've even talked on the phone. You said that there's been times where you've won money, but then you lost money before that. Yeah, yeah. And so can you explain that? Like, there's times when you're going to lose money, too? Yeah. yeah. Okay, before I get to his answer here, let me tell you a little problem here with this whole meetup that he had with Mickey in the second video he was going to be doing. And I've run into this myself in a different way. When you are detached from the person you are discussing it is a lot easier to be completely objective and critical about them because you don't have the slightest bit of emotional connection to them or their situation. A lot of people criticize the internet as being too impersonal. It's too easy to bash people. It's too easy to criticize people. It's too easy to naturally want to make people feel bad who say things you don't like. There's a lot of people who say things on the internet that they would not say in person and not just out of personal fear of getting beaten up or something like people just don't feel as comfortable being rude in person as they do on the internet. And this is a long criticism of the online world, the online communication world that uh, brings out a lot of ugly sides of people. And that's true. The problem is that when you meet up with someone and they're very nice to you, and they are very welcoming, and they're very non-confrontational, and they just seem like a very pleasant person to be around. It's hard to maintain the same zeal to be totally honest about them and to be looking for any holes in their stories or lies that they're telling. And I'm not even saying that someone who doesn't do this is being selfish. I'm saying that it's human nature, that if someone hasn't done anything to you personally, and Mickey hasn't done anything to Spencer personally, he's never harmed Spencer in any way, and if the person then treats you well when you spend time with them in person, it can be very difficult to bring yourself to then come out on the internet and bash them because you just have a positive memory of time you spent with the person and yeah, there's some people who are kind of sociopaths that don't really care and will just go from having a very good time with someone to just coming right back to the internet and saying nasty things about them. But uh, the typical human being is affected by that. The typical human being can be softened that way. And I have seen this myself. I haven't gone to meet up with someone who I previously said or implied was a scammer and then have them soften me but i have had it before where i have met or spent spent some time with someone who 
has done some things that people were critical of and that I was critical of. And then after having spent time with them, I feel less inclined to come back on this show or on my forum and continue coming at them. So while I don't go out there and retract what I previously said, I also feel less of a desire to come back and continue the criticism. And sometimes I'll catch myself and say, look, just because this person was nice to me when they happened to be around when you know I was hanging out with a friend and then someone invited that person along and, and they seemed really cool, like maybe I have to watch myself and say, hey, you know, I, I've got to make sure to continue the exact same path. Now, again, I've never taken back anything that I've said. I've never been sweet-talked into whitewashing what people have done in the past. But I will say, I've had to catch myself and say, hey, you know what? It's easy to cut this person additional slack because I've met them and spent some time with them, but I really shouldn't. But I'll tell you, it's hard. Now, if they've harmed me in some way, then it's a lot easier to continue with the same zeal, even if they have attempted to be nice to me, because then I can fall back on, yeah, well, look how they screwed me at this such and such time. But if the person hasn't done anything to me, it's a lot harder. In fact, I'll even go a little further. I've had people who I've criticized on this show that then at some point later, we interact even like on Twitter, and they're very nice. And then it is harder to come back and uh, come out here and, and continue exposing stuff they've done before. So I can understand this as someone who does something similar as what uh, Spencer does. You'll hear this as the video continues playing and I, and I play more clips of it, that Spencer is meeting Mickey on his home turf, not his actual home, but in his own hotel suite with his own friends there, that is Mickey's friends. And Mickey's kind of controlling all the terms. He's kind of controlling the atmosphere and the environment. And and uh, it's a lot easier to get someone to give you a friendly review when you're uh, bringing them into your suite among your friends and being very friendly to them and treating them very well. So... Uh, You'll hear as this goes on, that's kind of what happened here. And Spencer took some flack from it. And I understood how it happened. Some people say, oh, you know, I bet Mickey bribed him. I don't think so. I don't think so. I just think that it was hard for him to come at Mickey really hard, given that Mickey really was a cool guy when he met him. So let's go on uh, playing the remainder of this. You'll hear how Spencer... uh, could come at him with some more critical questions in response to what Mickey says and kind of doesn't, or at least we don't see it in the video, because, again, it's a lot harder to do when you're right there in the guy's suite rather than uh, going back and forth on the Internet or even having the person on the phone with you. Yeah, so uh, if anybody were to ever say they win 100% of the time, we can just, we don't even have, you don't even have to do an exposed video on them. We just, we already know what it is. You, yeah. you can't win 100%, right? But you can have like really high win rates. Uh, so I don't want to say what percentage mine is publicly, but, but, I, but I have one of the highest win rates of all time. Which- <laughs> 
this is what I mean. Like, you, you can't say you have one of the highest win rates of all time and you, you don't win 100%, but it's very, very, very high. No, that, that's not how advantage play works. Which is what put me in this position, why I'm banned everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of times what happens is uh, if the cars are not coming correctly immediately, it doesn't matter what math or what edge as a player I have or anything like that. Like, if the cars are just not there, they're just not there. If I'm dealt... Uh, a 20 and the dealer has black uh, a blackjack for example there's no nothing I can do even if I could tell the future and have x-ray vision there's no other than bet small that hand there's nothing I can do I could do to avoid losing that hand uh, if I could tell the future at that point maybe I just open two hands to avoid the ace going to the dealer but you understand what I'm saying so what happens a lot of not a lot of times but some of the times is I will lose some and as long as I stay on it and stay in the math, eventually the math catches on and we make it. So we need to have the bankroll there, which is also another reason it's hard for me to stake people. A lot of people want me to stake them with really small amounts of money, 100 bucks, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks. And it's hard to explain to all of these people, hey, that's more dangerous than giving me 100,000, right? With 100,000, we have so much room for error before the math catches on and we win. So I naturally have a skeptical eye. Okay, so before we go on here, that's another problem. Now, he is correct that if he's used to playing high stakes, you can't really get small stakes from people and still play high stakes. It doesn't make any sense. And that's the problem I was running into. And people were like, hey, play poker for me. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I can't take $200 and play poker for you. So I understand that part. But he's saying he needs the 100000 to give himself wiggle room if he runs bad at the beginning and needs to catch back up. Well, that doesn't entirely make sense because he plays very big. It's not like he's playing something where... 100000 is such a large amount of money compared to what he's betting, there's just about no way he could bust it in one session. He's betting very big. He talks about betting very big. So even if you have 100000 if you're making five-figure bets over and over, 100000 isn't very much at all. It's kind of like bringing 100 and making bets between like 10 and $25 each time. A lot of times you're going to go bust really fast, and that 100 means nothing. So this doesn't really add up what he's saying at least not what he claims to be betting and that's kind of what helps me do what i do is i have to kind of see the people and i have to connect the dots where they're not connecting it because they have something to sell you right and so i always look at things with a skeptical eye and so sometimes yeah it feels a little like staged almost like oh we're just showing up and oh we made money 5k to 200k yeah i think the next question that we all have is you win millions from my knowledge you get banned or limited early. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to win millions, right? At some point, I feel like the casinos would know who you are. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, that's a great question here. How are you continuing? Why are they letting you just keep beating them for millions, winning almost every single time? How have they not caught on? Even if he does have a winning system in Baccarat, how are they not catching on when he wins time and time and time again? Great question, Spencer. Let's hear the answer. So they all know who I am. Um, most of my million, multi-million dollar wins uh, came before I got banned, and the ones that come now after banned for a few reasons. One, there are certain casinos around the world that want to take a gamble on me. They're like, he has great exposure. The entire world is taking his advice. You know, all the celebrities are asking me on a daily basis, which casino is best for this game? Which hotel is best for this? Da 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 da. So they're like, you know, even if we lose a lot to Mickey, the amount of exposure and business we get by his famous friends and the rest of the gambling world uh, is worth it. False. False. Who do you think is more famous, Mickey Maz or Ben Affleck? Do we have to answer that question? 
Ben Affleck has been banned from blackjack games for counting cards. Ben Affleck, the Ben Affleck, has been banned for counting cards. Why? Because they don't want to lose to Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck has a lot of money. He was taught how to count cards. And he seems to be able to do it, at least according to the casinos that have banned him. They seem to believe he plays a positive expectation game at high limits. And they do not want him to beat them. Even though card counting is by no means a free ticket to money. You can go a long time losing despite card counting. So this isn't even like a guaranteed win for him, but he is positive expectation and they do not want it, even if it's Ben Affleck. And it's not like they're going to go, okay, well, yeah, it's Ben Affleck, so we'll just say he won a bunch of money and that'll be great marketing for us. No, like they didn't want it. They just, they just kicked him because they don't want him there beating them. So that's not the way casinos work. They're not going to let you stay there and crush them and then teach your friends how to crush them if you really do have a way to crush them for, quote, good publicity. Not going to happen. Um, so now I make a lot of deals. Well, most of my deals are kind of over because even after making deals, I'm still winning and they're like, this is just not working. So generally, so right now in Vegas, I have uh, three casinos left that I'm allowed to gamble in. Um, only one of them am I allowed to stay in. And one of them I would not advise anybody gambles in. I've never seen a single winner, including myself, from this casino. I played there really small when they first opened just to feel them out. And it's like, I haven't seen a single person win. Oh, uh, yeah. I have a video of him doing it. That's that weird chick with him there who I think might be some sort of stripper or something. Too. Um, but, yeah, no, I just shot with uh, Ricky. This is her on Brazzers. <laughs> oh, no, she's a porn star. She is a porn star. She was, she was on uh, Brazzers. Oh, Lord. You have as many views as my entire YouTube channel. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting life. Yeah. Uh, they're just willing to and you're willing to please them. And then, yeah, you just, you, it's fun. It's just, it's a, it's a fun experience. <laughs> That's all right I can on. say. Yeah. From my side, you have a few examples of people winning some money, turning 5K into 100K. Well, I'm about to go buy real estate. Why wouldn't I just go to you and say, let's go turn, let's go flip five grand into 100 grand if it's so easy? Because that's, let's be real, that's kind of how it's presented in, on social media. Another good question. If you can just effortlessly win, why don't you just take people's you know, kind of small to medium money, like 5K, which is, is not something to sneeze at, but it's not huge money. A lot of people can come up with 5K. If there's such a good chance you'll turn this into hundreds of thousands for people, why why aren't you just doing this for tons of people and uh, changing their lives right there in one night with only a 5K risk? So it's easy for the staker, right? For you to just give me five grand, let me just show up 10 hours later with 500 grand. That's the easiest 495 grand you ever made. Sure. For me, it's really hard. Also, it's not a safe bet. I, if you look at my comments, I'm like, I discourage anybody who's like, you make me want to learn how to gamble. I'm like, you shouldn't do it. Most people are losers. It's really hard. And even if I'm, let's call it one of the best gamblers, let's just say, right? There's still a chance we lose. And I would never want to take, you know, a roof away from your kid's head or your wife's head or your head. I'd never want to do that. What if you... Stop. Hold on. Hold on. We're talking about 5K here. We're not talking about give you 100K, your last 100K to try to make it into 500 so you can go buy a house with it. We're talking about 5K. A lot of people can come up with 5K. So if you have such a high chance of turning this 5K into 500, even if there's a small chance the 5K will be lost, that is a very, very worthwhile gamble, even for those who don't have a lot of money. In fact, 
I would say that if you have a very high chance to turn 5K into 500, even a family that is down through their last 5,000 should give it a shot. Because if the highest chance is that it's going to come back with 500 and the downside's only losing five, even if they're case 5,000, they should do it because the upside's so huge and the downside is, okay, we're broke for the moment. We'll borrow from some people. We'll get back on our feet. It's only 5K. So that doesn't make any sense. You're, you're not taking the roof over people's heads away unless they're really, really broke if you lose 5K for them in the effort to make 500,000, which will usually be successful according to you. So this is the type of thing that makes no sense. It's not like he says, well, yes, on occasion I can run up 5K to 500K if I get really lucky and keep pressing my bet higher and higher, but there's a lot of times I bust the roll along the way and I, I don't want to lose it for most people who are going to try. Once in a while, I'll catch lightning in a bottle and make the 500K out of it, but it'll, most of the times it's not going to happen. At least that would be a reasonable answer. Here he's saying, yeah, well, you know, I usually win, but uh, you know, on the off chance I lose, I don't want to ruin someone's life. What? You don't want to lose their 5K when you'll probably turn it into 500? I think they're willing to take that chance if that's the real situation. You fall into that slim percentage of people that I lose for. You know, I, I just wouldn't want that. So you're agreeing that there's, an, there's a chance that if I gave you, let's call it five grand, there's a chance we lose it. Well, especially Before five making grand. 200 grand or whatever. Especially five grand, because five grand is such a shallow buy-in that yeah. it only takes a couple of losing hands and then also we're broke. Five grand you can lose in two seconds. Right. But let's say, like, let's say you gave me 500 grand and you wanted to turn it into a million or 1.5. Although we're probably a favor, we're likely to win, it's not 100%. And what if you fall into that, even no matter how slim of a category it is, if you fall into that category, I'm not, I feel personally responsible for why you don't own a house. Okay, so that's a little different there, where it's a, you're starting with 500K and he's saying, well, I could lose that. So even though I'm a favorite to turn this into a million, a million and a half, it, you know, like, I don't want to be the one responsible for you losing your life savings of 500K. Okay, that's, that's more of a reasonable answer. And that would also be what I said. Let's say someone said to me, hey, I'm going to give you a 500K buy-in for a high-stakes home game with a bunch of fish in it. And I go, okay, sweet. And they say, oh, but by the way, this is my only 500,000. This is my entire life savings. But I believe you're such a favorite in this poker game. I'm going to give it to you to play with. Well, I, I would feel awful if I lost that. Even knowing I'm going in there with a good chance to win, there's a decent chance I won't win and bust the roll. And then that's it. <laughs> then I'm down to zero for that person's money. And I would feel horrible about ruining their life, even if they were very aware of the risks. At the same time, if a guy with a $100 million bankroll gave me 500k to go play in this game, then I wouldn't feel that bad because he would know the risk, it's not going to really hurt him, and uh, he's just making kind of like a business decision to put me in that game, that I wouldn't feel bad at all. So I, I understand that, but even look at the language he's using there. He's not saying, yeah, I'm a favorite, but not a huge favorite. He, he's going back to talking about the slim chance, what if I lose? So he's kind of saying like, yeah, just about always it's going to be a million or, or 1.5 million from that 500, but because there's a slim chance I could lose the 500, I don't want to ruin your life. And at that point, it, again, it starts to not sound very reasonable. Sure. And I don't really want this. It's not safe. If you wanted to do it, sure, I would do it, but we would definitely have a long talk like, hey, is this going to negatively impact your life? And if so, I'm saying, you know, this is not the right investment for you. Yeah. I know one. Okay, so we're going to move a little forward here to the uh, 10 minute mark of this video. And this is being talked about a lot where. 
he actually logs in to his casino account. It might be MGM M Life, but he logs into some account of of uh, a casino to show the win loss statement for 2020, not 2021, but 2020. Now, some casinos show it in real time where you can get a win-loss statement up to very recently. Others only do it by year, and some of them do it by month. So it varies from casino to casino. So I'm not sure about the one he's showing here. So I guess he could have the excuse that uh, 2021 is not showing yet at all. But it's also convenient that he only has to show last year and nothing from this year and is only showing one casino. So listen to this. So I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I'm going to show you live on the air uh, some of my casino Looking forward to it. So... You can see my full name here. Yep. Right. I'm logged in. Do all those points get you a free night? <laughs> well, it did before I was banned, yeah. <laughs> that was when you were on their good side? Yeah. <laughs> Within one of the casino apps, he was able to pull up the year 2020 tax statements that showed his win and loss statement. The number on the screen I saw was profit. So that's from 2020. I'm letting you know this is yeah. nothing in comparison to what I did in that's 2021. Fair. That's a very big number. And this is only from one casino. Do you want to buy real estate? <laughs> I can help you buy some uh, some nice houses. So, and, and you can see here, so just to be super sure, so win, loss, the loss is always in parentheses. That's why they do that. Okay. And then clearly there's no parentheses. Yeah, that's see, that's I, fascinating, man. Like, that's that's legit. I just, I man. Okay, okay, stop here. Some people said, well, how do you even know this is real? Maybe he just logged into a fake website that he made or had some friend make to make it look like he's logging in to see his statement, and then it's a fake statement. I mean, yeah, it's, it's possible, but I my guess is that's not what happened. My guess is that knowing that he won at this one particular casino in 2020, that he logged into it and showed Spencer. Because if he's logging into a fake site, then Spencer may see the URL. They're doing this on a phone, like an iPhone or something. So Spencer could look at the URL and see it isn't the right URL and then catch it right there and call it out. So... My guess is he really was logging into the real site of this casino and is showing the real statement that he won a lot of money there in 2020. The problem is it doesn't mean much. It's just showing what he won. And it doesn't say how long he played, how much he played. All it's showing is his overall win. And uh, it's showing a positive number. And I believe it. I believe it probably showed a big positive number. But what about the other casinos? Forget what about 2021. What about the other casinos in 2020? How come we're seeing this one? Now, that would have been the immediate question I would ask and that most others would ask here. You would say, okay, well, that's great. I, I believe you. I believe you won this much that's showing here in this casino. However, that doesn't mean that much unless we see all of the casinos. So can you show me several casinos? You, you can say every one, but he may still omit some, so that still doesn't totally answer the question. Really, the only way to do this is to go to all the major casinos in town with that person and have them ask for a win-loss statement in front of you and then see it. That's really the only way to do it. But at the very least, have him show you a lot of them so you can see at least that he's won a whole lot in several places or or pick casinos you assume he's probably been at or casino groups. Let, let me see your win statement on MGM M Life. Let me see the one on Caesars now. Now let me see the Venetian Palazzo. Now let me see the win. Now let me see uh, Treasure Island in case you've been there. Uh, you know, start asking for these 
And yeah, he could say he didn't go to certain ones like Treasure Island, maybe even if he had, but it's going to be hard for him to say, oh, I never went to Caesars. Oh, I never went to MGMM Life. Like You're going to hit on enough of them to where you're going to see several of these and you'll get a good picture of what's going on, even if not the complete picture. So unfortunately, Spencer just said, oh, yeah, yeah, wow, that's legit. Wow. Yeah, I see a big win here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I believe you did, but that doesn't tell nearly the story. And we weren't getting the follow-up here, and a lot of people had a problem with that. And it's so hard to believe, like, as you can understand from an outside observer, that you could, I'm not going to say the number, but it is a large number, that the casinos are in business and you are winning. I've always been the type of person who's cool with getting proven wrong. I said in a video that he likely wasn't a winner in gambling and the source of his funds was somewhere else, but I think it's safe to assume that I was wrong. I was- no, okay, no, no. See, now you see why people were skeptical of this video. You have to follow up everything. You can't just take partial information. So let's go on here. Watched him open the app, go to his tax statements for the year 2020. 2021 wasn't an option yet because the year isn't over and pull up a statement showing large profit. I'm sure some people will watch and still not believe and that's totally cool. But from my perspective, he showed me he is a winner in the official casino app. I have to say he's legit. Yeah, and I was that same casino, and I could show you all of them, all of my casino yeah, yeah. online portals, but for that particular one, it's just... Uh, wait, you could? Then do it. <laughs> I'd say, wait a minute. Okay, you could? Okay, let's do it. I, I got all the time in the world. Show me. Let's see them all. Show me 20 of them. I want to see everything. Let's hear a little bit now about the direct messages he was having with girls. I know we're getting a little bit away from the gambling thing. In fact, a lot away from the gambling thing, but he, you know, he's got a porn star over there in his suite. So let's hear about his direct messages with girls that are very infatuated with him. Off camera, I asked Mickey for a favor. I told him the stories about the women and the orgies and the parties sounded ridiculous. And so I just wanted to see what his DMs look like. He said, let's turn on the cameras and see your reaction. So I'm super fascinated to see his DMs and he's actually gonna show me his DMs. I just wanna like tap into this life of partying and rappers and famous people hitting you up to come hang in Vegas. So this is another thing I've never done, but uh, you've been easy. So yeah, I'm gonna let you do it. So you can see here, obviously it's live, time, date, all this. I didn't open it, didn't edit anything because you can see messages coming in. So here, just take my phone. You can go and that's my DMs there for Instagram. Look at whatever you like. Only 16? I thought you were cool and, and popular. No, it, it glitches. I don't know why. But you're welcome to open anything. You can see all the I'm girls. not going to open it. Go it's ahead, it's just wild. Like when you said, I think we spoke on the phone about this when uh, we were talking about some of the claims I made with like the girls. It's like, okay, come on, man. You really mean all this. You you're like, open. dude, just, uh, just see my DMs. Like all these girls hitting me up. These girls are all hitting you up. Yeah. I can tell by the, the picture that they're they're nice looking. You're, I'm serious. You're welcome to open and see a lot of naked photos you yourself. <laughs> <laughs> this is wild. That's nuts. It's just all blue checks and girls. Yeah. No, it's legit. This is pretty fascinating. No. All blue checks and girls he's referring to that the people messaging him on Instagram are either celebrities or at least Instagram celebrities who have a blue check mark verifying that they're real or girls. That, that's, that's who he's talking to. Just famous people, Instagram famous people, and hot girls. That's, that's all who's messaging him. Somehow he forgot to mention that one of the people messaging him on Instagram is a non-blue check mark person named Todd Wittellis. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I, I did message him there. I'm talking about Mickey, not Spencer. I appreciate the transparency. I'm not going to go on any of these. What? There's a lot. Of Come on. You, you don't want to open these and see the naked pictures? Come on now. Girls, man. How do you keep up? 
I really don't. It's kind of hard. That's why we do it in groups. Do athletes, is it true that athletes and celebrities have like people that help them with this, where they like m kind of manage? I mean, I do. Okay. I, I, I got I got my assistant that does it. Oh my god! Need another wild night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me stop right here. Okay. <laughs> Need another wild night. Okay. First of all, he is posturing all over Instagram that he has and gambles so much money and lives this lavish lifestyle. Do you not think that this could attract girls for that reason and that reason only? That they would just like a piece of that? They'd like you to buy them things? They'd like to maybe go to really nice meals or uh, party with you where you just pay for everything? And that some of them are willing to have sex with you to accomplish that? Do you think that might be some of the motivation here or all of the motivation here? Or let's go even one step further. Could these be prostitutes? Need another wild night is something that a hooker would write. Now, there could be girls that would write that that just are gold diggers that had a wild night with you and are hoping to do it again because you bought them things or whatever. But that's very hooker-like. They love to write things like, do you want to have fun? Do you want to party? Do you want to have a wild night? I mean, I got asked those questions when I would be walking through the Bellagio at 3 a.m. after being done playing 8160 Hold'em. And they didn't know I was playing 8160 Hold'em. They just knew that I was a dude walking by myself at 3 in the morning at Bellagio and that maybe I'd like a wild night in exchange for some cold, hard cash. I would just ignore them and walk by. But let's say I took them up on it. Let's say I said, yeah, yeah, I just won... Uh, Four thousand dollars at eighty-one sixty. Yeah, let's let's go up to my room, and then we go to my room, and we have our quote wild night, and I pay them what the thousand dollars or whatever they're going to be asking for. You don't think they're going to text me again and say, "Hey, you need another wild night"? Of course they would. Of course they would if they made a sale. So it's very possible he's being hit up by hookers who see easy money here because in vegas there's a wide variance for what people pay for hookers now there's a wide variance in the quality of the hookers and how they look but uh a lot of it also is whether they can rope in guys willing to pay the higher amounts now the busted looking hookers the ones that are uh 45 years old and missing teeth, they're not going to get $1,000. But you take a fairly pretty girl who is fairly young and what she can end up getting a lot of times that has to do with what the guys are willing to pay. And a guy who makes it look like money is absolutely no object, they would love to get him because he's not going to try to haggle on price and he'll probably pay top dollar and not give a crap. And that's a lot different than just a uh, businessman in town who would like a hooker but isn't necessarily wanting to pay four figures for it. So, need another wild night. That really sounds like something a prostitute would write. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know if it was a prostitute, but that, that wouldn't impress me. I wouldn't say, oh, wow, you had a wild night and she wants more. See, that's, that's usually not the way a girl would even write to you, even if she had a good time. They don't just start out like that. Like It's usually phrased a different way. 
if they had a good time with you and they'd like to be with you again. They'd like to spend a night with you again. They, they don't just write, would you like another wild night? They'll say, hey, you know, would, would you like to see each other tonight? Would you like to, like me to come over? Like to come over here? Like you, They'll start out that way. They won't start out with, do you want a wild night? And that's, I'm talking about girls who actually did have sex with you and want to do it again. They, they still won't open that way when they want to see you again. So that's, I don't know. Oh, man. If any of these girls had twin sisters, you know, okay. <laughs> I'm single. I'll just, I'll just give them to you when yeah, I'm done. Yeah, right. We can take them at the same time. Dude, there's an athlete. There's a famous athlete. That's pretty cool. No, this is super dope, man. Okay. Yeah, like part of the video. You- Remember what I said earlier? About the generic situation where someone would want to posture like they win a lot of money. And I mentioned access to celebrities. Look at that. He's talking with a famous athlete. Do I think Spencer's lying about that? No. I think that Spencer really saw a famous athlete was messaging with Mickey. And this is the type of thing that happens when you seem to be someone who is crushing the casino at high stakes. The famous athletes want in on it because they, they're used to going to Vegas and getting their ass beat at the tables. And even though they are making a lot of money... They kind of feel like suckers. They think, wouldn't that be sweet if I could win gambling like I win on the baseball field or on the basketball court or on the football field? Because these guys who are famous athletes, they're used to winning. They're used to being successful at what they do. And then they go to the casino and they lose and they kind of feel stupid. But their degeneracy compels them to go back and do it again. But if they feel that they've met somebody who bets at their stakes, who can win... They have a lot of interest in that. You said your words that you know you're winning, and then they show up, and the feds show up, and they're flipping, they're flipping your couches, and I'm like, something's not adding up here because I've, I'm not in the business that you're in, mm-hmm. and so this is from an ignorant perspective. But when I hear about the feds showing up and looking through your stuff, that doesn't sound like it's gambling. That sounds now that's from a different interview where he talked about how it was from that other one I played earlier. But I, I didn't play that part of it. But he talked about how in one of the casinos where he won, that federal agents came into his hotel room when he wasn't there and were flipping up the couch cushions and searching everything and uh, seeing if they could find anything on him. So Spencer's asking, like, that doesn't seem like a realistic story. Sounds like it might be something more. So I want to talk exactly about that. You had said that in your first video, yes. right? And you said it was hard to believe. Yep. I want to give you the exact account. First of all, it was this hotel that did it, the one that we're sitting in right now. And he was in the room. Uh, th- th- those, those people weren't, but he was. And it was me, him, and uh, my brother, and one other friend. And none of the four of us were drinking or using drugs. It was four adult men. And we were in a very big room. It had three floors in it. And it wasn't federal agents. It was, I misspoke, I guess, a little in the video. But what it actually was is, I meant to say, like the feds. Oh, like the feds. See, this, this is where you have to get even more skeptical. Because if federal agents bust into your hotel room, I said he wasn't there, but he actually was there. And they tear it up to look for something, to try to get you on something. I, I don't know why he wouldn't say, hey... You know, why why are you busting in my room? Do you have a warrant to search my room? If it really is federal agents. I guess the hotel could probably give them permission. I'm not sure how the legality works with that when you're staying in a hotel. They probably don't need a warrant if the hotel gives permission. But anyway, you would think you'd remember real well if it's federal agents or not federal agents. Because as Spencer even said, that's a weird story. Even if the hotel suspects some wrongdoing, 
usually they're going to send their own security or at the worst uh, they'll have the police come. Federal agents is weird. Even if they do suspect you're cheating, federal agents don't get involved with that. That would be the local police. So Spencer didn't understand that story. And he's like, oh, I misspoke. I said federal agents, but I meant it was kind of like federal agents. (laughs) No. It would be very clear in your mind if it was federal agents or like federal agents. You'd never make that mistake when you're speaking. You may say that they sent their own people into my room and I kind of felt like the feds were searching my room, but you wouldn't say federal agents came in. So I think this story probably changed here because it sounds so ridiculous. So they brought 10 security guards that came in and said, hey, we have reports of unconscious women and drug dealing. And I'm thinking to myself, I have X amount of money in the safe of your casino chips. Why am I drug dealing, right? But I know what they're doing. They just wanted to stir the pot. They weren't looking for anything. There was, they knew there was nothing to be found. We, us four grown sober men, knew there was nothing to be found. So they brought 10 security guards in. They said, you guys got to line up against the wall. They flipped the cushions. They flipped the mattresses over. They ripped every piece of clothing. They, anything they could as if they were the feds looking for a drug raid. And Okay. Could this have happened? Maybe. But they're not going to just do this because the casino wants to harass this guy because if they think he's winning through some sort of advantage play method, they're just going to kick him. They're not going to do this. Uh, And By the way, even if they did conclude that this was going on, they they still would have to cash his chips. This isn't an excuse to then uh, confiscate all the chips in his safe and say, well, you were drugging women here, so we're going to be keeping your money. That's not how it works. They they still have to cash out his money. He, He could be arrested at that point he could be detained and then arrested for uh, drugging women in the room or or, or uh, having illegal drugs on him I mean, that that can happen of course they can ban him but they still have to cash out his chips that is not an excuse to steal his chips and they cannot get away with that by nevada state law and, and by the way notice he's he's still staying in this hotel there he was talking about how this happened in that very hotel where they're conducting this interview in the past so I think it's possible the room was being searched. Why? Who knows? There could have been someone that suspected something and reported it. Maybe something that a neighbor, neighbor meaning uh, like a, the room next door, was hearing a lot of uh, commotion there and thought that there was some something happening there that was bad and reported it. Maybe someone exaggerated. Maybe even someone who was pissed off at Mickey. Maybe Mickey had lost money for them and they decided to get back at him. Who knows? Or the whole thing could be made up. It could be a lot of things here. So it's possible this happened, but it wasn't because the casino was trying to get back at him. And by the way, there have been instances where casinos will do passive-aggressive things like this to get back at advantage players. The fact that he's still sitting in a hotel room in that casino shows that that's not what they were doing. Because if they really were trying to do this, they would do this first and then ban him. But they wouldn't do this first and then let him stay and let him keep coming back. And ultimately, at the end, they go, okay, we didn't find drugs or unconscious women. And I said, obviously. They said, all right, you're good to go. Then what they did was they used that as their reason to justify putting a security guard outside my door. So a woman, a security guard, 24 hours a day, well, I'm sure it wasn't the same woman, but there was a security guard they put in a chair sitting right outside my door. Okay, that really seems like someone complained who was female. This It doesn't sound like hearsay anymore. It kind of sounds like, uh, or at least not third-party hearsay. Uh, so... If this really happened, maybe a girl who was there complained and then they were nervous about it 
and they figured, okay, not only are we going to post a security guard, so if we hear any women screaming or anything going on here that we're going to bust right in, we're going to put a female security guard so it can't even be alleged that it's like a, an old boys network of where it's uh, everyone kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nudges that it's okay to drug girls and rape them, that we're going to have a female here who's going to be less sympathetic to that. So if this happened... This was because of some legitimate concern on the casino's part that something was happening to women in the room, even if the concern was not uh, of something that was really true. This doesn't sound like a way to get back at him for beating them in Baccarat. They wouldn't let anybody in or out of my own room, including myself, without showing ID. I believe the reason they were doing it is because I used to catch them breaking into my room all the time, which all the casinos do. So I think they were trying to track when is the room empty so we can go in and put recording devices, uh, video, audio, uh, jam, Wi-Fi. And I want to use the word jam, Wi-Fi loosely. I know nothing of like electronics. What I mean to say is, um, and I could prove it, believe me, is that when you're in a room that's under my name, you can't seem to get any reception with or without internet. And I believe I know why they do that. Uh, I don't know if that means jamming, blocking, I don't know, but that's what they're doing. They come in and, and one time this same casino also they came in when all of us were out of the room, and they untied every shoelace from every left pair of shoes in my entire building. And you're like, why did they do that? And the answer is, I don't know, except that to this day I'm talking and still thinking about it. And I think that's what they wanted. Quick side note, we had long... <laughs> They're untying his shoelaces, but only the left shoes. I guess they don't want him to trip on his right foot, only his left foot. They're untying his left shoelaces... I don't know. What does he mean by untying? Because if his shoes aren't on, why would the laces be tied? Maybe he means they were just taking the laces out of the shoes. And then they were also, quote, jamming the internet. Okay. I think just in these suites, maybe they're enough out of the way to where they're not by any router and the reception just isn't very good over there. That's probably what's really happening. If they were really concerned about monitoring his internet usage, the worst thing they could do was make the internet impossible to use because all he would have to do is use his phone or, or tether his phone. And it's not hard to tether your phone now. You can, most of these phones have a personal hotspot feature, which you can use. So I don't know what they would even be accomplishing here. All they would do is allow him to use the phone's data which would be impossible for them to track. If they actually want to track what he's doing and what websites he's visiting uh, or they want to pack, packet sniff his connections, the, the best thing they could do is allow him onto their network. <laughs> Blocking him from their network would be the dumbest thing they could do. Now, if they were trying to stop him from communicating to the outside world, like, uh, you know, let's say they were performing a seizure to his, of his room and they didn't want him uh, alerting his attorney to get over there, uh, yeah, then it could make sense that they would try to prevent communication coming from the room. But he's not alleging that. He's alleging just the whole time in the room, you can't connect to the Wi-Fi. So that's pretty absurd, as is the thing about the shoelaces. And by the way, since they're the ones who assigned the room to him, if they want to bug the room, they can bug the room before he gets in there. That's all they have to do. They don't need to create false reasons to come in also doesn't the maid come in does he never get the maid because they could easily do it then too i don't see why they would have to do all these ruses about unconscious women so that that part doesn't make any sense okay so here's the last thing we're going to play and this is about the pharmacies and th this is by the way the, the, the part i think is actually most credible this is about his pharmacy vis uh, business 
And a lot of people have doubted this. I actually think that there may be some legitimacy to this part. Anything. All right, we got to discuss the pharmacy stuff. I thought that was a really interesting story. You built up this business full of pharmacies. I did a quick Google search and it's like $450,000 to start a pharmacy. So either prove me wrong or maybe uh, shed some doubt. Sure. So there's roughly 12 types of pharmacies and the one that you're probably referring to is like a CVS or a Walgreens. It's called a retail pharmacy. It's actually the least profitable. Hmm. Uh, so a successful month for a retail pharmacy, it would be breaking even. Right, where you make all your money is on the rebates. So you, with all the manufacturers, and there's many to choose from, you make a deal with them, and you say, hey, if I sell X amount of your uh, pill, right, or your, your prescription, I want this many dollars back, like per, something like that. And that's where the profit's actually made. And that's a huge numbers game. You need huge, huge amount of patients, you need so many customers, and they also have the store, and they're selling goods and things like that. That is not the type of pharmacy I owned. So um, out of the 12 pharmacies, that would be one of them, and that's the least profitable. The most profitable being a compound pharmacy, but there's tons of fraud, it's really questionable, and I actually, to be honest with you, I actually don't even know what the correct usage of a compound prescription is, and I never got involved. I know a lot of guys who did, it just didn't seem, it just didn't seem just for me. So when it comes to starting pharmacies, uh, the hard cost to be licensed, right, for your NPI number, which which is a medical provider number, um, is like $7,500 in like processing fees, stuff like that. So you can pay a consultant, which is really the way you do it. So you don't have to worry about crossing the T's and dotting the I's. They're just gonna do everything for you. They ask you some of your own information, what's your location, what's the square footage, etc. They do all the paperwork, and then you just sign it. Uh, it takes a roughly six week, six week process and you're licensed. So for me, the good ones are between 15 and 25,000 per consultant per NPI, which means per pharmacy license, right? Okay, are you following this? I bet you're not. I bet this is kind of confusing. But you know what? He's rattling this off effortlessly. This is not rehearsed. This is not something he Googled quickly and is rattling off to Spencer because he thinks it's going to sound good. This is something he has knowledge of. There's no pausing. There's no thinking. He's even using an acronym called uh, NPI that uh, most of you would not be familiar with. I wasn't familiar with it. So he wouldn't rattle off that acronym before stopping himself and then explaining it to people. This is someone talking about something he knows a lot about. And if you compare his discussion of the pharmacies here, which he clarified are not retail pharmacies, he's not saying he owned 300 CVSs or even 300 uh, independent pharmacies that kind of resemble a CVS. Uh, he's talking about these compound pharmacies, which we'll explain in a second here. But he definitely has a lot of experience in this industry of the pharmacies. So... There's been people going, oh, he doesn't own 300 pharmacies. Oh, he's making all this up. This is a bullshit story. Well, I can't tell you how much truth there is in this whole story, but I can tell you for sure that he knows a lot about this industry and has been involved with it in some way. Now, it could be not in any kind of uh, ownership fashion, and it's possible he didn't make much or any money from it, but he, he was involved in it in some way. And it's possible he did make a lot of money from it. It's possible that is the source of the funds. But for sure, there is some knowledge here, a lot of knowledge here, actually, of that whole compound pharmacy industry. Now, what is a compounding pharmacy? Because he's saying he doesn't own a retail pharmacy. So what is a compounding pharmacy? Well, compounding pharmacies make drugs 
prescribed by doctors for specific patients who have needs that can't be met by commercially available drugs. Uh, here, here's some easy examples. Like a young child needs a small liquid dose of a drug that is usually only released in adult dosage tablet format. Or a commercial version of a popular drug has an ingredient which isn't all that important that someone's allergic to. So someone needs that drug, but they can't take it because of one ingredient that they that would cause a big allergic reaction. So someone needs that drug minus that ingredient, and you can't ask this large company manufacturing the drug, "Hey, can you make it for? Uh, can you make another version without this one ingredient for the few patients who need it?" So th- this is where compounding pharmacies come in. So uh, the role of compounding pharmacies started to expand around uh, 2010. And what started happening is they also started to be able to manufacture drugs that didn't need any kind of specialty to them, like what I was just describing, but just where there's shortages of certain drugs that are needed at the moment. So if there's needed the additional manufacturing capacity needed, these compounding pharmacies also will step in and do this. This this is since about 2010. I, I learned all this recently, by the way. I was no pharmacy expert. I didn't know what a compounding pharmacy was until I heard this being talked about, and then I looked into it myself. Now, as of about 10 years ago, there were already about 56,000 uh, compounding pharmacies, and there's a lot more now. And then there were, of those 56,000, I'd say about uh, 15% of them did uh, these, quote, advanced compounding services where, as I said, they were manufacturing uh, drugs that people needed more of and where there was currently a shortage. So you may wonder on these compounding pharmacies, how is it insured that the drugs they make are safe? Well, there's some attempt to uh, regulate these, but these tend to be on the uh, the state level. And then uh, there's some minor regulation from the uh, FDA and the DEA. But anyway, some of these compounding pharmacies actually start to act like small drug manufacturers. And uh, then they're not uh, always regulated as if they're small drug manufacturers. So there's there's been some controversy over these. And again, remember, these compounding pharmacies are not physical pharmacies you walk into. This isn't like CVS. This isn't like uh, uh, John's local pharmacy. Uh, A lot of these don't have any location you can actually walk into. They're just manufacturing these drugs. There's also uh, licensing involved. You can't just declare yourself a compounding pharmacy. You have to be licensed to do this. So... uh, it does seem like uh, it's very possible that he was involved maybe on that side of things. But there, there's some involvement he had with these compounding pharmacies in the past. And he very well might have made some decent money doing this or a lot of money doing this. So let's, let's continue listening to him. 
Now, a lot of pharmacies only require 100 square foot space. And if you're doing remote or drop ship or something like that, you can literally pick a location, call it in uh, um, Reno or, 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 or uh, you know, well, what, I was picturing 300 storefronts in uh, New York or New Jersey, my, yeah. I think was at that time might have been where you were living, either South Florida or New Jersey. And I'm picturing, I'm like, all this money, are you owning the real estate? Are you owning storefront? No, no I'm owning the licensing. Got and it. So what I do is, um, at, the faster we can get licensed, right, the faster I can sell them off. Now what I was doing was my actual strategy is when I sell them off, I was saying, hey guys, I really don't have that much interest in running or operating pharmacies. It's a lot of work, full-time job, and I don't know if I'm equipped for that. But what I am equipped for is knowing who wants to buy them, Right? You could sell them $100,000, $250,000, a pop. You sell them, and then I say to all those guys, hey, I'm going to sell you this license, no problem, but I also own these companies that do A, B, and C. So our deal will be, I will sell you this license, you're going to be the new rifle owner, but you have to utilize A, B, and C company that I own. So, so I'm not sure if this part's true, but he's, he's claiming that in addition to selling these licenses, that he also owned additional companies that they, they have to use those services as a condition of the sale. So who, who knows if that's true or partially true or what, but... Uh, that's what he's claiming as well. But you see he's talking about how he would get these uh, licenses for these compounding pharmacies and then, uh, and then sell them to companies that actually wanted to do the work of the, of the manufacturing of these drugs. So we're processing uh, 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 billing and things like this for all of the patients that are running through these pharmacies I sold them. Because from my perspective... You build up in the interview, and to be fair to, to Mickey here, like in an interview, you're very condensed. You're condensing years into like minutes, but you have 300 pharmacies, which I'm picturing are storefront retail spots worth half a million each. You sell them, and then you even mentioned your words were to give some away, and then you go into a life of gambling. It just didn't. It was almost like your behavior traits didn't match up that it's the same person, and that's why there was a little doubt. So it's really hard in the pharmacy space to uh, become like a CVS, right? They're such giant conglomerates that they do so many things to essentially monopolize the market. So the retail space is really hard to be in. You could have some mom and pop shops. You're not going to get super rich off it, uh, but you can do it. So then when it comes, you have to, so out of the 12 types of pharmacies, you have to decide which one has the least control over these conglomerates, which gives you the most opportunity for growth. So one of my pharmacies, which only cost me 15000 a license, called another 5000 expenses to have. So it, $20,000 and you can own a pharmacy. Now, if you do a drop ship remote pharmacy, um, you can the, the, you can generate maybe, so usually we try to generate $200,000 a month, right? That's the safe place to be. Uh, so you want to have a network of them. So usually within a network, you can do easily, depending on your uh, patient acquisition, you can do a million to $5 million a month in gross revenue. And uh, the, the margins are really high, to be honest. And I would say one of, if not the best version of all the pharmacies. So when you sell them, they're worth a lot. Okay, I will say that listening to this part, it kind of sounds like a lot of gibberish. Kind of sounds like someone who knows the industry but didn't do as much as he claims, didn't have as much involvement as he claims. So who knows? He's not just pulling this out of his ass. He didn't just randomly pick pharmacies, compound pharmacies, and, and pretend to be involved with that before. There, there has to be some real involvement here, but, but a lot of the stuff he's saying isn't adding up at, at this point of the interview. I, I can get these licenses for for fifteen and twenty thousand, but then we have to do two hundred thousand a month in profit. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Wait a minute! It's, you get the the license for fifteen to twenty thousand, but then somehow you need two hundred thousand a month profit. What, what is he talking about? So, like like someone who was really on the really dug into this and really running this empire wouldn't say nonsensical things like that. They, they would be able to describe this better even if they're not all that eloquent. 
So this does kind of sound like someone who knows a lot of the jargon and knows the industry, but some of the specifics of it kind of elude him. So I don't quite know what conclusion to come to from this, but I think it's somewhere in between what he's presenting and some people's claims that he's making it all up. I think it's somewhere in the middle there, but who knows where in the middle. Okay, so... I'm going to stop here. If you want to see the whole 28-minute interview, it's called Confronting Mickey in Person, Princesses Las Vegas on Spencer Cornelius' channel. This wasn't really confronting, though. Confronting is like going up to him and going, Hey, Mickey, you've been lying about some things, in my opinion. So are you going to prove them to me? Or are you going to chicken out? Like That, that would be confronting, not uh, hanging out with him like a bud <laughs> and uh, asking him questions and not really coming back with uh, challenges there. But uh, at the same time, again, I understand. You may feel like, oh, you know, if I was sitting there, I would tell Mickey he's full of shit and say, hey, explain this, explain that. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to do when you're in person there with a, with a guy. He's, he's being nice. He's being friendly. He invited you in his room. You know, like, it, it's it's really much harder than it is just asking these questions in your head as a guy who's just hearing him online, or on a show like this. So I kind of pictured as I watched this, like what I would say and do there. And I think what I would do, in fact, I know what I would do. And I think what I would do, what I know what I would do is I I would ask follow-up questions. I, I wouldn't give my opinion. I wouldn't say, yeah, it sounds like you're full of shit here, or it, it sounds like this is impossible. Like I, I wouldn't say things like that because he doesn't have to have me there. He doesn't have to invite me there. He doesn't have to show me anything. It's not like I'm I'm the police inter- interrogating him. Where I guess he still doesn't have to answer anything. But this is totally voluntary. So I, I have to appreciate that no matter who it is. That's how I treat people on this show, too, who come on here. So I would ask him follow-ups. So, like, for example, with the showing the casino s- statement, I'd say, okay, well... Uh, Let's see the rest of them. Can you show me the rest of them? If he says no, I said, well, why, why don't you want to show me that? I'm just curious. That does That's not going to look that good to everybody here unless they know I've been able to see all of them you can show me. You don't have to, but I'm just saying that this is something that's going to look suspicious. Like, that's what I would say. Where What I wouldn't say is, you know what? The fact you only show me one makes you look like a fraud. Like, I wouldn't make that statement, but I would ask him to show me and tell him what it looks like if he doesn't. That I would do. And... Same with some of these other things he claims. I would have follow-ups ready, or if I didn't have them ready because I wouldn't know what he's going to say, I'd come up with them on the spot and and ask him further questions. So uh, Spencer took a lot of heat for this video, as you might imagine, because the first video, I didn't play it to you, but the first video, he was very, very skeptical, and he had a lot of the exact same concerns that I had and that a lot of other people had who've been observing Mickey. The second video, people felt that he was either tricked, bribed, or uh, was just really stupid. (laughs) So um, I don't think that Spencer is stupid. I don't think he was bribed. Was he tricked? I don't even know if it's so much tricked. I think he was just kind of uh, glad-handled and didn't come at come at uh, Mickey very hard with as tough a questions as he could have 
following up the answer. I think the initial questions he was asked by Spencer were good. I think Spencer brought a lot of good questions to the table. I just think the follow-up questions weren't there, or if they were, we didn't see them. So Spencer kind of took it on the chin on the forums and on Reddit and in the comments section of his own video. He got uh, 4,500 comments already. (laughs) And obviously, I'm not going to read them, but uh, here's something that Spencer posted shortly after that. Please read. It's entirely possible I got duped. My intentions with this video are to make interesting content. The entire video is unplanned. My reactions to his casino app were live and authentic. Whether you believe me or not, it's cool if you don't, it was a large number showing profit. Okay, I believe that, by the way. Totally believe that app was real. If I got duped, I'll take the L, meaning the loss. It was interesting content, and I hope you were entertained at the very least. I will always highly recommend not gambling or staking a gambler. Invest in real estate. Lastly, I am slowly gaining really important connections with the casino industry here in Vegas, so my content will only get better. This video is important in that, in regards to who's reaching out. I am a one-man operation is doing the best I can. Okay, so Spencer's basically saying, uh, look, guys, I'm not an expert at this yet. I may have been tricked. Some good came out of it no matter what because a lot of people in the casino industry have since reached out to me because of the interest in the Mickey subject. So this will help me with future videos about the gambling industry because I'm going to have a lot of good people to go to. This isn't what he said specifically. I'm kind of translating it to what I think he meant here. Uh, He's basically saying, I'm going to improve thanks to this video because of all the new context I made. So even if this video kind of sucks, even if this disappointed you, it will lead to better things in the future. And keep in mind, guys, this is entertainment. I'm not an investigative body, which is a good point. You're watching this channel just to see something interesting, see something entertaining. It's not like Spencer is the FBI agent put in charge of investigating Mickey. So even if this wasn't uh, the hardest ball of interviews that he's saying, hey, if, if you watched it and you found it entertaining, then I've accomplished what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm just trying to make something interesting for you guys to watch. And keep in mind, Spencer is a content creator. So really, the goal for his channel is to get people watching and talking about it and not necessarily to be a world-renowned scan buster. Now, he's hoping he can do that as well. He's hoping he can shine light upon those who are uh, duping people and that he can get a large channel and that'll help people as well. But he's trying to say this is a channel mainly for entertainment and I'm trying to create content. And he didn't say it, but he also means build an audience. So these are fair points he's raising. And he's even conceding that he is not an experienced gambler or an experienced person within the casino industry. So you have to cut him some slack there. And also, he didn't say this, but I'll say this, people can have a bad day. And Spencer may have uh, dropped the ball a bit in this interview. But look, I, I played parts of it on this show, and there was interesting stuff to hear, even if Spencer wasn't very skeptical. So sometimes just letting the person talk who is the subject of the interview and acting friendly towards them isn't the worst thing because you get them talking. If you come at them aggressively and say, you know what, you're full of shit, they're going to stop talking. 
So sometimes the best approach is to appear to be friendly. I think Spencer, after doing this, probably shouldn't have put things out in the video like, I saw the results on that app, so in my opinion, he's legit, because then that uh, does make it look like he was completely tricked, and uh, there's no point to have to do that. There's a difference between just letting someone talk and not being skeptical and not being uh, critical of them, and then and also the difference between that and having them talk and then you kind of validating that what they're saying is reasonable. So I think that's where he made the biggest mistake, but I don't even necessarily think that letting Mickey just talk without hitting him with aggressive follow-up questions was all that bad because that did make a more friendly environment where Mickey talked more. And that's something you must consider. Mickey could have kicked him out at any point. Mickey could have just stopped talking to him at any point. He was not obligated to say anything. So uh, Spencer did have to be friendly. And I think the ideal video here would have been trying to get as much out of Mickey, even with some follow-up questions that are phrased in a friendly fashion, to get as much out of him as possible while not uh, appearing to be really, really doubtful of him. And then afterwards, putting out a conclusion that's uh, you know, kind of more skeptical when you're all putting it together in uh, post-processing. Unless you really want to have a third interview, in which case maybe you don't want to do that. But, you know, how many of these can you have? So I don't know if there's going to be a third interview. I do know that Spencer is uh, communicating with his mic, and maybe he'll have a follow-up with, uh, with Mike. And with Mike calling out uh, Mickey, that'll be interesting. Uh, this is the first time Spencer has done this. He's, all the other times, to my knowledge, just talked about people, not talked with people. So that probably affected it as well. So anyway... I'm not going to be too hard on Spencer here. Some people are being real hard on him. I don't I don't think he deserves that. Uh, I think he could have done this video better. I think some other people have said that as well. In fact, a lot of people have said that. And I think he said that too. But he did get Mickey to talk. That did produce something of value for us, even if it uh, wasn't done the way some people wanted. So where does this leave us with Mickey? What is this story? After after all this time, I've been doing this story here. This is a long segment. After all this, where does it leave us? I mean, we've been talking about this for two and a half hours now. It doesn't feel like two and a half hours, but two and a half hours have passed about this topic. So where are we now? Well, it's going to be disappointing for you to hear this, but the answer is I'm not sure at the moment. But I'll tell you where I stand at the moment. I think that there's a lot that we are not seeing here, to say the least. I also have been sent some information about Mickey's casino play, which uh, doesn't look very good. (laughs) Now, I have not independently verified this information, and I cannot speak to the person who was the source of the information, But I was sent some information, which looks pretty legitimate, though again, I can't verify it. But this information shows a uh, a pretty big loss at uh, a particular casino. Again, one casino or casino group doesn't mean anything. But it also doesn't mean he's crushing it everywhere, if this is legitimate. And 
I think that the whole thing with playing for other people is very suspect. That's the most suspect part of all this. Well, either that or the high publicizing of all the money he's winning for the reasons I said before. But if he is really winning tons of money, why, why is he taking 150 k for Mike V to gamble with? Why? It's not even like he's doing this for the little guy. The little guy doesn't have 150 k to give you. So why is he doing that? If he's just someone who's crushing the casino all over the place. Doesn't make any sense. This is not adding up. So there's some reason that he is putting this all out on social media and saying that he's winning this much and showing all these big stacks of cash and all these tall stacks of chips. There's some reason he's putting that out there and wants you to believe it's happening. And it could be one of many things, as I said before, but I don't know which one it is. But I would be shocked if he is what he claims to be. He may be part of what he claims to be, but I don't think he's killing the game of Baccarat. I do not think he's a long-term winner in Baccarat. I would be shocked if he was a long-term winner in Baccarat. What's really going on? I'm not sure yet, but I have a feeling we might find out in not too long. Now, I mentioned that I had some communication with him. And I'll tell you what happened. It's not as exciting as you might hope, but there was communication with him. I messaged him on Instagram, and I told him about Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I said, I've received several requests to have you on my show for an interview, which is true. And I said, since receiving those requests, I followed your social media, watched various interviews, and watched the most recent Spencer Cornelia interview. I must say you're quite fascinating. That's all true. Would you be willing to come on my show so my audience can get to know you? So then I explained the various ways you can come on my show, and I said, let me know. So he responded pretty quickly. He said, hey, brother, yeah, I'm open to it. I'd like to know more about the show, though. No pressure. Get back to me whenever it's good for you. So this is very positive. Then I said, it's a weekly show broadcasted live, then put up as a podcast, and I explained a little bit more about the show. Then I said, we've been around for 10 years. I'm a fellow Jew like you, by the way, and I've been around the poker and gambling community for 20 years. The interview would not be confrontational, which is true. If he came on here, I would not be confrontational. You tell the listeners about yourself, and I'd ask a series of questions and give you whatever time you need to answer. My show is extremely long, sometimes as much as nine hours, so there's no time limit, so the interview could be as long and short as we want. So th this is all the truth. See, I'm not going to lie to him. I'm not going to say, hey, this is going to be a, a, a super positive interview where I promote you and make you seem like the best ever. I'm not going to trick him like that. I'm not going to trick anybody like that. I, people come on the show. I want them to really know what they're going to get and when they're not going to get. So then he said, where is it broadcasted? How many subscribers? Who have been some of your bigger guests? So I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> because I'm realizing at that point what he's looking for. He's looking for major publicity. And this show is not big enough. So I could have lied. I could have said, oh, yeah, you know, we have Daniel Negreanu and Phil Helmuth on, the, on here all the time. They're regular guests. And we have about uh, 100,000 listeners each week. I mean, I could have put out that bullshit. and It's possible I could have gotten it by him. But that's not me. So I told him the truth. I said, it's broadcasted on my site and on every podcasting app you can think of. We don't have subscribers. It's not like YouTube, so it doesn't work that way. But we do get thousands of listeners each week, which is true. 
More importantly, because of the recent fascination with your Hustler Casino live appearance, a lot of the poker community will listen, even those who don't otherwise listen to my show, and I will promote it on Twitter. There will also be a number of people in the Casino Advantage Play community listening, as I'll promote it on my other site, which talks about that as well. Then I went on and explained a little bit more. Then he said, what exactly would you like to speak about? What are the topics you plan on discussing with me? So at least at that point, I kind of got past the whole concern he had about the size of the show, but I have to imagine it probably dampened his desire to participate since I didn't portray it as a major show. I was kind of saying we're not a major show, but I think once you're on, we're going to get a lot of people listening, which I think is true. I think it would be one of the best listened to shows uh, because there haven't been that many places he's appeared yet. So I said you'd start out giving a bit of your background and how you made your money in the first place, and then uh, I'd ask some questions about the gambling itself. The audience of my show is mostly poker players and gambling, and gamblers. And that was it. No response, and it's been now over 48 hours. So I think that means no. I think I'm being ghosted by Mickey. That's why I'm reading this to you. If if uh, this was still something I thought was probably alive, I actually wouldn't uh, be revealing this. But uh, since I think it's dead, then what the hell? I read it to you guys here. But why isn't he coming on? I, I think he's getting the idea that the audience is too sharp. That I'm too sharp and the audience is too sharp. I, this is my guess. He didn't say it, of course. He just stopped answering me. But I think he was looking for a big show with a big audience where the host and the audience are not that savvy and uh, won't question things he says. But having a guy who's been in the industry 20 years and an audience that is pretty savvy, that's not uh, exactly what he's looking for, in my opinion. So he did not respond to me. And I guess that's that. Maybe he's just busy or something, and maybe he'll say, sure, I'm going to come on, then I'll feel stupid for having read this to you. Not that this is like a super secret conversation. It's just kind of mundane stuff about me asking him coming on, but I was just reading the back and forth we had. It does kind of seem like he was aiming this at, like, what are we going to be talking about and how many people are going to be listening? That seems to be what he wants to know which is usually not what I get. I don't ask many people for interviews, but when I do, it's usually just kind of yes or no. It's usually not all these questions. Usually it's just either, yeah, I'd love to, or no, or just no answer. I usually don't get the third degree like this because either someone wants to come on the show or they don't. And I think most people are aware that this is a gigantic show. Like the people I ask, they're uh, at least somewhat aware of who I am and what I am. This is the first exchange I've ever had like this. I've, I've had a few people ask, like, what are we going to talk about, especially someone who's involved in controversy, because people don't want to come on and, and be attacked. So I, I will tell people who are involved in some kind of controversy or being uh, scrutinized, like he is here, like, I'll tell them it's not going to be confrontational. Like, I always tell people that because I want them to know it's not going to be confrontational. I want people to know they're not going to just come on here and be bashed or, or really, really... Uh, put on the spot and then criticized for not giving what I think is the right answer. I I want people to answer questions, good questions, tough questions, but then let their answers speak for themselves and not try to humiliate the guest on the air. 
Now, I may have comments afterwards that analyze what was said, but I will treat everybody with respect as they're on here talking to me. Because, again, they don't have to come on. And this goes for pretty much anybody. The only time I won't treat them with respect is if they come at me disrespectfully. But if anybody comes on here and treats me respectfully, then I will keep it respectful myself, though I will not uh, play softball with them. So I don't think it's going to happen. But I gave it a try. And there's an outside chance it still might. But anyway, Mickey, if you did hear this or heard any part of this, uh, I'm leaving it to you to explain either by coming on this show or by posting it somewhere the answers to some of my concerns here. And the way you can do this is, for example, uh, meet with me or someone who I designate that I trust and show them the results you've had at a lot of casinos, not just this one where you did well. And show some proof that you made a lot of money off these pharmacies. And you know, give more detail as far as that goes. And explain more accurately why you're having people stake you if you have so much money. Why you're soliciting this. And explain what happened to the 150000 for Mike V that he claimed you took. There's a lot I'd like to know. Where are you banned from and what is the real reason? Can you show me anything that would indicate you're banned for that reason? Can you call up in my presence to the casino and ask them to tell you the reason you were banned? That's a good one. I could be standing there right with him or, again, have a representative there who I trust. And he could call up the casino and say, hey, uh, can you tell me the specific reason I'm banned? They usually will. Or if you can't be told that you can be transferred to the right department, which can tell you why you're banned. So I've heard rumors that he was actually banned for behavioral reasons, not for gambling reasons. But this can often be figured out just by standing there with the person as they make a call. And that's where proof comes in. And whenever someone's asked for proof and then they start hesitating and don't want to show you or show you partial things, then something's a little bit weird. That goes for basically anything. Whenever you're shown only part of the story, it speaks volumes. So that's our long-awaited Mickey segment. I hope you have enjoyed it and have learned some things here. And there's a lot left to learn, a lot I don't know. I think whatever comes out, I will be shocked if it turns out that he's killing the casinos long-term, like dating back to last year. One casino might he be beating? Yes. But I don't think overall he is a winner in gambling at these Vegas casinos when you add them all together. By the way, one more word about the profit and loss statements that casinos provide. Let me give you an example. Let's say I bring $5 million to a casino, but $2.5 million I hand to my friend. And let's say we go to a Baccarat game, and he is putting it on player all the time, and I'm putting it on banker all the time on the exact same hands. And we're betting high stakes. So we're basically playing opposite sides of each other. At the end of that session, 
one of us will have won and one of us will have lost. Let's say I happen to be the one coming out on the winning side for that one. Well, my profit and loss statement will show that I won. But remember, that entire five million was mine. So my friend who took half of it and bet the other side lost, and because of the commission that's taken that allows for the house edge, overall I lost. In fact, overall I was guaranteed to lose by playing both sides of player and banker. Just having my friend play the other side with my money. So I would be shown having a nice win when in reality I actually lost. So that is where a profit and loss statement can be inaccurate. That's just one of many examples where profit and loss statements can be inaccurate. There's many other ways that can happen, even ones which don't involve an accomplice. So you can't even completely trust profit and loss statements, especially someone who seems to be going with other people to play with them. So you must be careful of that as well before trusting that someone is winning through profit and loss statements. It can be a hint, but it is not the end-all be-all of proof, and that must be understood as well. I'll give you another example. Sometimes the casino is not paying complete attention of who has what, especially if it's very high rollers and they look the other way, because overall that uh, they're happy to have that action. Let's go back to the example I just gave. Let's say in that example, my friend is actually the one who ended up winning and I ended up losing. But before we cashed out, or before the pit boss even kept track of our color-ups to see how much we ended up with to put in the system, how much we each won. My friend slips me several chips, several big chips, and I put them in my stack. Now, technically, he's not allowed to do that. Technically, you're not allowed to give your gambling chips to somebody else. In fact, they can be confiscated if that is being done. But for a whale, the casinos look the other way about a lot of stuff. And that's not the worst violation for someone to do that especially if the casino can reasonably claim they just missed it. So, let's say my friend uh, slips back chips from his stack over to mine. And then we call for a color-up, and the pit boss looks what I have and what my friend has, and notes my friend had a loss and I had a win. Well, again, I've lost money. It's all my money that's being bet here, but it appears like I won. There can even be shenanigans like that. There's so many different ways profit and loss statements can be wrong on both sides. There are tricks advantage players use. I won't go into what they are, but there's tricks advantage players use to make it look like they lost when they really won. And that is for a different reason. That's not for any kind of uh, illegal uh, schemes, but it is done so the casino isn't on to the fact that the advantage player is actually winning and keeps letting them play and also will give them uh, better offers to come back. And that shows up in the win-loss statement. So there are advantage players with losses at casinos on uh, win-loss statements who have actually won a lot of money there. That's been going on for a long time. So that's another way they can be inaccurate in the other direction.
So you can't completely trust those win-loss statements. There can be a lot of shenanigans. That's something else to consider. But sometimes OCAM's razor applies, and it's just a matter of someone getting lucky at one particular casino and showing you that. Before I end this segment, uh, speaking of Christopher Mitchell, who is kind of like a much, much, much uh, lower stakes version and simpler version of uh, this whole thing, regardless of what the true story is with Mickey, uh, it's both a similar thing where they're both claiming to crush the casinos at negative expectation games. But with Christopher Mitchell, at one point I made a challenge to him, which, of course, he didn't acknowledge. But I made a challenge that either I or a representative of mine will pick 20 random casinos around uh, Las Vegas. Or it doesn't have to be random. 20 casinos around Las Vegas. And that we will go with Christopher to each casino, have him ask for a win-loss statement, and then add them all up. And if... Once we add what those 20 casinos are, remember, this is something we pick. He doesn't pick it, so he can't handpick the one he wants. If if the 20 casinos add up to a an overall win, then he would win the bet. And if they end up to an overall loss, then I win the bet. That was the challenge I made. Of course, he didn't respond. And that's because, obviously, if we went around to all those casinos and checked, that uh, Christopher Mitchell would be a loser because he plays negative expectation games. And you can't beat those, even in the medium term. So we're going to move on and talk about the massive crash that Bovada and Ignition had about a week ago. And how you still might have a little bit of time to get some free money if you haven't claimed it yet. So Bovada started as Bodog in the year 2000. And it has existed in various forms for now over 21 years, which is pretty impressive, especially because they've never been busted and they have never had a significant scandal. There have been some incidents that haven't been very good, but nothing that was major that would either bring the site down or seriously dent their reputation. Like they ripped off Trader Ruski, not for a lot of money, but they definitely ripped him off, and he's never playing there again, and I understand his reasoning there, and I'd be pissed off too if that happened to me. And there's been a number of minor incidents like that, but they really have gone for over two decades without uh, anything really, really dragging them down. And the thing they've done best has been payouts. They've been very reliable with payouts the entire time, even when payouts were particularly difficult to do in the early 2010s before cryptocurrency was being used to do payouts. And after Black Friday, when it was a lot harder to find payment processors, they still were able to do this. And at least if you win on Bovada, you get paid. And that's always been the case. The history was it was Bodog for a long time. Then they became Bovada for the American market, and they remained Bodog for the non-American market. And that was uh, just for reasons of avoiding 
getting busted by the U.S. government that they uh, split off the site, but you were still playing on the same network, so you'd play against the same players. It was just a different way in. Uh, then at one point, they decided to separate the sports betting part of the business from the poker part of the business. So uh, Bovada no longer had poker on it. Ignition was created, which again was on the same network, and yet they were claiming it was different owners, but I, I never believed that. I still think it's the same owners. And Ignition was created for poker, and it also had a casino. It was, in fact, it was called Ignition Casino, but there was no sports betting. And then Bovada had a casino, and it had sports betting, but no poker. What eventually happened was enough people on Bovada complained that there was no longer any poker, that they brought it back. So uh, between that and they also weren't as worried anymore. They, they were doing this because they were afraid that uh, the government was much more concerned about illegal sports betting than they were about uh, illegal poker and illegal casino games. So the sports betting product was separated away. So if, if one went down, they would still have the other that uh, could continue on. So they basically had two products operating simultaneously, masquerading as two different companies. And uh, at some point, they just decided to abandon that. And while Bovada and Ignition still exist and uh, still both run, you can play poker on both now. But you are playing against the same people. So it doesn't really matter which one you're on. Bovada and Ignition have never had any significant downtime, nor has Bodog, to my knowledge. I mean, they've had periods where they're down for a few hours, just like all poker sites, but there's never been any kind of long-term downtime where people started to get concerned. That was until mid-December of 2021, and it had its first long-term downtime, which can be very damaging because it starts to erode people's confidence. And it also gets them out of the habit of playing. It can sometimes break people's habits of playing somewhere regularly. It can get them to rethink things. This isn't just true of gambling sites. Uh, Roblox, which is a very, very big multiplayer platform, gaming platform that uh, is mostly inhabited by kids. And I've mentioned before that my son plays on there. Roblox had a massive downtime, and I talked about this before on the show, that was about three days, that was around Halloween weekend. And that actually later affected their stock prices. Immediately, it actually didn't. But then later on, Roblox's stock actually fell as a result of uh, reduced earnings, which came because of that downtime. Not only weren't they making money on those days, but it seemed to have uh, rattled people away from returning there and spending as much time or money on the platform. So long-term downtime, and when I say long-term, I mean where it's days rather than hours, can really hurt any kind of website. So on uh, December 17th, Bovada and Ignition were down. I, I don't know exactly the time it went down. It may have been actually on the 16th. I wasn't, uh, she wasn't available. I think it did start on the 16th. But uh, 
I wasn't looking that day. I, I happened to not be around on that day. So anyway, I know on the 17th is when people were starting to get more worried. Now, people were really concerned that all of their money was just going to be gone, that Bovada and Ignition either got busted or they were running off with the money. There were even some rumors that their wallet where they held a bunch of cryptocurrency had gotten hacked somehow and that all the money on deposit was taken and they didn't know what to do. These rumors were going around without any evidence backing them. And I wasn't worried. In fact, I posted on December 17th, I wouldn't worry about it. Yes, this is one of their longest outages ever, I wrote, but they're, they were paying almost instantly all the way up through the present. So obviously they aren't out of money. Their domain seemed to be okay, so it probably wasn't a seizure from the feds. My guess is a DDoS attack. And I said that because I've noticed a bunch of disconnects and freezes in the weeks prior. So... I was one of the few who was calm about this. I was looking at 2 plus 2. I was looking at social media. A lot of people were very concerned about this. I guess it started either the 15th or the 16th. But uh, they finally came back on the 18th. And again, this was they were down at least two days, maybe three. And they were giving updates on social media while they were down. But the updates were claiming that it was a result of a failed software update. You know, every so often it pushes a software update where it says you must update and then it downloads new software. They were claiming that a failed software update messed up the whole thing and that's why it's been down. But this never made much sense. First of all, uh, the websites were down for a while or when you could get through to them, they weren't functional. Second, is a very easy fix to a failed update. You just roll it back to the previous update. This is something where you'd have a few hours of downtime at most. So a failed update didn't make any sense. I noticed, as I said before, in the weeks prior, there were a lot of disconnects and they were really frustrating because the way the disconnect would happen would be you'd be on there and then, like, let's say you're in a hand and you bet... And then it comes to your opponent, and it, you watch his time ticking down. And it goes tick, 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 tick. And you're going, okay, well, this guy's going to time out, or maybe he's just thinking a long time. But then instead of it auto-folding him, the timer just disappears. And then you go, oh, no. That's not him timing out. That's me timing out. So basically, it was waiting for that person to act on your end. And your end can't see that he did act. And so the action is actually on you. Your side just can't see it. So what's really happening is you're getting disconnected and you're going to be folded out of the hand. And I, I even posted a picture of one of these on 2 plus 2 where I had pocket aces and someone had just check raised me on a board where you're pretty happy to have someone check raise you on the turn. Well, I thought the pocket aces were good and I thought they were check raising me with top pair. And it turned out I was right, by the way, and I, I won the hand. Uh, I barely reconnected in time. That's how I ended up winning the hand. But I was almost timed out of it. I mean, I was just seconds away from completely timing out. So most of the time you do completely time out. Once in a while, it will recover and you'll reconnect. However, I was getting a ton of these over the past few weeks. And before this was not happening very often. Yeah, I had a few disconnects, but 
it was never like it had been for the month of December and late November. So there was something wrong, and others were experiencing this too. In fact, sometimes multiple players would disconnect, but never everybody, which is too bad because the general policy on that network is if every single player disconnects, they will give you the money you put into that pot if you ended up losing the pot. But if some people stay connected, then they blame, erroneously by the way, your connection. So you can say, well, how come two others disconnected? And they'll say back, well, how come three others were still on? So three of you probably had bad internet and three of you probably didn't. Maybe three of you were on the same provider. Maybe it was some routing issue. This isn't our problem. If all six people disconnect, then you can blame it on their side. So that, that's how they've handled it when I've complained about disconnects before. If I, I can usually talk them into giving me a refund where at least the money I put into the hand comes back if every single player disconnected. Otherwise, they say no. So I didn't see it even once where every single player disconnected, but I saw a lot of these where a few people did or just me or just me and one other. So I knew it wasn't just on my end, and other people complained about the same problem getting worse in the prior few weeks. And I wondered at the time, I wonder if this is a DDoS, because that kind of is a symptom of a site being DDoS. In case you don't know, DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service, and that's the type of attack where a lot of different computers at once are trying to connect to a website just to take it down, to overwhelm it with connections. The reason a distributed denial of service attack is so much more powerful than just a DOS, a denial of service attack, is because if it's just one machine, it's very easy for the site to have something automated in place to block the connection of one computer that's sending a lot of requests. But if there's a lot of different computers, sometimes thousands, sending requests at once, then that's much harder to do. That's much harder to stop. And also, a lot more can be done at once. There's a lot more that a thousand computers can do at once than one. So DDoSs are usually what take sites down, not DOSs. And that's the difference there. So how can someone get thousands of computers to do it? Uh, usually it's done with uh, some sort of malware that takes over machines that give the hacker control of all of them. And sometimes the person with a machine that's been infected this way isn't even aware. Their machine just slows down somewhat, but they don't know why. And in the meantime, the hacker has uh, control of this connection, which is sending these uh, attacks. And the actual owner of the computer can actually use it at the same time. As I said, it just, it just doesn't perform as well, and they, they don't know why. So... Uh, usually this is not thousands of willing participants. This is usually uh, one guy in control of thousands of computers that are sometimes uh, referred to as zombies. So I thought a DDoS might be possible because when a DDoS is happening, sometimes what occurs is there starts being connectivity issues. And connectivity issues can sometimes only affect people who are connecting from certain regions or sometimes even just randomly, it'll start uh, having trouble with certain connections and not others. So when you start seeing kind of flaky connections for everybody, but to where it's not completely going down, that starts to look a lot like a DDoS attack. And that's what I was starting to think before we even had this downtime. But then we have this complete downtime. 
And I really thought that there was a good chance that this was from a DDoS attack that maybe was stepped up so it went from uh, disconnects to just completely nobody being able to access it. And then uh, the failed update story may have been partially true. What they may have done is they may have tried to push an update to people to uh, solve this DDoS attack, and then that failed, and that uh, compounded the problem. So it may have been one of these things where it was half true, but it wasn't the main reason that uh, was the whole downtime happened. They were giving updates, but they kept being overly optimistic with the updates. They keep kept saying, okay, a few more hours, a few more hours, a few more hours, and, and people weren't buying it after a while. It was like... Uh, how many times can you keep hearing the same thing? Okay, a few more hours, a few more hours, a few more hours, and they don't come back up. So people started really picturing, okay, remember Full Tilt? Remember UB? Remember Lock Poker? Remember all these sites that just disappeared that seemed to be healthy that turned out they had no money? But I said, this is different. When a site is having trouble paying you know this beforehand. The only one that was the exception to this was Full Tilt because they were able to maintain the facade they were paying because they just barely had enough to pay out the cash outs but uh, had very little money behind. But aside from that, all the others that had issues, they were also having payout problems. And then eventually they went down. So here you've had a site that's been up for over two decades that has paid extremely well, including recently, and now just what, one day they just don't have the money anymore? Now, I know that theory about, oh, maybe their wallet got hacked, but someone on uh, Reddit actually found a wallet that uh, seemed to be associated with them. And uh, it, it was pretty surprising what was found there. That wallet actually had in it... $100 billion! No, but it had $3 billion, Like $3.4 billion. I don't know if... They really have a wallet of $3.4 billion of cryptocurrency, or if maybe that's a, a payment processor, but they found some wallet that seemed to be associated with Bovada with $3.4 billion. So I kind of doubt that they were out of money there. Uh, I just It just wasn't adding up to me. It, it didn't look like it was a failed update. It didn't look like they were running off with the money. Uh, the updates that they were giving on social media wouldn't have been as frequent if they were intentionally running off. Like, what would be the point if they were running off to keep stalling a few hours, a few hours? If, if anything, they would be uh, saying, you know, give us a day. They wouldn't just create this frustration with these false expectations that are coming back up. I, I kind of thought those updates that they were giving were what they thought at the time. They just couldn't solve it. I felt that they were getting DDoS and they were thinking they could solve it in a shorter time than they actually did. And why wouldn't they admit they're getting DDoS? Well, because they don't want people to be nervous that outside parties can ruin the site like this. Because then you don't feel your money's safe. Now, I'm not worried, but there are people who would feel that if they can be taken down by DDoSs like this, then they may not want to play there. It, additionally, people are going to complain about all the disconnects they had before. Because one thing, one big criticism people have of Bovada and Ignition is whenever you have these disconnects, and you call up and complain, even if it's totally their fault, they will say, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, clear your cache and try again or, or reset your router and try again. They love to tell you things like that. And it never helps because it's rarely on your end. It's usually on theirs in some way or it's because of their software that sucks. That's usually why you're having these issues. It's usually not on your end where you can connect to everything else but them. 
Like if, if you're disconnected and then you can't connect to any other website, then yes, it's on your end. But usually when everything else works and their site doesn't and you're just getting disconnected, it, it's some problem on their side in some way. But they won't admit it because they don't want to give you refunds. So that's one criticism they've gotten and it's, it's a valid criticism. So they don't want everybody coming to them with their hands out saying, ah, okay, well, DDoS, no wonder we've gotten all these disconnects the last few weeks. Okay, give us the money from all these disconnects. Like they, they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to admit that these last weeks prior to that, they also had issues. So the, the simplest thing is to say, oh, no, no, this is just a failed update. We're fixing it. So on one hand, I'm not worried about their future and I'm not worried about them having my money. And keep in mind, I had plenty of money on there. So it wasn't even like... I barely had anything and couldn't sweat it. Like if if they really were running off with it, that would really suck for me. But I wasn't worried. I wasn't the slightest bit worried. I, I was talking to Benjamin's mom about this as it was down. And I said, you know what? Everybody's panicking about this. I'm not. And I told her, I think it's a DDoS. I don't think they're running off. I'd be shocked if they're running off. I'd be shocked if they were hacked and have no money. I, I don't believe any of that's happening. Well, they came back up. They came back up on December 18th. They still stuck to the ridiculous uh, failed update story. However, they did say that there that you may have some issues when you try to connect to them again upon them returning on the 18th. They said, once we're back, you may come across some issues that include caching, account login, responsiveness of the website, and DNS issues. Rest assured, your account and funds are safe. So I replied back, and of course I got no answer from them. Why would this be the result of fixing a failed update? Sounds like you were being DDoS attacked and eventually switched service providers as part of the fix. The biggest clue here is the DNS issues. What they're talking about here is that you may not be able to connect to them at first because they're probably on a different IP address now. And this takes a while to propagate to where all networks can recognize it. And that uh, you may have a cached address for them, which you can't even see, but your computer has a cached address for them, which is no longer actually them, so you're not going to be able to connect. So they're saying that this will resolve itself within a relatively short time, usually within a day or two, uh, sometimes less than that. And that's true. But they're saying, you know, right at the beginning, you may have some issues and they say uh, caching account login responsiveness uh, uh, DNS issues it's like it sounds exactly like they've switched providers that's what that sounds like to me if it was a failed update this makes no sense if it's a failed update then they fixed the update why should you have these problems these are network problems they're talking about they're saying we're back up you may have network problems okay well why that, that wouldn't be from a failed update why so it really sounds like they changed something. Either they changed ISPs or they, they, they have some uh, middleman site that is preventing DDoS now. Whatever it might be, they have put something in place that is different, that is making it more difficult to DDoS the site. That is my opinion here. And I think I'm right. I haven't done extensive investigation into this and I'm not going to. But I, I think there's a good chance this is what it is. Their, their update just makes no sense, this whole thing, about uh, that they just had a failed update and it took them a few days to fix and it's back. No, I don't believe it. I mentioned Roblox. They also lied about their situation. Roblox, I think, had some kind of data corruption issue 
they had a promotion to get a free burrito at Chipotle and like 14,000 users or was it 14,000 or 14 million no I think it's 14 million <laughs> I think 14 million users went on at once to claim the burrito and it crashed the servers and also may have caused some data corruption and they were so afraid to admit this because they didn't want Chipotle to get blamed and it wasn't their fault but they didn't want anyone to blame the sponsor and they also didn't want to discourage any other sponsors from having partnerships or advertising with them in the future. So they kept saying over and over, this has nothing to do with Chipotle, nothing to do with any kind of advertising partnerships. Like they, they kept saying that over and over and they claimed that they were just uh, uh, trying to make something better and trying to do a system upgrade. It was BS. They just didn't want to admit what really occurred. So this is similar. I think Bovada Ignition does not want you to know they were being DDoS'd into submission. And I've also noticed since they came back up that uh, the disconnects are nowhere near as bad. Now, this is important. You may have free money waiting there. If you have been playing in the 30 days prior to December 18th, and when I say playing, I don't mean actively. I mean, if you were just playing at all, any kind of uh, activity, you may have money waiting for you there. Anywhere between like 30 and $150, I believe, is the range. They didn't give the range, but this is what I've seen. I got 100 which kind of sucks. I think I deserved 150 because I was very active, and people less active than me got 150 but, you know, good for them. I'm not going to be jealous. I got 100 I'll be happy for you. I'm not going to say I deserved that 50 I did. I mean, I kind of did deserve the 50 that you got, and I didn't. But I'll be happy for you. I'm not going to begrudge others for getting free money that was more than I got. Why should I? I mean, I'll be happy for these people. It's just fucking assholes. It's, they don't deserve this 150. No, that's fine. Like, I, it doesn't bother me at all. And... I'm just happy I got the hundred, and it's free money. And if people didn't deserve it, pranks. Okay, okay. Uh, let me, uh, let's let me go on here. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put myself in a bad mood. Yeah, some people got thirty, some got a hundred, got some got one fifty. Now, if you didn't play, you're not going to get anything. But if you should check both Ignition and Bovada. You could even have gotten on both if you were playing on both in the last thirty days. But they have what's known as uh, one-time clearance. Now, you can clear it pretty quickly in the casino if you want, because you just got to play that exact amount. So if you got $100, you just got to wager $100. Not even all at once. You could do 10 bets of 10, whatever. And then you can immediately clear it, and you've got it. Or you have to earn poker points to get the money. And... uh, by the way, the one-time clearance in the casino isn't as easy as it seems because it's only one time in slots, but at table games, it's actually five times, and at video poker, it's ten times. So that's only if you're desperate to have to clear it, but otherwise, just clear it through poker. You don't have to even play all that much. I cleared it already. The only problem is that this is ending on December 26th, so depending upon when you listen to this, it may already be over. I'm not sure what time on the 26th. It may be like 9 p.m. Pacific 
but that's when you had to clear it. So get to it quickly. But they did give this free money to a lot of people. And is that good enough? I mean, yeah, they don't really owe you anything, to be honest. They can be up when they want to be up, and they can be down when they want to be down, and they don't owe you being up. But they they were trying to do this for goodwill and kind of have you forget about what happened there. They want your final impression to be, oh, cool, free money, not other assholes. It was down for a few days, and it scared me. Because that's what a lot of people were thinking. A lot of people were scared. Didn't bother me much. I just thought, okay, I'd like to see them solve whatever this is, but I'm not worried. But a lot of people felt differently. I will tell you guys when I'm worried. Like, you can even check my Twitter, twitter.com slash toddwoodhellis, and you'll see if I am concerned. And I wasn't concerned. I even tweeted that I wasn't concerned. And I'm not some Bovada lackey. I will criticize them when they deserve it, and I have many times. But I wasn't concerned, and they're back up, and they're operating, and it seems like the network's doing better. So all's well that ends well, and check for that free money. And if you really don't have time to play it through with a poker, if you, if you do hear about this in time, and you, you got to go to the bonus area to get it. And uh, to do this, what you need to do is you need to click on account... And then you need to go to uh, bon- the bonuses tab. The account uh, button is on the left of the software. Then you click on the bonuses tab. And then you scroll down and you'll see the bonuses you have. And if one of them says, uh, you know, $100, $30, like some kind of bonus for, for the downtime, it'll say. Just click on claim and then it'll tell you how long you have. I think it's only going to be to the 26th. So time's about to be up on that. I think they should have given you more time to clear it. I don't know why they only gave you... A- a little more than a week, but that's what they did. And it's possible it was just for me it was the 26th, so you, you may want to check. Maybe you have longer than the 26th. Just whenever you hear this, go check. Unless you haven't been playing them, then you probably won't get anything. I always like to let you guys know when there's free money waiting. In short, am I concerned at all about the future of Bovada and Ignition? No. I think they're going to be around for a while. They are actually very good, not only at cash-outs, but also at avoiding the wrath of the U.S. and the state governments in the U.S. That's why, for example, you cannot play as a Nevada resident. If you're visiting Nevada, they will let you play. But there's a notice up there that if you live there now, you can't play. But if you're visiting, it's fine. If you try to log in from Nevada, it'll show that to you if they see your IP is from that state. And there's a few other states like that. They're basically trying to not compete with any uh, regulated poker market. And that's smart. Okay, so I want to move on and talk about 2 plus 2. 2 plus 2 has a new rule in place, which I didn't think I would ever see. 2 plus 2 has decided that they are never going to allow personal attacks on the site ever again. A dirty secret of 2 plus 2 is that there's a lot of trolling there, and always has been. And it's always annoyed me when Mason Malmuth in the past, and he's no longer the owner of the site, but when in the past he would put down sites that I was involved with as being full of hate and vitriol when there was just as much on his site, and yet they had much less free speech. It was very selective what type of free speech he would have there. And no, no site can be totally free speech. And I've had to deal with that myself. 
at times when I have to delete something. And like having a free speech site doesn't mean that someone can just be on my site and just every single post I make follow me around the site and constantly troll me just for fun. Uh, that's that's not enjoyable for me to be part of. And so I'm not going to allow that. But at the same time, uh, uh, I let people express themselves and be themselves and even criticize me. And then I don't ban them or delete their posts. But uh, Or also if someone's trying to disrupt a serious thread, I'll, I'll ban them from the thread. So my site isn't completely free speech, but it's a lot more free speech than 2 plus 2 has ever been. But at the same time, 2 plus 2 has allowed a lot of trolling and sometimes pretty serious trolling. So remember, 2 plus 2 was bought by, I think, Russians. They may be Ukrainian, but I like to call them the Russians. But by two young guys who I think are Russian, and they're currently living in Canada. I think they paid a lot of money. I think Mason made out pretty well. But anyway, nothing against the two Russians who bought it. Uh, they, they seem like pretty reasonable guys. I've had a little communication with them, and they seem cool enough. And in fact, I told them, like, I don't want to do anything to disrupt your site. Like, I'm back on 2 plus 2 now, and uh, Mason is still posting there regularly, which is weird because he's not the owner anymore. But, like, I told them, you know what, guys, like, I don't get along with Mason, but I, I don't want to be a disruption here because I understand this has nothing to do with you, and I, I want to show you guys respect as the new owners of the site. So, uh, you know, I, I've stated what I've stated about Mason, and I'm going to drop it. And, th- and that's what I've done. So, anyway... They've made a new rule, not because of me, in fact. They made this rule when I hadn't posted in a while there. But they made a new rule on 2 plus 2 that there's just no more personal attacks allowed. So I'm going to read you what they wrote. It was in there about the forums subforum. And this was started by one of the two Russians, Andriy Plakhatny. Hello, everyone. This is on December 16th. As part of our long-term strategy to build a brand of a place of intelligent discussions about poker, we will no longer tolerate personal attacks on 2 plus 2. All posts containing a personal attack should be deleted. We encourage all 2 plus 2ers to report such posts and we'll take actions as fast as possible because there's a report button, as there is on my site, by the way. We will monitor whether the change plays out and revert it if necessary. Your feedback is welcome. So they're actually saying not ever. It's possible this will go back, but at the moment they believe this is a permanent change, unless they think it's a failure. So the Russians have just kind of decided that they want good discussions on there, and they they don't want posts or threads that are just attacking people, that it's going to drive people away, it's going to make the site look too toxic. And they had mixed response to this. Some people applauded this and said this is very nice that they uh, are doing away with this. Others are saying, come on, let people be themselves. Others are saying, how are you going to enforce this? It's too hard to tell the difference between criticism and trolling in many cases. So There's a lot of good points being brought up on both sides regarding this change, especially to say... Like, just not on the forum at all. It's a lot easier to say that about a particular thread. And I'll do that on Poker Fraud Alert. I'll start a a serious thread about a topic that I want uh, 
good and pure discussion of, and I don't want it derailed with trolling. And I'll say, no trolling allowed in this thread. Please don't troll here. Anyone who does will get banned from the thread and their post deleted. And then, then I'll do it. If somebody ruins the thread with trolling, then I will delete their post and ban them from the thread. So that's a lot easier to do thread by thread because you can pick a few threads that you don't want to see disrupted and, and make sure people just stick to the topic. But uh, for an entire forum, that's hard because some threads get started that uh, there is likely to be a lot of uh, arguing. It depends on the topic. So like, let's say I want to start a topic about uh, World Series events that I'd like to see at the 2022 World Series. Well, there's not really any room for trolling there. I'm talking about like on Poker Fraud Alert. So if I were to say, look, I only want discussion of events at the World Series. I don't want trolling in here. And that's very easy to see why. And it's very easy for me to moderate along those lines. However, uh, if if someone posts a story of, hey, um, I went to Vegas and there was this uh, hot chick there and I know she was totally into me, but... Uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't give her the time of day because uh, you know I thought I could do better. And they, you know, some, let's say I some post some stupid story about that. Well, that's likely to get a lot of criticism. People who don't believe him, people who think he's exaggerating, people who think that uh, he really tried to hit on this girl and she rejected him, and he's changing the story. You know, there's a lot that someone would say in response to a thread like that, where it's hard to tell the difference between criticism and trolling because there's a line that's kind of blurry there in a situation like that, whereas something like discussing World Series events to have at the next uh, WSOP, uh, that's something where it's very easy to tell what's a quality post and what isn't. So this is where you can't always make that rule and have it not ruin the forum. So I'm still one who believes that this rule isn't very good to make forum-wide. Now, you can say, I'm not going to allow certain types of attacks. So you can say, nobody can make any threats. In fact, that's a rule on Poker Fraud Alert. You can't make any kind of threats of physical violence. Or you can say, no doxing. That's also something that's a rule on Poker Fraud Alert. You can say, you can't make fun of someone's personal appearance. Now, that's not a rule on Poker Fraud Alert, but I can understand where a a forum could say that, that they don't want... uh, threads ruined by calling someone fat or ugly or old or whatever. Or you can say, I don't want to see any kind of insults based upon someone's race or based upon their sexual preference. I mean, that's it. So you can have a lot of these different uh, rules in place that uh, restrict certain types of insults or criticism or trolling. But if you make it overly restrictive, then you really choke out the conversation because people can't disagree with one another where it, without it starting to look like uh, one is, quote, personally attacking the other. So that's where you get these blurred lines and it becomes uh, difficult to moderate. And uh, I've had people before say to me, uh, there's too many personal attacks on Poker Fraud Alert. And I say, well, but I don't want to get into this deciding what's a personal attack and what isn't. There's certain things I absolutely don't allow, certain things I prefer not to see but aren't explicitly disallowed, but if I see them just being done gratuitously, I'll stop it. 
But it's, it's always kind of like a judgment call as I look at it. And since I'm the sole owner and moderator of the site, that makes it to where there's one pretty consistent interpretation. But when you have a lot of different moderators, then this can be a lot harder. And even if there's just one moderator, if you don't make it clear to the users what you're expecting, then you can again have problems. Now, on 2 plus 2, I will say that there has been a lot less activity than the 2 plus 2 you used to. And I'm talking about before the Russians bought it. It just has been a dying site. And they kind of bought a dying site. And I'm sure they realize that. And they may think that one of the reasons it's been dying is because a lot of the good people have been run off. And that maybe if it returns to what he calls intelligent discussions, that it'll start to bring people back. So maybe they prefer to lose some of the more colorful discussions and in exchange get quality discussions and hope that will bring people back once they see that the discussions that take place there are good. The problem with that thinking is that just because it doesn't have personal attacks doesn't mean a post is good. I've seen a lot of trash posts on 2 plus 2 which are not attacking anyone. They're just dumb. They're just idiotic posts. And you get too high of a noise-to-signal ratio, and a thread becomes crap. So it's much better to have a 10-page thread where 80% of it is good than a 100-page thread where 20% of it is good. Also, on a site that's just basically losing activity, you don't want to put a lot of new restrictions on. Now, I think what is a good rule, if they want to go this direction, is just stop new threads that are about personal attacks. So I can understand why in the News Views Gossip Forum they don't want, well, John Smith is an asshole and here's why, and then have a whole thread about why John Smith is an asshole. Now, if John Smith did something significant in poker, let's say he was on TV acting like an asshole, then that's fine. But just if you just in general think John Smith is an asshole, that, that's not the greatest uh, topic to have if you want to have a forum which is known for good discussions, good serious discussions. I can see why they would not want that type of thread started. Whereas I think it's different than in an existing thread about like, let's say there's an existing thread about which poker players just don't you like. If one individual posts, you know what? I just think John Smith is an asshole he didn't do anything to me, but I just just watching the guy, he's an asshole, and I just don't like him. That That's different. If there's a single post in a thread kind of already talking about that general topic. But they didn't delve into this in such detail on 2 plus 2. They're just saying, no personal attacks anymore. And if you see one, then report it, and the mods will delete it. This is very much opposite of what they claimed when they first took over. When the Russians bought it, they claimed it's going to go the other direction, where there's going to be basically no moderation. They claimed it's going to be pretty much a free-for-all. In fact, they claimed they may even have bots do the modding there, which would be kind of weird. That never came to pass, but now they've gone from it's going to be a free-for-all to actually no personal attacks at all. I think they're still feeling out what they want to do with the site. Someone even asked in that thread, how are you even monetizing this place? I don't understand how this thing's making you money because it's not running any ads 
and it's not promoting any products, even their own product. They have a product called the hand to note heads up display, and they're not even promoting their own product there, which they said they wouldn't. They said we're not going to be promoting this product here, and they're they're keeping to it. But towards the end of the Mason Malmuth reign there, there were all these obnoxious ads all over the place to where the whole site was kind of an embarrassment. Then when asked why it was so full of these terrible ads, uh, Matt Skolansky at one point said, well, just leave, let us leave the ads up till Tuesday. We need the money. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. So this is the opposite. They have no ads. I don't see one ad browsing it. So people are scratching their heads going, what are they doing with the site again? And I don't know. I, I still think it's possible that they just kind of made an impulse buy of 2 plus 2 because these guys had a lot of money. Maybe they made a bunch in cryptocurrency and they're like, you know what would be cool? If we just own the 2 plus 2 forums. Let's just make a really high offer to Mason and see if he goes for it. And Mason's like, hey, I'm 70 years old. F it. Sold. <laughs> I think it's kind of like that. Okay. You know, it's their site. They can run it how they like. And I have to say, the Russians have treated me very respectfully so far. I have no gripe with the Russians. I don't want to make it sound like that uh, I do. And it's up to them how they want to run it. And I actually think it's nice that there's no ads there and they're not trying to monetize it at the moment. They have a right to. It's fine if they do, but I, I think it's fine that they're just running it right now and kind of throwing things around about what they're going to do with it. So that's the new change on 2 plus 2, and it's effective immediately. Okay, so I want to talk about a crypto token that you might be able to get for free. You may have uh, a good deal worth of free tokens waiting for you if you've been doing a lot of NFT trading. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get any, I think. And that was a disappointment because at first I thought I was going to. So there is a site called OpenSea. That's OpenSea, OpenSea.io. And OpenSea is a big NFT, non-fungible token trading site. And you can buy and sell NFTs on there. And it's very heavily used. However, OpenSea has had some issues over time. They've had some scandals. And there's been scams that have been run on there, not by OpenSea themselves, but uh, there's a lot of scammers on there and that they've taken some heat for that and for not putting enough uh, effort into stopping it. So there's been a number of different complaints about OpenSea. Now there is uh, going to be an airdrop. In fact, there presently is an airdrop for a new crypto token called SOS. And uh, the allocation of these free tokens are based upon various factors involving users on OpenSea. So there is this token called SOS, and it's... uh, done by a group called OpenDAO, D-A-O. And uh, OpenDAO has selected OpenSea users as the recipients of this airdrop. 
and they claim that the point of this airdrop is as follows. To compensate verified scam victims who've been ripped off on OpenSea, to support emerging artists and their original work, that's referring to artists for NFTs, to support NFT communities, and also to provide developer grants for the new ecosystem for their SOS token. If you don't understand all this, I'm trying to explain it in uh, simple terms so everyone can kind of get it. But uh, basically, this site is where you trade those NFTs and uh, you can buy and sell them for Ethereum or uh, other cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, depending on what uh, network that these NFTs are part of. And if you use that site to make any kind of uh, sale or buy in the past, if you've used OpenSea, then OpenDAO is going to give you these tokens for free based upon your activity level and uh, whether you were uh, a scam victim and a few other factors. So basically all you do is you go to their site, which is uh, the Open DAO. that's T-H-E Open D-A-O, that's T-H-E-O-P-E-N-D-A-O, the Open DAO. make sure you spell it exactly like that, remember DAO is D-A-O, theopendow.com, and then you log into your wallet that you had used with OpenSea in the past, and see if you're eligible for these SOS tokens. Now, some people are getting a lot of these tokens that's worth uh, thousands of dollars. Some people are getting these tokens worth about hundreds of dollars. And some people are getting very little. It depends upon these factors I was talking about. However, I went on there. Remember, I have been playing Zed Run, which is a form of NFTs. And I've used OpenSea to buy and sell horses on Zed Run. So I figured I had to be eligible, right? Well, I went on there, and it said that I was entitled to... 0.0. And I went and looked at their Twitter, and it mentioned that that's because of a server error, and they're going to fix it, don't worry. Well, then I got the bad news. It's not because of a server error, not, at least not for me. It's because Zedrun is actually not doing transactions in Ethereum. It's doing it in something called Polygon, which is based on Ethereum, but is not Ethereum. So because these are Polygon transactions and not technically Ethereum, you don't qualify for this drop. And you can't even complain to OpenSea because this is actually a separate operation from OpenSea. It's just based upon people's activity on OpenSea. So there's really nothing I can do. I haven't done any NFT transactions other than these ones for Zedrun. So this leaves me out in the cold. I've not been a big NFT guy. So I'm not going to be able to get any of these free tokens, which is sad. And I've spoken to other Zedrun players who aren't really getting to other NFTs, and they have the same issue. So it looks like it's just not going to happen for me. But if you have been using OpenSea to trade NFTs in any way, then you should go to 
theopendao.com and see if you're eligible. Now, you don't have to drop everything and do it because supposedly you have until June 30th to claim whatever tokens are waiting for you. That's a long time. That's all over six months. Also beware that scammers are already jumping on this. It's funny that this is being done supposedly to compensate scam victims and then scammers are jumping on it. So before I understood what was going on with a Polygon situation, I tweeted to the Open DAO and I said, can you please let us know when the ineligible error will go away? Everyone I know is getting that. And then I got a message, a actually a tweet reply, not a direct message, but a tweet reply from OpenDAO official support. Kindly send us a direct message for immediate assistance. Thanks. Well, I almost did, but then I decided to take a look at the account, especially because it had a weird name called Ana Community instead of anything having to do with OpenDAO. So I looked at the account and it had like three followers. <laughs> So I realized this is an open DAO official support. This is a freaking scam. I don't know what they're going to ask me to do, but probably something to give away access to my wallet. So I said to them, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to pass on that one, scammer. Nice try, though. Get a job, asshole. And that person didn't respond. So a fake open DAO support responded to me, trying to get me to give them info and I didn't fall for it, but that's just showing you like how fast they jump on this. They they answered me real fast too, like within like a minute or two. They probably have a bot doing this, so just be careful. Be sure you're really on the site t h e open dao d a o dot com, and don't go to anything else that looks like it. And make sure you spell everything right, and then see if you're eligible. Okay, so moving on here, I'm going to give you an update about Johnny Chan's 88 Social. Remember that? Remember Johnny Chan's 88 Social that had all the problems? Well, I had a feeling that it wasn't coming back and that if a card room was going to continue, it was going to be someone buying it out. And indeed, that has been what has occurred. So this has all occurred pretty quickly, actually. Johnny Chan's 88 Social, which closed its doors after some rumored problems that had been going on there, but they just one day had locked doors and people who had chips that they had not cashed in could not cash them. And there was no state gaming commission to complain to because there is no such thing in Texas. These were technically social clubs where home poker games just happened to take place. So even though these were organized poker games, they are not licensed or regulated in any way, and the chips are basically worthless. So that's one big problem with that Texas poker scene. This is in Houston, Texas, where uh, Johnny Chan's 88 Social was, and we discussed this on the last Poker Fraud Alert radio. So there was a lot of concern that these chips would never be able to be cashed in. And there was some concern that maybe 88 Social would never reopen even with new owners because it's right down the street from another club called Legends and Legends basically taking all their action and there just may not be enough interest 
in these poker clubs there to have two basically right next to each other. And there's others besides them, like there's one called Prime Social that's competing as well, just not quite as close. But a new owner has indeed purchased it. It's a guy named Sanjeev Vora, who looks like a middle-aged Indian man. It is now called the 101 Poker Club. In fact, they've already changed the sign on the front. It says 101 Poker. No longer says 88 Social. That's been wiped off. And uh, they've done renovations. They've, they've really jumped on this very fast to change 88 Social to 101 Poker and making it nicer. Jenny, Johnny Chan is no longer involved at all. He, I don't understand. I don't know if he's received anything from the sale or what, but uh, I know that this is now owned by somebody else who was not involved before. If you're wondering about who this Sanjeev Vora is, he's only a recreational poker player. He's not a poker pro. He's the CEO of Chemium International Corp. That's C H E M I U M. And uh, it's some kind of uh, chemical engineering firm. And he said he just wanted to buy it because he loves poker. He claims that on December 27th, which of course is coming very soon, he's going to have a soft launch of the poker room. He said this in an interview with Poker News. And he's hired uh, general manager Jeff Faber, F-A-B-E-R. I haven't heard of him before, but... He hired him to run the new room. Jeff Faber had nothing to do with the previous 88 Social either. He says, I'm fortunate to have Jeff on my team with his reputation and experience. He said they've already uh, replaced the carpet that was, quote, outdated and that the customers will love it and will, quote, feel the warmth when they walk into the doors. However, he said the renovation is ongoing and it won't be done for a few months. Now, the 101 Poker Club has another location in Katy, Texas. And it has nothing to do with this 101 Poker. So why would he do this? So people asked him, why, why are you affiliating yourself with a business that has nothing to do with yours? It's a different room in a different city. And apparently he played there and liked it. So he said, 101 is my family. I love the way I'm treated by the players, dealers, and owner at 101. So I guess he got permission or something to open up a 101 club over in uh, Houston. He says he has a licensing deal. So I guess that's what it is. To me, it does seem more like he just played there and likes the operation and thinks it has some name recognition in that area of Texas and probably feels it's uh, going to attract more players than just coming up with a new name on his own. I don't know how much he's paying them to use their name, but it's not free. Now, it's unclear what's going to happen with the existing chips. That is uh, still a big question. He says he has a plan in place to ensure that uh, they have funds available to cover all chips. Any chip that's out, he says, he'll 
be able to cover. But I don't know about the chips from the previous ownership. I don't know if uh, he's going to let people just show up and cash them out and bounce. Or if you have to basically play a certain amount of time to cash in your chips. He hasn't exactly said what they're going to be doing to allow people to cash those chips from 88 Social. Now, he's not obligated to do this. He, he could totally just buy the space and say, we're a completely new room. Sorry about what happened with Johnny Chan's 88 Social, but we're just a, a completely different club that's opened in the same space. We're completely different people. We have nothing to do with them. We're not the same room. Sorry. Now, that may piss, people, piss, that may piss a few people off, but uh, a number of people will understand that as long as they have nothing to do with the previous thieves. But uh, here he's not saying that. He just isn't giving an exact plan about how people can uh, cash in their previous chips. One thing he has to watch out for is that people are just going to use him to cash out what they couldn't cash out before with Johnny Chan's room and then say goodbye. So I would understand if he doesn't want to just be a free cash out service if he wants only to do this for real customers. So it's kind of a sticky situation. That's the hardest part of this whole thing. Maybe this was bought with an agreement that he's going to cash people out, but he's basically getting the room for free. I've seen that type of thing before, where someone gets a business, but gets also their liabilities, and then the previous owner just gets off the hook. But who knows? We will see what the plan ends up being here. But yeah, starting uh, the 27th, uh, you should be able to go check it out if you're in the Houston area. I'm very curious about the chip situation. Maybe we'll find that out soon. Okay, well, since we're talking already about Houston area poker, let's just move slightly down the street to Legends and talk about something that happened there that has nothing to do with Johnny Chan or 88 Social. But it has to do with Sam Farha. Remember Sam Farha? Remember how Sam Farha almost won the 2003 main event, which instead went to Chris Moneymaker and started the poker boom? That was a pretty big moment that uh, Chris Moneymaker was able to beat him. That changed poker forever. Sam Farha, however, was known as a high-stakes pro who seemed to be pretty tough and people assumed was a winner. Seemed to have money. Always had an unlit cigarette in his mouth. But sometimes you lose track of these guys. I mean, this is back in 03. But yeah, Sam Farhar was seen in the high-stakes scene in the mid-2000s, but we're way past that. We're at the end of 2021. Is Sam Farha even still around? Well, the answer is yes. Sam Farha apparently was playing and regularly playing at Legends Poker Room right down the street from 88 Social slash 101 Poker Club in Houston. And he is not playing for very high stakes. They don't have big games there usually. So that would seem to indicate maybe he's not doing all that well anymore. There was a fight that took place there, kind of a fight. And Sam Farha was actually attacked by a dealer there. 
Now, usually, if you hear a player is attacked by a dealer, you immediately have to say, okay, if the player didn't hit the dealer first or do something physical to the dealer, then it's probably very inappropriate on the dealer's part and the dealer should be fired and this just can't happen. But there's some complexity to this whole thing. So there's a dealer there who goes by the name AJ and some also refer to him as MJ and Amjad. I don't know what his real name is, but this is how people have referred to the guy. And apparently he had a long-standing issue with Sam Farha. And I guess Farha actually got him fired from 88 Social. So I guess this does have an 88 Social connection. But uh, he got uh, AJ fired from there in the past because of arguments between the two. However, this didn't just seem to be an isolated thing between two guys who didn't like each other. The rumors were that Sam Farha has just been a huge asshole to dealers for a very long time. That he's just one of these guys who curses the dealers when they give him cards that he perceives as unlucky. And he's just very abusive to dealers, according to some people that have played with him. And that AJ wasn't going to take it and had uh, argued in the past at 88 Social and because I guess Farha had some pull over there, he got him fired Then and then uh, AJ moved down the street to deal with Legends. And then, of course, uh, 88 Social ceased to exist and I don't know when Farha moved his action over to, but uh, I guess this is the only place for Farha to play in the area that are prime social so he was playing at legend and there's his old buddy AJ there again who he has to deal with so a legends dealer not AJ but somebody else uh, um, described what happened as follows he said that uh, AJ got himself fired from 88 social for mouthing off to Sammy even though Sammy was being a douche as always and then at this incident at uh, Legends Poker, right down the street, that Farha was uh, mouthing off to him again. Remember, they had this previous history, and Farha had already gotten him fired once. And then, finally, AJ just flipped out and slapped him. That's AJ slapped Farha, and then shoved him into the wall and screamed at him, I'm from Detroit, bitch! We don't play around! <laughs> now, there's a grainy picture on Poker News of Farha falling into the wall. <laughs> and uh, you can see AJ, but you can't really see much about him. You can only see him from the back. You might think from this story that AJ is black, but it doesn't really look like it. It looks like he's probably Middle Eastern. As is Sammy Farha. But you can't really tell from the back. He doesn't really look like from a black a black guy from the back if this is AJ in the picture. Uh, I would say you would assume he's black because he's talking about it. he's from Detroit. I don't know. I, I just kind of was picturing that from what I'm reading here. But uh, apparently that's probably not it. But anyway, people, for the most part, were more sympathetic towards AJ here. And... Some were 
giving him credit for doing what all the dealers have wanted to do for a long time. Apparently, someone said on uh, in an interview with Poker News, this is a dealer there, he's despised everywhere, referring to Sam Farha. He's not liked by dealers anywhere. A GoFundMe was started to raise money for possible legal issues that AJ might face, because remember, this was assault, so it's possible that Farha may try to press charges. And this is what it says on the GoFundMe. This is organized by a guy named Chad Mew. I don't know who that is. But it says this. Lost his job due to harassment by a so-called poker legend, then was provoked and finally decided to take, to take one for every poker dealer in Houston. The punch heard around the poker world to Sam Farha has now found one of our very own in the legal matter. If you've ever dealt to him, you know the badgering and harassment Sammy has put every dealer through. We all know we've wanted to take matters into our own hands, and finally someone did. Now let's show support and also raise some awareness that it's not all about the poker player, it's about the integrity of the game. No poker player is or should be deemed bigger than the game. And various people donated. Uh, John James McGee gave $130 saying nobody should have to put up with abuse. Michael Raymer, probably no relation to Greg, says there, but for the grace of God, go. I've put up with this fool myself. Nobody deserves a punk like Farha at their table. Nicholas O. gave $20, saying, When I first moved down to Houston, I was shocked to learn what a piece of garbage he was. Glad finally someone gave him what he deserves. Jose Reveron said, He deserved it. I'm a dealer, too, and gave 50 bucks. Overall, they've raised 1030 out of the $20,000 goal, but it has been over four days since they got anything last, so it looks like they'll be stuck around there. I don't know if they're is going to be a legal issue. I'm not even sure if uh, AJ was fired. But the concern seems to be that uh, Sammy may want to press charges. He did call the police. And the there is a picture of the police there in front of Legends Poker talking to Sammy. He filed a, support, a report, but it's not even clear if AJ's been fired. So what do I think here? Well... I have witnessed people who have routinely abused dealers. I've seen it, especially at Commerce. At Commerce, it's very common. So many players who are just real assholes to the dealer when they lose. Which is stupid, because it's not the dealer's fault. The dealer's just dealing out random cards, and some days you're going to get lucky, and some days you're going to have kind of average luck, and some days you're going to be unlucky. And you can't blame the dealer. But there's some superstitious players who do and are really, really abusive. And they and the dealers just take it. It's a little more justified to be rude to the dealer if they are making mistakes, especially from neglect of their job. You know, an occasional mistake will happen to anybody. But if the dealer's just messing up time after time and isn't paying attention, then at least it does call for some comments on the player's part, that they need to do better. And if the dealer's being outright rude to the players, then yes, they deserve rudeness back. But I think I believe these reports that Sammy's just a jerk to everybody there. I haven't seen it myself. I've never played in Houston, and I don't know anyone personally who's dealt to him. But I, I believe what I'm reading. I believe he's probably been a jerk to a lot of different people there, and they kind of feel like they can't say anything. 
and that some sometimes get angry enough to where they want to punch him in the face, but, but they don't. And so when finally someone does and, and slaps him and throws, throws him into the wall, they're all thinking, good, I, I've wanted to do this for a long time. The guy is just so abusive and we don't deserve this. And I'm glad someone finally did it, is what they're saying. Now, at the same time, you can't have it to where it's just acceptable for dealers to physically assault people they don't like because that's a very slippery slope. So let's say in this case, Sammy deserved it after all the unjustified abuse he has allegedly heaped upon dealer after dealer after dealer over a long period of time. Okay, but what about the next guy who is complaining about the way a dealer is doing his job and is justified in doing so. Does he deserve to be thrown into a wall or slapped? So there does need to be a standard that dealers just absolutely can't attack players. Now, on the other side, there does need to be a standard that the floor, or in this case, the managers or supervisors at these uh, Houston card rooms, but wherever it is, Houston or elsewhere, the floor should be much less tolerant of players who behave badly towards dealers. And it should just be known that if you're abusive to dealers, you're going to be booted, even if you're a fish. And I actually support this, even though sometimes the players who are abusive aren't very good, and I do like having their money at the table. But at the same time, I, I, it just makes it unpleasant to be there. I've been at Commerce where there's pretty bad players in the game, but they're also so abusive to the dealers, it's it's stressful to watch. And I really just don't want it there. I just prefer everybody's polite, even if we lose one or two bad players. And I don't even think Sam's a bad player. I mean, I, he's never been known to be a fish. Maybe he uh, played above his bankroll or whatever, had some days where he didn't play well and chunked it off, and now he's stuck playing lower in Houston. But it's not like Sammy Farha's an outright fish. I, I doubt he is. I, you know, He may be one of the winners in the game. I don't know. But whoever it is, this just shouldn't be tolerated, and it shouldn't be up to the dealers to police, and it shouldn't be up to the players to police. It should just be the card room itself doesn't allow this and throws players out who behave that way. And that's the solution. This way the dealers, it's never considered okay for them to attack people. And if they do, then they should be instantly fired. And at the same time, players should not have very much rope as far as any kind of dealer mistreatment. That's the way I feel it should be. I think it's pretty simple. So I actually think this AJ should lose his job. But I also think that Sam Farha should not be allowed to mistreat the dealers like he is. And if he is, then they should kick him out. They should tell him, this is your last chance. Regardless of what this AJ guy did, if you continue abusing dealers here, we're throwing you out. And every room should do that. Because dealers don't deserve that. Okay, I want to talk about the airport. Former Las Vegas McCarran Airport has officially been changed to... Harry Reid International Airport. I don't like it. I don't like it. We talked about this before, but 
it is now official. It became official on December 14th. They did this because the name McCarran turned out to be named after somebody who was racist and anti-Semitic even by the standard of the day. So a long time ago, things that would be considered racist or anti-Semitic today weren't, but there were still some things a long time ago that were. You could still be racist by 1940 standards. And apparently, that's what this guy was. This change was made, it was decided upon last year, but uh, they made it actually officially take place on December 14th. Actually, I'm not sure if it was decided last year or sometime this year, but it was decided previously and then uh, actually changed on the 14th. I understand if they wanted to get the name changed, if they didn't want to honor somebody who had documented overt racism and or anti-Semitism. His name was uh, Pat McCarran. He died in 1954, so we're getting close to 70 years ago since the guy died. And he served in the U.S. Senate in 1933 as a Democrat. Of course, Harry Reid was a very prominent Democrat in more modern times. He retired in 2017. The three The three-letter identifier for the airport, LAS, of course, standing for Las Vegas, is going to stay. But it's now called Harry Reid International Airport instead of uh, McCarran or McCarran Airport. The problem is that Harry Reid really isn't any better. Now, he's not an overt uh, racist or anti-Semite, but he has a different issue, and that is corruption. It is well known that Harry Reid was corrupt. In fact, a lot of Democrats in Nevada don't like him for that reason. Even a lot of liberal Democrats were unhappy with this change because they don't want to see him honored. To a lot of Democrats, he's an embarrassment. He's representative of exactly the type of politician they don't like of either party. When Harry Reid left office, he wasn't very popular. People were sick of him. He was known to be corrupt. He was strongly rumored to have taken bribes. And in fact, the last suspected bribe he took, which we've discussed on this show a number of times, was related to online poker. It was rumored that he took a bribe of... One million dollars. ...in 2010 in order to change his position on legalizing online poker. And that that bribe came from Full Tilt Poker and was done through then payment processor and also telemarketing scammer Jeremy Johnson, who was eventually convicted of telemarketing scamming and was recently released due to COVID or something. He deserved a lot more prison time than he got. He never got busted for the payment processing somehow, even though it was very illegal. Chad Ellie, who we had on our show nine years ago. Maybe we should check in on Chad Ellie, because Chad Ellie still listens to this show. And I'm glad to have him as a listener. 
but he actually spent real time in prison, like like I think five and a half months in prison for processing payments for online poker sites. And he wasn't a scammer like Jeremy Johnson was. So Jeremy Johnson got off scot-free for that. And Chad Ellie took the brunt and went to prison for uh, five and a half months, I believe. We had him on the show uh, after he was released. So Harry Reid, what he did was uh, basically he would find ways to get people to bribe him and it was always passing through third parties, so he wasn't accepting the money directly. And it would be suggested to people who uh, want to see him take a position on something that if they put money in a certain offshore account, that Harry Reid will change his mind. And that's exactly what happened here. That uh, Jeremy Johnson, who of course had a close association with online poker because of his payment processing, he was told by a Reid associate that if Full Tilt wants to see Reed change his stance, and he was a Senate Majority Leader at the time, if he wants to see uh, Reed change his stance on online poker, which he was claiming to be against at the time, that a million dollars needs to be deposited into this weird offshore account. So Jeremy Johnson went back to Full Tilt and said that this is what's being asked for by a Reed associate, and he actually recorded the conversation. Now remember, Reed himself wasn't asking for this, but someone associated with Reed was asking for this. So Johnson actually recorded that conversation secretly, went to Full Tilt, said, we need this if you want him to change his position. And Full Tilt said, okay, let's do it. Probably took it from the player funds, but <laughs> they took a million dollars and they put it in that account uh, or they gave it to Jeremy Johnson to do it. And Jeremy Johnson did. And then, lo and behold, indeed, Harry Reid changed his position. He switched his position all of a sudden from against to for legalization of online poker. Now, this wasn't just uh, a rumor that was put forth by his political enemies. The state of Utah really believed this had occurred, especially with that recording. And they wanted to investigate it. But unfortunately, the corrupt federal government was blocking the way. Eric Holder, who was the attorney general at the time, wanted to protect a fellow Democrat, a fellow prominent Democrat. And not only were they not helping Utah investigate, they were hindering Utah from investigating. And again, this isn't like partisan nonsense. The Salt Lake Tribune was covering this very extensively. And you can Google this to read the articles from back then. It's very damning for both Harry Reid and also the way the federal government handled this. This was very much a cover-up to protect Reid. So that really happened. Harry Reid took a million-dollar bribe to change his position on online poker. And then the federal government was covering up. They were making it very tough for the state of Utah to investigate this because this took place in Utah. That's why they wanted to investigate this. And Utah was also already investigating some other matters involving Jeremy Johnson and his uh, bribing of their own state's attorneys general. In fact, there were two who were uh, eventually arrested for taking bribes from Jeremy Johnson. So the state of Utah really wanted to look into this bribe. It never got done. They tried. They just they hit a roadblock. 
That's too bad. So to be honest, Harry Reid belongs in a prison cell. Not only doesn't he belong in... uh, Not only does his name not belong on an airport, but he actually belongs in prison for this and for many other similar things he did over the years that didn't have to do with online poker. But really, if you don't believe me, you should Google this. And for example, Nolan Dalla, who is a far less a far left liberal. I like the guy. I like Nolan. I personally like him. But he's very, very to the left politically and very outspoken about this on his Facebook. He was very upset about Reed being honored with this airport name. He was posting about it. Reed is very corrupt. He was posting about how that's the wrong person to honor. And this is his own party. And he wasn't saying that Reed wasn't left-wing enough for him. He was saying Reed was corrupt, and he's right. So as I said, there's uh, a number of Democrats who aren't happy about this either. So that was the wrong guy to honor. And someone asked, why not just call it Las Vegas International Airport? <laughs> What's this uh, need to name it after someone? If you can't find someone better than Harry Reid to name it after, why not just call it Las Vegas International Airport? In fact, it's going to confuse people because they're not used to that name and they're going to go, what is this Harry Reid International Airport? I don't know what this is. That's unfortunate, but not surprising. Moving on here. I want to tell you about an incident that uh, a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener and a forum member who goes by Jeff Dime, and he's called in here before. In fact, we had a long segment with him several months ago. Jeff Dime had an incident at Bally's that I'd never heard of before, but I completely believe him. He's, he's very reliable, so I'm not going to say that he's lying. He's not. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, everything he's saying is the truth, but it's just something I hadn't heard of before, but now that I think of it, it kind of makes sense. This is what happened. It's a very weird thing involving Bally's Las Vegas and tenants' rights. And you may say, wait a minute, what does that have to do with tenants' rights? Well, uh, what happened was he was staying at Bally's for a long time. He he went on a long-term trip to Las Vegas. He lives on the East Coast, but uh, he went to Vegas for a while. And he had a long stay at Bally's. So he said that uh, I've stayed at the same hotel in Vegas for over a month many times. He said, I typically have my room cleaned every day. I tip generously. The staff likes me. Patrons come up to me and they ask me things because I look like I've been in a casino before, etc. Which is kind of funny that people come up to him and say, hey, you know, you look like you've been at a casino. Do you know this? I I can kind of understand, though, if you kind of just look like you belong, you know what you're doing, people will ask you things. Like, I've had that before, too. Some people were laughing at that comment, thinking he looks like a degenerate. But it's not that. It's just if you look like that you are not confused, then people who are confused will go to you and ask you for help. Anyway, he went on to say that he is not claiming to be the greatest guy in the world, but that he doesn't cause trouble. He said, even if I'm in a bad state of mind, I try never to make that affect how I treat others. 
it's important to note I'm not just staying in the joint being an asshole to people. So he's basically prefacing here that at Bally's, he wasn't there long-term and being a dickhead and finally suffering some consequence from it, kind of like Sammy Farhad did. He's saying he just basically keeps his head down and treats everybody respectfully and even tips the maid well. So he said that about a week and a half ago, and he wrote this on December 17th. This is a post on Poker Fraud Alert. So he said about a week and a half ago, which would have made it like around December 7th, when I got back to my room, I got the loudest knock on my door I ever had. This wasn't one of those annoying housekeeping knocks. This was like an FBI open the door now or we're breaking it down knock. I wonder if uh, Mickey Mays got that same knock when those fake feds came to his door. (laughs) Anyway, he said, you would think I was being suspected of murder. I asked who it was. It was a man saying extended stay room check. There was a woman with him as well. This reminded me of the wellness checks they instituted after that massacre years back. I think making this seem justifiable and routine was the whole point, although the checks have almost totally been done away with in the COVID era. That's kind of true. They they used to be pretty aggressive in all hotels after the Stephen Paddock shooting. That, that For a few years, they were pretty aggressively coming to your room if you hadn't opened the door for them in two days or if you hadn't uh, let the maid in in that time. But he was saying in the COVID era, they've kind of backed away from these. So then he said, I said, sure, please give me a second to put on my mask. I wanted to say it's the middle of the day. Do you need to knock like that? But I bit my tongue. It was this Paul Blart looking guy. That's referring to the movie Paul Blart Mall Cop. Most security here are wearing yellow shirts. This guy was a stocky white guy and had a uniform almost identical to a patrol officer wearing his full blues all the way to a badge on his chest. But he wasn't a cop, which I did find odd. Yeah, that is true. Usually they do have like a yellow shirt on. It's weird that the guy kind of looked like a -a rent-a-cop. When I opened the door, he did this strange tough guy walk. He never looked at anything. He did this weird strut to the window and back. Looking back now, it's clear this guy just had a hard-on for me. And he doesn't mean sexually. He means like the guy didn't like him. I am fairly certain I was being tracked that day and he waited for me to come back to my room. He grabbed the female employee to accompany him. He slammed the door purposely to startle me and did his little tough guy walk, probably half erect. I don't think they had other stops to make. This was for me. At the time, I was pretty annoyed by the ridiculous knock, but I let it go. I do everything possible not to get agitated in a casino. And then he also mentioned that there had been a shooting uh, at this casino, which there had been. And then uh, two days prior, there was a stabbing at Paris, which I'll explain in a later segment. Not related to Jeff's thing, but he was saying that maybe it had something to do with all this, just why they were generally on edge. He says, well, two days ago, I'm just getting back to my room. So now he's he's going a little forward in time here. At first, he was talking about something around December 7th. Now he's talking about what happened on December 15th. Two days ago, I get back to my room, and it's around 1 p.m. I get a phone call. It was hostile. I was told that the final day of my reservation has been canceled, and I must vacate one day early because it will have been 30 days. He said it was a call from the manager of the Diamond Lounge. She wasn't very nice to me. 
But we have since talked it over, and it was clear she was just the messenger. So the Diamond Lounge is uh, something you can... I think he means the Diamond VIP room. I think the Diamond Lounge has been done away with. But it's, it's like a VIP check-in room for people who are Diamonds and Seven Stars. So this was at least someone from there. And he said she wasn't very friendly, but then he learned later that she was just uh, giving him a message he wasn't going to like. My understanding that this is a law where after 30 days in Nevada, someone can technically try to claim that they have tenants' rights. It's a reason the hotel can force you out after a month if need be, but it's typically not enforced. It is clear as day I wasn't going to do that based upon my history with Caesars, action during the stay, etc. The whole thing is just fucking ridiculous. So basically he's saying he stayed for more than a month in the past. And why would he just pick this time to claim tenants' rights, that he's uh, never tried to pull any shenanigans on them, and this would be a weird thing for him to pull. Now, I had a 7 a.m. flight on the day of departure, meaning I was going to leave the hotel probably around 4.30 a.m. I paid for an extra day, for which I was going to leave in the middle of the night, so I didn't have a huge time to kill before my flight. Of course, I was pissed off as all hell, but I kept my composure the best I could. I made all the reasonable arguments. I'm out of the room every day and have it clean. I have a status at the hotel. I've never had a problem here. I'm clearly not going to invoke tenants' rights, but I was pissed as fuck. This was so petty and unreasonable. I explained that I knew that someone upstairs is just getting off on using their power to ruin my experience. Unfortunately, this person has succeeded. I even moved my flight up a day early. They offered to move me to another Caesars property, which I said 0% chance. If I move for one day, I would pick a Caesars property. <laughs> the manager in the diming lounge did all she could. She gave me a 6 p.m. checkout, but that still left me 13 hours to kill at the airport, of which I currently hold no status as opposed to Caesars, which was... Uh, uh, and so Delta was sympathetic and waived the $200 change fee. Of course, I had to pay for a change in fare, which is about 70 bucks. But all in all, Delta, the airline he's flying, uh, did the right thing. I wasn't going to move all my stuff and check into another hotel for one night and leave at 4 a.m. I had to move the flight. Such petty bullshit. This whole nonsense over not even a day, just a few hours. I'm not saying that this is going to happen to poker players who want to stay at Bally's for the two-month duration of the series. I'm sure you'll just be fine. He's referring to the World Series, uh, which is already over by this point, but he's presumably talking about 2022. This is about Jeff Dime, he writes about himself. I'm just glad now they've taken care of ensuring that I won't invoke my tenants' rights. Bally's in Paris can now focus on lower-priority items like decreasing the shootings and stabbings. Great job, Caesars, as always. So you see, he's not very happy, and I can understand why. So let's kind of break this down here. First of all, is it true that someone can invoke tenants' rights after 30 days in Nevada? Well, I didn't look into it, but it's probably true. And you have to be careful about people invoking tenants' rights, and it's not just about hotel stays. If you let someone come stay at your house as a guest, and I mean just like some buddy who crashes on the couch, or some girl you're dating who just doesn't have an apartment at the moment. All right, well, here's here's somebody who I know has a place to stay. Uh, Trader Ruski, hello. I did do a 32-day uh, 
trip at uh, Bellagio that was supposed to just be for a weekend. Uh, Did not get hassled for uh, tenant rates. Oh, uh, well, Jeff, Jeff Dime's going to be jealous. But I could have. Now that I know, I could have squatted there. I'm kind of bummed. I think <laughs> an opportunity. Yeah, you could have lived at the Bellagio as a tenant. Uh, so, yeah, if anybody's staying at your house or your apartment and they're just crashing on the couch and you think you're doing something nice, depending upon the jurisdiction of where you are, they can invoke tenants' rights after a certain amount of time and you actually have to evict them to get rid of them, which a lot of people don't know. So someone, you know, a buddy may come to you and go, oh man, it's just I got kicked out of my apartment. I can't find another place right now. I can't afford a hotel every night. Can you just let me crash here on the couch? It won't be a bother. Yeah, okay, sure, man. You let the guy crash there he takes longer to get out than he expect but he go okay whatever he'll be gone soon enough and then uh after a month or maybe in, it's, it's sometimes less in, in other places then you say okay look this has been too long you gotta leave and he says no you go what do you mean no it's my place get out and he says nope i'm a tenant now evict me and believe it or not you have to actually evict him which can take months so you got to be careful now if it's someone you know won't pull this on you then don't worry about it but Sometimes people will get desperate when they have no place to go and they'll screw over friends who are trying to do nice things for them. And this is also true of anyone you might be dating that you're letting come live with you, that you think you can just boot them at any time if their name isn't on the uh, rental agreement. Well, watch out. They, If they were living there, especially if you give them a key, then they can make a pretty valid claim for tenants' rights and you have to evict them. So... Got to watch out. Now, that's fine if it's like a week, a few days. You don't have to worry about it then. But anything that's longer than that, you have to look up where you live and see when tenants' rights can be invoked. I didn't bother to look up what the law is in Nevada or Clark County, but it's possible that's true. It's possible that after 30 days of you staying anywhere that you can do this. However, there's a balance. This is not a law that you must get out. It's not a law that you can't stay more than 30 days, and there's not a law that you automatically become a tenant at that point. So if you do not wish to consider yourself a tenant, even if you do have tenant's rights after 30 days, if you don't want to assert those rights, then it doesn't matter. Then you can just leave it like you would a normal hotel stay, as our friend Trader Ruski did here at the Bellagio, and there is no issue. So... You may wonder if I have ever stayed more than 30 days at a hotel anywhere. Do you think I have? Trader Risky, do you think I have? I, I, I think there's a good shot, for sure. Answer is actually no. Close, though. But I, while I've spent a long time at hotels, like during the World Series, I've never spent uh, 30 days straight. I, I've uh, spent over 20, but never 30 or all that close to 30 without checking out. So I never had to even potentially deal with this, and I never even thought about this. But I can see where this can happen. Now, what if you're a huge whale? What if you're just chunking off money day after day after day there? You think they're going to worry about tenants' rights after 30 days? There's no chance, because it's totally worth the risk for them. If you're losing a lot of money every day, you're gambling at high stakes at negative expectation games, and you're not... Mickey Mays who's somehow uh, defying all mathematics and winning millions, supposedly. If you're not him, maybe if you are him, they're happy to let you stay as long as you want. 
But if you're Jeff Dime, who is a sharp sports better and someone who presumably isn't chunking off a lot of the casino, he's probably not a lot of value to them, even though I, I believe he's not a disruption. I believe he wasn't a jerk. I believe he was tipping the maid well. I believe the whole story. Why they decided to pick on him there, I don't know. But there can be a lot of reasons that just some employee there takes a dislike to you. And then they can try to make your life difficult. So it may have been something like that. But I can also just see where they decided that he's not the type of customer that they want to make this exception for. And that some properties are probably more hardline about this than others. So like the Bellagio didn't give Traderuski a hard time for whatever reason. But maybe they just don't do that at Bellagio after 32 days. And in fact, I know of other people like poker players that have stayed at Bellagio for months. So they just must not do it over there. But at Bally's, apparently they do, or at least they do sometimes. So they may just have a policy in place at Bally's that most people they boot after 30 days, but they'll look at it from a case-by-case basis, and if they really want the person to be there, they'll look past it. It could be something like that. So from that standpoint, if that happens to be the policy of Bally's, even though I, I'm i 100% sure that Jeff Dime would never assert tenants' rights, but I do understand if that's the policy and they have a paranoia about this, and they just don't want to ever deal with it for, let's say, the one in 50 people that do it to them, even one in 100 people that do it to them. They just don't want it. It's just a hassle they don't ever want unless it's a total whale and it's worth taking the chance. Then I can understand it. Now, this wasn't handled well, though. You know, why this weird Paul Blart mall cop coming, barging into his room with a pounding knock. Boom, 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 boom. Open up, open up. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why that happened about 10 days beforehand. And then the kind of uh, rude call he got at the last minute. That's another problem is telling him at the last minute. Why Why not say when he makes the reservation, whoa, 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 we see 31 days. Well, no, 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 it's got to be 30. Like, okay, that's, that's fine. Or even like halfway into this day, hey, we just noticed that you're here for 31 days. We only let you stay 30 straight. So what would you like to do about this? That, that's a little annoying, but at least they're giving him a lot of notice. But they're basically hitting him on the last day and saying that we're about to kick you. We're about to kick you one day early. But did he make the whole? Did he make that whole reservation at once? Because like me at the Bellagio, it was like first I was there for the weekend, and I extended it X amount of time. That I, you know, so it was kind of not like that. So I'm wondering if that had something to do with it. And then I'm wondering too, drop if you think like. Before Paul Blart came up there, like, did they check to see what his action was? Do you think, like, the left, right hand socket left? Because it could have just been something where last month somebody did it. It could have been, like, a COVID thing. Who knows? And then they're like, okay, shit, let's crack down on anybody trying to do this. Yeah, I guess it is possible they were recently burned. In fact, that was kind of my idea, not necessarily the month before, but I, I'm guessing that maybe at some point they had a problem with this. And they just got really hard line that we're just not going to ever let this happen again, except in some very rare circumstances where the player we really want to keep around here. 
So I, I think the issue is, regardless if this is him extending it repeatedly or making a reservation for 31 days, whatever it is, if they're going to be hardline about the policy, they need to give you some notice because they can see it. It, it doesn't sound like he had a 30-day reservation and just tacked on the 31st day on the last day. It seems to me like uh, they had some notice about this and chose not to tell him until the last day which was very inconvenient for him. And I don't know if this is related to that weird intrusion 10 days before, but even if it wasn't, and even if there's just some weird security guard who had an issue with him or someone upstairs had an issue with him and sent the security guard to screw with him, or they had some weird reason to suspect he was up to no good and decided to like barge in there, and uh, then they realized that there wasn't a problem. Who, who knows what went on? They may be, it may be unrelated and may be related, it's even possible, and this seems to be kind of Jeff Dimes' theory, I guess it's possible that they are not enforcing this on people, but use this as an excuse because they just didn't like him. But they did seem like okay with moving him to another Caesar's property. So it does kind of seem like this is more about the policy than him, whereas the barging into his room 10 days prior may have been more about him. That's kind of my impression from his story, but it's very hard to tell. I did think of the World Series, and he mentioned the World Series too, but I, I did think about the World Series, that even though I haven't stayed 30 days straight there during the World Series, I know of many who do. And I've never heard of this happening at the Rio, where, you remember, the series is like seven weeks, or this past series is a little bit longer. So that's way over 30 days. And there are some people who just stay the entire time there. And I've never heard of anyone being told that after 30 days they have to get out. Now, maybe they don't enforce this policy at the Rio during the World Series for that reason. Maybe they've just decided that uh, they know why people are there for a long time at the series. And that is very unlikely one of those people is going to assert tenants' rights. And also the Rio is not as a desirable place to be. And maybe also they just look at it and say, well, they have a very good reason to be here for over a month, so we'll take this chance. We think it's unlikely anyone's going to pull this at the Rio, where at any other casino, who knows? So that may be why I haven't heard of it happening. Remember, it's up to them if they want to make a big deal about this or not. So they definitely mishandled some things here, especially the lack of notice. And especially that weird intrusion he had from the mall cop, whether it's related or not. But I never thought about 30 days and tenants' rights before. So my advice to anybody here is if you are going to stay for more than 30 days, whether it's a planned 31-plus day stay or if it's something you just keep extending Traderuski style, that you should check with them and say, is this going to be okay? because I've heard of some properties that make a big deal about more than 30 days without checking out. Are you sure this is going to be okay? Because you don't want to get the bad news at the last minute and then be scrambling, especially if you have a flight or whatever that you have to hassle with changing. I mean, that's awful. At least I don't have to deal with that. Like, I always drive to Vegas, so at least there I would just get in my car and leave. But when you have a flight involved, that's terrible. And I, I can feel his frustration, because I would feel the same way if they just dropped up, dropped this on me on uh, the final day of a 31-day stay. 
Now, I once had a shitty situation with a room check. I may have talked about it before, but I'll talk about it again since it's a little bit relevant. It's not about tenants' rights, but... I had just been up all night playing cash at the Rio. This was either in 2018 or 19, so it was before COVID, but it was after the Stephen Paddock shooting in 2017. So that's when they were doing these room checks after nobody has been in your room for 48 hours. So I had just lost money playing cash. I I wasn't in the best mood. And whenever I lose money playing cash, you know what I want to do? Sleep. That's all I want to do. I just want to go back and sleep. I actually sleep really well after I lose. Because I I kind of get... It it kind of saps my energy. Where when I win, I'm all excited about winning. Even, like, winning is not exciting in the way like it never happens. But, like, I just feel good from the winning. So it, it kind of gives me a little bit of a high to where it's a little harder to fall asleep. But if I lose, it, like, drains energy. Where my body just feels tired and I want to sleep. And then I stay asleep really well. So I, I lost playing cash, and I, I just wanted to go to bed and sleep. It had been a while since I had been to sleep. You know, I stayed up for a long time and played all night. This was an off day. I wasn't going to play any events that day. It was during the World Series, but I, I wasn't playing any events that day. So I had nothing to do that day but sleep. And it was about like 11 a.m. And I stumbled back to my room, just wanted to crash into bed, and then I had a thought that... I hated, and that was, oh no, they haven't done this freaking room check recently, and I could totally picture they're going to bang on my door like an hour after I fall asleep, and I'm going to hate it. So I'm walking down the hallway dreading this, and then I go, wait a minute, what if I can get up to do it right now? Well, I saw a maid there. So I said, hey, you know, I don't want my room cleaned, but can you just do the room check part of it? And we get this out of the way because another way you can get this room check done is there's the maid cleans your room and then she calls in and says, hey, you know, I checked the room and it's fine. So the maid doesn't do room checks like like security does. But if she's in there cleaning anyway, then she can do it and, and call it in. So I said, can you do the room check part of it without actually doing the cleaning? So she barely spoke English. Like I, I explained the whole thing to her. She says, que? I said, oh, crap. But she she called over her supervisor who did speak English and I explained this to her. And the supervisor said, yeah, okay, yeah, we can do this. So she went into my room, looked around, saw everything was cool, saw I wasn't holding, like, a huge cache of weapons there. And uh, she made a call from the room phone and indicated the room check was done. And she said, okay, we're done. I said, okay, is that it? She said, yeah. I said, they're not going to bother me again? She says, no, they won't. I said, so you're sure they're going to get the message that you did this and that the room check is done and they won't bother me for at least two days, correct? She said, yes. Well, something kind of felt wrong. Like, I I saw her, she went through all the right motions and she even went on the walkie-talkie to verify that they uh, got the room check recorded, but something just didn't feel right. I I just got this feeling that there's going to be fail. Maybe just because it's Caesars and I expect it, but I went to sleep feeling like there was going to be fail. Sure enough, two hours later, I'm awakened by a knock on the door. Security! Room check! I go, shit. This is exactly what I'm trying to avoid. So I tried to yell from my bed that it was already done, but they couldn't hear me. So I got up, 
still in my underwear, very, very exhausted. And I told them through the door, I didn't open it, that housekeeping did this, the supervisor did this two hours earlier to check with her. And this is, there's a male and female security guard there wanting to do this room check. And one of them told me, we don't have record of that. So just please let us in. It'll be quick. So I said, no. I said, I don't feel like getting dressed. I was sleeping. I'm very tired. I've only been sleeping for two hours. And I want to get back in bed. I don't want to do it. And so I said, you can call up the housekeeping supervisor and ask. I said, in fact, if if you're worried about anything here, then do it right in front of my door. So you don't have to go anywhere. Just just on your walkie-talkie, call the housekeeping supervisor and ask if she did this. And don't leave if you want until uh, she verifies that it's been done. But I don't want to let you in. This has already been done, and I'm not dressed, and I don't want to do this a second time. So the female security guard said, Sir, can you just open the door and let us do this again? It won't take long. We'll be quick. But I wasn't backing down because it wasn't that a principle. I was tired. I didn't want to turn on the lights. I didn't want to get dressed for this crap. I just wanted to fall back in bed and go to sleep. I guess it was partially the principle, but I really didn't want to have to open this for them. We did it already. So I said, no. I said, this is already done. I was sleeping. Please check on this. And if for whatever reason you can't verify it, Tell the front desk to call me and I'll discuss it with them. So I hear a bunch of talking and radioing outside my door. And finally, after about five minutes, the female half of the pair yells through the door. Okay, they found it. Sorry for the disturbance. And she, they walked away. So I hit the pillow again, fell asleep. And uh, when I woke up later... I was pissed off that this whole thing had occurred. And I called the front desk at the Rio, and I said, what, what the hell happened here? So they looked into it, and then they muttered some excuse to me that it was entered into the wrong system or something stupid like that. So anyway, I said, look, I just lost a lot of money here. I was just trying to go to sleep and relax after this, and, and I put a lot of effort in making sure the room check was done, and then this happened anyway. And so they apologized, said, yeah, this was our fault, and how about a $50 food and beverage credit? So I'm like, okay, fine. So they, I took the $50, and I ate away my troubles at the end. So, yeah, these, these can be unreasonable. But I, I just wasn't going to open the freaking thing. I, was not gonna, I wasn't going to play the game. I, I, I complied with the rules, and I was not going to comply a second time. I thought Jeff Dime had a bigger complaint about that mid-stay room check. I thought that what he should have done is call up the property manager and ask for either the actual manager of the whole property during business hours Monday through Friday or someone working directly under him or her and then like find out the deal. Find out why that aggressive room check was done. This has never happened before. Why was the guy acting like this? Like that, That's something that I told him that uh, he should probably do. I don't know if he's going to, but that's what I would have done. Something to consider if you stay at a hotel for 30 days or more. Okay, now 
Let's segue into something I quickly mentioned, or I should say Jeff Dime quickly mentioned in his write-up. And that was about the stabbing at Paris. Because there was a stabbing at Paris. And the stabbing was done to an employee there. And it's a pretty frustrating story. And it's really going to make you have very little faith in the security at Paris, which, by the way, doesn't get paid very well. I've gotten the inside scoop on security at Paris and other casinos, and you'd be surprised at how little they get paid. And then when you hear that, I'm not going to give out the exact pay structure, but it's not very high. And then you'll understand why security can be incompetent. You You won't feel very safe. So... You just heard a story of an over-aggressive security officer. Well, here's a case where there is far too little aggression and just downright incompetence and laziness. So a guy named Kirkland Oates, who's, I think, in his early 50s, had some kind of issue with employees at Paris, and he came up with a brilliant plan. Very, very brilliant plan. He wanted to sneak into the Paris employee area, but he didn't have the proper credentials to get in there. So what if instead of having to show a badge to the security guard that would give you authorization to be in the employee area, what if you just decided to kind of... uh, Pretend to scan a work badge as you walk through the entrance and hope that the guard will believe you really have scanned that and just let you in. Would you expect that to work? Well, now the answer is yes. (laughs) That's actually what he did. He didn't get a badge from somebody else. He didn't find a way to hack the scanning thing. He didn't even created a distraction to sneak by the guard. Now, this was incredibly simple. All he did was do the motion of scanning a non-existent badge in his hand and then kind of waved at the guard and walked through. And the guard didn't stop him. The guard thought he really scanned it. So they actually had like a scanning thing when you're walking into the Paris security area, it's not even just showing a badge. You actually have to scan it. And the guard is supposed to make sure you scan it and stop you if you don't scan it. Instead, he did the motion of scanning. Of course, nothing beeped or showed that he scanned it because he wasn't really scanning anything. And the guard's like, okay, cool. Come on in. I saw you move your arm. You must have scanned something. The guard just let him go right through. Anyway... Once he was in there, he went to go do what he was actually there to do. And that was, uh, presumably, he had a problem with one employee there. And he had a uh, 12-inch butcher knife that he was going to attack this employee with. So he followed this employee into the bathroom. I guess the employee didn't realize that uh, he was being followed. And then Oates pulled out this 12-inch butcher knife 
and demanded to the victim that he get on his knees. So the victim just kept pleading, put the knife down, put the knife down. And then Oates just said, screw it, and started swinging the knife at the victim's head and neck trying to kill him. So uh, the victim was trying to block his neck so he wouldn't get his throat slashed. And so instead, he got slashed with a knife just above his left eyebrow. However, after that happened, he was able to grab Kirkland Oates, and they uh, had a struggle. And uh, I guess the knife was no longer in his hands at that point. And then they were just fighting and struggling. It was almost like in a TV show with a good guy and the bad guy fighting, and they kind of like roll outside the room. So that's what happened. They eventually... uh, kind of rolled outside the bathroom in their struggle. And then a bunch of employees ran over to help, especially when the victim started yelling, help, help, this guy has hacked me. And then the other employees rushed over and pulled him off and held him until security came, who then called police and then arrested him. The victim required uh, several stitches, both internal and external. And... The doctor at the Sunrise Hospital and Medical Center, where he was taken, said that the laceration was so deep, the victim required two layers of internal sutures. This occurred in the kitchen of Mon Ami Gabi, which is a restaurant in Paris. And uh, employees did notice that Oates was there, but they didn't think it was weird. They thought he was just a new hire who didn't have a, a uniform or anything on. They just thought he was just some new guy there that Uh, they didn't recognize and I guess he got that knife from the kitchen there I guess there was where a chef had its cutlery laid out I guess that's how he got the knife there that was probably his plan so it's not clear why he did this or what issue he had with the victim presumably he was looking for this guy and wasn't just attacking a random person but can you imagine the, the security being so crappy there <laughs> that they actually uh, they have a whole bad scanning system and the security guard doesn't even check that something's been scanned? I've seen before security at various places where they don't really look at the badge you're flashing them. In fact, I remember in the 80s, a place my dad worked at had a security booth before you drive in and you had to show a badge to them. And I remember at night he came up and uh, quickly flashed his badge to get in when he had to go to his office quickly. And I was in the car with him and he flashed it so quickly and they waved him so quickly as he drove by. He said, you know, I could have shown them a picture of a monkey and they would have let me through. But I think that guard who would have let the monkey through was probably better than this one because here this is more than just looking at a badge this is actually making sure a badge gets scanned (laughs) and he didn't even do that (laughs) so in case you think security is going to protect you at these places think again a lot of incompetence we're going to go to our final topic before the coronavirus topic there's doing a rookie event at MGM National Harbor. I've never heard of something like this before, but it's kind of an interesting concept, and it may be something that I could see at the World Series. 
if they want to attract new players. MGM National Harbor, during a tournament series they're having in February, is going to have a $200 buy-in event on February 19th. And by the way, I'm not promoting for them here. I don't give a crap if you play or not. I'm just mentioning it because it's interesting. But they're going to have a rookie event there that this is only open to people with $25,000 or less in their Hendon Mob results. Hendon Mob is a site, uh, thehendonmob.com, which keeps track of most tournament results. I say most because some very small, like, daily tournaments are not on there. But most other tournaments are. So you eventually accumulate caches over time, even if you're a losing player. And even if you're not a regular tournament player, as I'm not, you accumulate caches over time. Like, I'm right now uh, just a tiny bit short of... One million dollars. So they add up. And this event, you have to have 25K or less in Hendon Mob caches. Now, you may wonder, how can they enforce this? Are they going to sit there looking up the Hendon Mob at the cashier as you register for the tournament? No. Anybody can register... But supposedly the way they're going to verify it is before paying anyone out, after they bust, that they will check. And that if you have entered in violation of that rule, you won't get paid. So it's something along those lines. They're going to warn you when you register, and if you lie to them and they catch you lying, you're just not going to get paid when you uh, go to cash out, when you uh, have cashed something. So I believe that's the way it's going to work. And this is the first of its kind. I've never heard of this before, where they're looking up your documented caches on the Hendon Mob and determining whether you're eligible. But that is interesting because this really does count out any kind of experienced live tournament player. Now, you may say, what about some online tournament guys who never play live? You can have these online crushers who just barely have any live results that could show up and put a beat down, but this is only a $200 tournament, so it's not lucrative to do so. If you're an online crusher, you're not going to waste your time going down there for a $200 tournament. So I think they probably will get people who legitimately just are not prolific tournament players. That doesn't mean they'll be bad players. There's people I know who have less than 25 k in Hendon Mob caches who would be good tournament players if they played more but they just don't play much. But it does count out a lot of people who've played regular tournaments, even ones that aren't playing high-stakes tournaments. The 25K adds up pretty quickly. I think that's actually not a bad idea. And if they had something like this at the WSOP, which wouldn't be Hendon Mob, they have their own internal database of WSOP caches. But I think that would be an interesting event where the computer won't even let you register if the computer sees you have more than X amount in WSOP caches. And someone could object and say, well, what about people who have a lot of WBT caches and other big caches and just not WSOP? But okay, that's the way it is. And they, they could even uh, include other forms of the WSOP, WSOP Europe, WSOP Circuit. They could say anything affiliated with the WSOP that if you have more than 25K in caches total, 
then you can't register and they could actually program the computer to just disallow registration where they wouldn't even have to check afterwards. And I wouldn't even object to that type of event because anything that is attractive to a recreational player that can bring them into the game is good for poker. That's why the ladies event is good. That's why the seniors event is good and the super seniors because not everybody wants to sit down with a bunch of crushers who are going to keep beating them every time. Some of them would like to play some events where they have a field that's more along the skill level that they have. And as long as that's not the usual type of event, as long as that's kind of an anomaly where you have one here, one there, I think it's fine. So I'll hear people complaining, oh, it's so unfair. Why is there a ladies' event? Why is there no men's event? Well, pretty much all the events are men's events. Like the main event's like 97% male. So if you want a men's event, play the uh, main event or play the 10K limit hold'em. A lot of times there's zero females in that. So anything that allows a group that doesn't normally play or might be concerned about playing because of the competition, then, yeah, have it. I mean, the fastest growing event at the World Series of Poker is the seniors event. It's for two reasons. One, because people who liked poker in their 30s and 40s during the boom are now aging into it, like myself. And also because people who want to play the World Series but may only have time for a few events or maybe one event uh, like the idea of not playing with these young, hyper-aggressive guys and also may perceive the field is easier. So I think a rookie event could be appealing and what you're hoping is that people will play that and enjoy it and want to play other events and that's what you want. You, you want these, quote, rookies in your event because most of these people are not all that good. So if you're a decent player, you're happy to have them in other events and if this kind of brings them into tournament poker, you want that. And of course, once they do accumulate those caches, they can't keep playing it. I don't know how well this is going to do, and it's a small event there at MGM National Harbor, but I thought it was interesting. Let's talk about Omicron. Still with us here, Trader Risky? I am, but I do have to split soon. Okay, well, and ask for your opinion shortly on this one. So, we heard about Omicron when it showed up in South Africa. Then we started hearing about this in early December, about concern in the U.S., but it hadn't really gotten here yet. And after some more study of it, it was uh, concluded to be very, very contagious, and there was a theory, which I, I believed was probably correct, and turned out it is correct, that it is so much more contagious than Delta that it's going to dominate Delta and take over, much like Delta dominated all other variants and pretty much everything just became Delta. So now Delta's going to disappear and Omicron's going to take over. And that was projected and it was believed it would happen around January 1st. Not abruptly, but that uh, it would start ramping up 
and then by the final week of December, that delta would really uh, start to decline, and then uh, around January 1st, Omicron would be the main variant in the U.S., and this happened much earlier. It turned out that by mid-December, 73% of new cases were Omicron. Not 73% of all cases, but 73% of new cases. So that was very, very quick, much quicker than anyone else expected. And that demonstrated the breakneck speed that Omicron was ripping through the country. And that's basically the case everywhere. It's not just in the U.S. It's just this is a very, very contagious form of COVID more than any other variant that has existed so far. So the more contagious the variant, the more likely it is that it's going to take over and knock out the other dominant variant. This is why some variants never got going like the Lambda variant. Remember, oh, the Lambda is going to break through vaccines. Well, we never really got to see much of that because Lambda was unable to knock out Delta. Delta was too strong for it. Delta was too contagious compared to Lambda. Lambda could not take hold. So other variants just could not beat Delta. It was just too contagious and Delta crushed them. But Omicron, being more contagious than Delta, not only is it taking over, but it's completely taking over and pretty soon Delta is going to be gone or virtually gone. And COVID-19 as we know it will become Omicron, much like the original COVID is gone. The COVID that people had in early 2020 is no longer. And it pretty much became Delta up until Omicron. And now Omicron has uh, not completely taken over, but it's, getting close, and soon enough the entire world will just be all Omicron. However, unlike Delta, which had a lot of similarities to the original COVID, it wasn't identical, but it was close enough. There wasn't a significant change in how it behaved and how it affected people. Omicron is quite different. Pretty much gone are the smell and taste deficiencies. Remember, that was a big one where you'd start feeling sick and then you suddenly can't smell and taste. That was a very specific COVID symptom. Almost sure you have COVID if you get sick and then your smell and taste completely disappear. But that's no longer. There have been few to no reports of loss of smell and taste with verified Omicron cases. Also, Omicron is not getting into people's lungs very often. It seems to stay in the upper respiratory area. The five most common symptoms of Omicron are runny nose, congestion, fatigue, headache, and sore throat. What do those symptoms sound like? Runny nose, congestion, fatigue, headache, and sore throat. A common cold. In fact, those symptoms have so much overlap with a common cold without a test, it's very tough to tell which one you have. So it's lost some of the symptoms that were 
associated with previous versions of COVID. The fever is also much less common now. Uh, the, the breathing problems much less common now. So people with Omicron are reporting that it feels like a bad cold. That's what most people are reporting. I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but I'm saying that uh, that's what most people who are getting it seem to be feeling. And there's been a big decline in the rate of, of hospitalization from Omicron compared to Delta. There's also a very big decline, at least what's been seen so far, of death from Omicron. Now, deaths tend to lag behind by a few weeks because in most cases, COVID doesn't kill instantly. Most cases, COVID takes a few weeks to kill you, sometimes more than a month, depending on what's happening. So it's possible we're going to see more deaths. We're just not quite there yet because it hasn't been that number of weeks since it's really hit hard in the U.S. But it's also possible that once Omicron takes over, we're going to see very few deaths. As of this moment, I believe there's only one verified U.S. death from Omicron. And it was a man who already had a lot of pre-existing conditions and was also unvaccinated. Strangely enough, he actually previously had COVID. So this is a second COVID case for the guy. And he also had a lot of other health problems. And I think he was either 50s or 60s. But he's not typical. It was someone who already had a lot of other issues. Now, I'm sure we're going to get a lot more deaths than just him from Omicron, but it may be tremendously reduced. I mean, it's already assumed it's going to be reduced, but it may be tremendously reduced compared to the other variants of of COVID. And that's because it's not getting into people's lungs. So how is this so different? Well, there's a theory. This hasn't been proven yet, but there is a theory that... Given that a lot of colds are coronaviruses in the winter, the common cold is actually not all the same virus. Not only are there are a lot of variants of the common cold, and not only is it constantly evolving, but there are some rhinovirus common colds, there's some coronavirus common colds, there's even another type of virus that uh, I'm forgetting that's also a common cold. But uh, the common cold is kind of more of a collection of symptoms that's associated with different viruses, which uh, tend to be along the same lines. And a lot of people don't know that. But it's just about certain that all of you have had a coronavirus before COVID, because winter colds tend to be coronaviruses. Not always, but that's when it's most common you're going to have a cold coronavirus, whereas in other seasons, it's much more likely to be a rhinovirus. So the theory is that someone had a common cold and Delta at the same time. And this can happen. It's not all that common, but it can happen. Just as you can have two colds at the same time, which is rare, but can happen. And that when this occurs, sometimes new viruses can be created. That's how new variants of common colds get created is when someone has two colds at the same time and then a new virus forms, kind of like a hybrid of the two colds, and then spreads. That's why you don't develop natural immunity to the common cold because it keeps changing. 
So there's a theory that a coronavirus common cold and Delta, which is, of course, coronavirus, merged together inside of someone's body and that it created a very, very contagious variant that took on elements of both. But at the same time, because the common cold is far more mild than Delta COVID, that it also took on a lot of versions of uh, a common cold and in fact might be a lot closer to a common cold than the COVID we know of. And there are some now theorizing that this might be a signal that the end is coming. Not the end of days for us, but the end of COVID days. That COVID might now be evolving into a common cold. And that the next variant may actually be a common cold. Now, a lot of this is theory and hasn't been proven. It, is, it has been pretty well observed that Omicron is much less deadly and that it carries uh, less severe symptoms for most people, including the unvaccinated, though the vaccinated are doing better than the unvaccinated, and that these symptoms much more resemble a cold than the previous versions of COVID, which had some overlap in symptoms, but previous versions of COVID didn't have runny nose that often. They didn't have congestion that often. So if you saw the typical progression of a sore throat, which then disappears fairly quickly and becomes nasal congestion, then it was pretty safe to conclude it was a cold, but not anymore. And it was also safe to assume before that if you lost your smell and taste, even though that doesn't always have to happen with if you have COVID, but if you lost your smell and taste, you could pretty much conclude you had COVID. Well, now no one's losing their smell and taste if they're getting Omicron, so that's not going to be something that helps you determine whether you have it. I mean, it's good that symptom's gone because it's very frustrating, but and, and a few really unlucky people haven't gotten it back, but it looks like that symptom is just not part of it anymore. So it, it really does look like that Omicron has become similar to the common cold. Worse, but it seems closer than Delta. And that seems to be going in the right direction. I have a theory. This has not been published anywhere. This is just my own theory. I saw something a little bit similar to it in the Washington Post after I came up with a theory, so I didn't copy it from them, but it didn't specifically say what I was saying. But you know how they've been saying that COVID is way more contagious than the common cold, and they've been saying this the whole way? I'm not just talking about Omicron. I'm saying like even the original COVID. Oh, it's so much more contagious than a cold. And yet I've gotten a few colds since COVID started, and I haven't gotten COVID. So how has that happened? And I know a, a number of other people who've had colds and no COVID. So how come if, if COVID's so much more contagious, why are people catching colds and not COVID? And the answer, and I've talked about this before, is that even though colds are less contagious, there's a lot more ways to get them that are hard to avoid. With COVID, it was mainly transmitting through the air. 
So if you didn't spend time indoors, especially more than 15 minutes indoors, where COVID was, and of course the more people in the room, the higher chance COVID is there, then you're probably not going to get COVID. So you didn't have to worry about touching surfaces with COVID. You didn't have to worry about eating food or drink that may be contaminated with COVID. People weren't getting COVID that way. Whereas with a common cold, you can get it that way. If, if someone coughs on your drink or your food and they have the common cold, you eat it, you can get the common cold. If you touch a surface that someone with a common cold had touched and then you touch your eyes or your nose, your mouth, which can happen without you even thinking, you can get the common cold. But COVID, you can't get that way. So there's so many different things you're doing, even if you're mostly very careful, that can get you the common cold, even if it's not actually as contagious as something like COVID. So COVID is just a lot easier to avoid. But what if, and I thought about this before Omicron, I thought, what if we had a version of COVID that could transmit both ways, both be very contagious in the air, because you can catch colds through the air too, but it's uh, much less likely than catching uh, COVID through the air. But what if you combine the ability to catch COVID through the air, which is increasingly high with each variant, and the many ways that colds can transmit? What if you get the worst of both as far as transmission? Well, then we would have a virus that just transmits incredibly quickly and would infect the population very fast. My theory is that is what has happened here. So maybe you can get Omicron through surfaces. And again, there's no research supporting this yet, but this could explain why it's transmitting so quickly. Maybe you can get it through any kind of contaminated uh, food or drink. Maybe you can get it by you know, touching something that someone else touched who had Omicron. And maybe you can get it through respiratory transmission a lot more than you could with Delta. So combine all of that and you can see how difficult it might be to avoid. And something I haven't mentioned yet, but is very important, Omicron is busting through vaccines. It doesn't make vaccines useless, but if you last got vaccinated more than six months ago, your vaccine is not very helpful in stopping Omicron. So if you got your second shot in April or May, good luck, because that's not going to help you very much. It may help you with severe disease, but as far as symptomatic disease, probably not going to be very, very much help. So there's, there's people I know who've had two shots and they got their second shot in the spring and they say, oh, I'm not worried about Omicron. I'm vaxxed. They go, nope, not this one. There were already breakthrough cases for people who didn't get the booster, but now with Omicron, it's just ripping right through people who got their shot you know, five plus months ago. But even people who are boosted are getting Omicron. Not bad versions of it, but they're getting it. Uh, politicians Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, both of whom were triple vaxxed, both got Omicron. Regardless of what you think of them and their politics, that doesn't really matter here. The bottom line is they had three shots and uh, they got Omicron anyway. So it is getting through boosters, though not as often as it is the people who had the two shots, unless their two shots were recent. So it is busting through vaccines too, which also makes it more contagious. It's also believed that people 
who are getting these breakthrough cases are also transmitting it. So the transmission is happening big time. Much bigger than any other variant, but much less severe, it seems. Now, there's still a concern that even if it is much less severe, that if the number of people getting it at the same time is so much greater than it ever was before, that it still could overwhelm hospitals. For example, even if it is, say, I'm just making up a number here, six times less likely to hospitalize you compared to Delta. If we see 20 times the cases, then that still would overwhelm the hospitals. And that is a legitimate concern. However, in South Africa, which has a pretty low vaccination rate, much lower than the U.S., and they had Omicron before us, they are not getting overwhelmed in their hospitals. They're saying they're seeing very little hospitalization with Omicron. In fact, there are some now saying that it seems like Omicron is less dangerous than the seasonal flu. I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm starting to hear that. Now, does this mean you should just not care and get Omicron and say, okay, well, who cares? It's a cold? No, because it's still being looked at. These are preliminary findings, and I'm also seeing some contradictory findings that say the opposite of that, but I'm not seeing any findings that show it's more serious than Delta or that it's the same. It seems to be pretty universally agreed that it's less severe. It's just a question of how much less severe. There's also a question of how quickly people are going to be getting it. And there's a very wide range of predictions for this winter. There are some very rosy predictions that this is just going to basically be a cold for most people. And that maybe this will even be the one-two punch of fortunate outcomes where it's just a cold for most people, plus so many people will get it at the same time that it's going to burn itself out and have nowhere to go. And that it's either just going to die or just become a common cold next. And then there's the other side of the predictions that there's going to be so many cases at once that even with a lesser hospitalization rate, that hospitals won't be able to keep up because of just the sheer number of people, and there's going to be some people dying for that reason. So those are the two kind of polar opposite predictions. I actually don't believe the second one's going to happen. I think we're going to be very pleasantly surprised with the low hospitalization rate. I think it's going to be lower than what's being presently assumed. We're already seeing kind of evidence of that in South Africa. And there are kind of only three ways for this to go from this point. Way number one is, I think, the least likely of the three, but it's possible, and that is that we could revert back to a worse version, that just because Omicron evolved to be kind of cold-like doesn't mean that the next variant that is contagious will be a cold or less than the Omicron is as far as severity, it could mutate back to something that's tougher on us and more contagious. That's a possibility. But there's two other possibilities which I think are more likely. One of them is just that it 
runs into basic herd immunity because of the quick transmission. It's just going to run out of places to go. And the third possibility is that it just becomes a cold, that the next evolution is it actually is a cold. And that'll be the end of it. The end meaning that we're not concerned about colds. So if this becomes equivalent to a cold, then that's really the end of the COVID concern. Because if the next evolution is a cold, then it's unlikely it's going to go from there back to something very dangerous. In fact, most viruses do evolve in this way, where they tend to eventually become less deadly. And that's for their own survival. Because if the people carrying the viruses are either dying or becoming really sick to where they can't walk around and transmit, then the virus doesn't transmit as well. The ideal situation for a virus is actually asymptomatic, where people are asymptomatic yet transmitting. Now, from what I've seen, that's not all that common with viruses. Usually for people to transmit, they're usually symptomatic or at least pre-symptomatic. That's why you don't see that very often. The swine flu is believed to have been something that was asymptomatically transmitted a lot. There's a belief that as many as uh, 60 million people in the U.S. had the swine flu in the late 2000s, and most don't realize it because they're asymptomatic. But even viruses like a common cold, where people are aware they have it, but they don't stay home because it's not severe enough, uh, that's good enough for the virus to keep transmitting. What the virus doesn't want is for the host to die or for the host to be lying in bed and not seeing anybody. So the virus tends to naturally evolve to where a lot of people can have it and transmit it and keep transmitting it without dying or or, uh, being unable to be mobile with it. So the next stop may really just be a cold. And it's possible by the end of 2022, we're just not going to have a serious COVID concern anymore. I guess there's a fourth possibility, too, that it kind of becomes another flu type. Not it becomes a flu, but it comes similar to the flu, to where it's something that kills people every year. But mainly old people. And for most people, it's just an inconvenience that makes them sick for several days. And that's it. So it may become that, too, where it evolves into something different every year and there's a vaccine for it. But it's not a tremendous concern, much like the flu hasn't been a tremendous concern, despite the fact that it was killing tens of thousands each year. And that's something you remember, too. The flu the flu wasn't a joke. You know, the flu was killing tens of thousands each year. It, it just uh, was killing people who are mostly old or already in bad shape anyway. And that's not to say these people are, are worthless. It's just to say that there's so many different ways these people will otherwise die. And a lot of these people didn't have that much long, that, that long of a time left on Earth anyway. COVID was really cutting down people who otherwise would have had a long time to live. Even a lot of the old people it was killing didn't have other problems. A lot of them did, but a lot of them didn't. And then you had middle-aged people dying who definitely had you know, decades left to live. So th- this is very good news. Uh, Trader Ruski, what is your prediction of what's going to happen with COVID in 2022? 
in 2022. You know, I don't, I don't see it ending anytime soon. I see something on the back of Omicron. Hopefully, it'll get weaker and weaker. But if it's like a cold, it's not going to really matter, though. That's the point. If it becomes a cold, then we're pretty much done. Yeah, there's just still a lot of unknowns. So I leave it to the scientists to, uh, I just listen to that, put my mask on. Okay, I mean, there is a lot of unknown. That's why I'm you know, I'm talking about a lot of different possibilities, and that's why I don't want to make any predictions that I know such and such is going to happen because it's it's very possible that even something I'm not talking about here will occur. I mean, who, who would have guessed in early November that we'd be talking about COVID being a cold at this point or being close to a cold? But that's right now we have something that's kind of getting close to a cold and this really does seem to have combined with a cold in some way. In fact, the early studies of Omicron show that its evolution is very unusual. There's a lot of changes it made that would make it unlikely to have happened on its own, and that's why there's really this theory out there that this really was a a combination with a cold coronavirus. And I didn't hear much about this being the way the pandemic could end until this happened. It's funny because a common cold is a coronavirus, but while there was a lot of talk of maybe it's going to weaken one day, it was kind of thought like, oh, this is going to happen because it just naturally weakens like I was just describing viruses do. Not that it's going to somehow combine with a cold and become super transmissible and knock out all the other COVID that way and then continue the evolution and just end up a cold. But now that's that's very much on the table as the ultimate result with this whole thing. Now, if that does happen, let's say we're in December 2022 and the next variant following Omicron is here and it pretty much is just a cold. What then? And what I mean by what then is how is it going to be handled? Are they going to unroll a lot of the changes that have occurred because of COVID? Will that be the end of mask requirements everywhere? Will, be, will that be the end of uh, travel restrictions everywhere? Will that be the end of lockdown or capacity restrictions? Will it be the end of a lot of COVID-related jobs that have popped up that actually have to do with abating COVID. Like in the movie industry, if you take a look now in the closing credits, there's all these COVID-related jobs now, and those are union jobs. Those are going to be tough to get rid of. But it's not just the movie industry. There's a lot of changes that have occurred at the government level, at the level of industry where people are working from home who previously were not going to be allowed to work at home? Will they be forced to go back into a regular office? There's a lot of societal changes that have taken place as a result of COVID that if COVID abruptly stops being a major concern from a epidemiological standpoint, will there be an adjustment in society to treat it how it really is at that point? And this is too early to say right now. I'm not saying that right now we have to jump to that. This has to be studied more. 
But if it does become that, are we going to be able to unring the COVID bell and go back to what we were prior to COVID? It may be hard for some people to do. And let's say there's another variant of COVID past Omicron, which I'm sure there will be. And let's say it is a cold and nothing worse than a cold. Just because it's still COVID, technically, will people still be very panicky about getting it, whereas they're not panicky about getting a cold? Will people be able to, will they be able to psychologically accept that COVID is a cold and nothing to worry about anymore? Or has there been so much hammered into our heads about fearing COVID because the COVID up until now was a lot to fear and was a serious matter that killed a lot of people? And we're getting close to a million people in the U.S. that died of COVID. It's like 800,000 something. So obviously this was a very big deal. But can we get this out of our head if it stops being a big deal to see it as it is at that point and not how it was? And that can be difficult in a lot of areas for human beings to do. Even in poker. Uh, I'm still having a hard time picturing commerce as not the center of L.A. limit hold'em action. If I think about wanting to go play live in L.A., my first thought is going to commerce. Then I have to go, whoa, no, go to the bike. It's kind of hard to get out of my head because I've had such a long association with medium to high stakes limit hold'em in L.A. being mostly at Commerce. So it starts to be difficult to change that in your mind. Uh, it, it can even be like uh, someone you went to high school with that was very attractive of the opposite sex. And then maybe 30 years later, they're at best average looking for their age. But you see them and somehow you can still see them from back then. And it makes them more attractive to you because they once were. So it can sometimes be hard to change your way of thinking when you're used to something being one way. I admit that I don't know what to think of Omicron and, and, and the prospect of me getting it or Benjamin getting it. And if it really is cold-like, then what am I afraid of? I actually canceled my New Year's plans because they were going to involve being with large crowds and stuff. Like I was going to do it before Omicron because I was boosted and I felt like I was pretty well protected. And then I'm hearing it breaking through boosters and I'm going, oh no, I don't want to get this, especially far from home. So I canceled my plans. But part of me feels stupid because I may have canceled my plans to avoid a COVID variant which is much less serious when the previous one was more serious just because I believed I was more likely to catch the one that's less serious. But if it really is like a cold, well, why am I canceling plans to avoid a possible cold, even one that's very contagious? So it feels weird, and I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I think I'll know more as some time passes, but not by New Year's, which is a few days away. Overall, I think this is a very good development. And I think the media is not being completely upfront about this because 
the media wants to see people taking it seriously and preventing the worst case from happening. So they, they don't want everybody just to go, yay, okay, well, COVID's not that much of a problem anymore. So it's pretty much just a cold now, F it. And then having a bunch of people get it at the same time, and then a certain percentage, even if a lower one than before, ends up in the hospital, and the hospitals can't handle it, and bang, we've got a huge problem. So in order to avoid this, I think we might be hearing that it is more severe than it actually is. Like they're kind of downplaying the difference in severity. And we're being told to make sure we're getting our boosters, which for me doesn't matter because I got it already. But people who didn't get already are really really being told to get boosted now because otherwise it's going to break through. And that, that's probably true. And then it may break through anyway, but with less of a chance to do so. But if they don't say that Omicron is something to worry about, if they go, oh, yeah, it's close to a cold now, then people are going to go, you know what, I'm not going to get the stupid booster. Why, why should I make myself sick with this booster or take any other chance of problems it could bring on if, if this is just going to be like a cold? So they don't want people to think that. They want people to think this is a serious matter and we all need to really be worried about it because th- this will then encourage people to behave in what they perceive to be a more responsible fashion. And I hate things like that because I just want the truth. If the truth is good news, give it to me. If the truth is bad news, give it to me. I just want the truth. I don't want truth that's meant to influence me uh, to do something they feel is more responsible. And I, I have done what's responsible. I, I've gotten three shots. And I, I actually canceled New Year's plans uh, with, with big crowds of people. So I, I'm, I'm doing what they want, not because I'm a sheep, but because I, I feel that uh, probably the prudent thing to do at this point. But I also would like to know what I'm really dealing with here. And you, you tend to not get all that information when it's going to interfere with what they'd like you to do. And I don't mean like in some nasty conspiracy way. I could even just mean to uh, of what they think is best for public health, that they, they tell what's known as a no- noble lie or a noble half lie. But if you read between the lines, it really looks like this is much less severe. There's also the question of if you are not vaccinated yet or not boosted yet, are you going to get it done in time, especially if you're not vaccinated at all? Because remember, the vaccination process, you get one shot, you wait three weeks, you get another shot, you wait two weeks, then you're fully vaccinated. Now, yes, your immunity is increasing over time, but I have to imagine if this is breaking through people who who had two shots back in the spring, I have to imagine if you just have one shot and haven't gotten to the second one yet because you're waiting the time, you're probably not that well protected. In fact, maybe even two shots you're not that well protected because the third shot is bringing out a lot more antibodies than the second one was. So it's possible you really do need three shots. So the question is, if you're going to run and get vaccinated in order to prevent Omicron from hitting you, will it even be in time? Or is this going to rip through the country so fast, it's going to get you anyway? That's a possibility that they're not talking about. There are some people who believe, and when I say some people, I don't mean crackpots. I mean, there are some experts that have been discussing this that have said that it's possible that by the beginning of January, half the country will have been infected with Omicron. I don't know if that's really going to happen, but 
I also didn't think it was going to be 73% of the new cases by mid-December. So this thing may be really fast with how it gets through the country. And there has not been that big of a boosting rate in the U.S. I think something like 20% of people have had the booster. There just wasn't much interest in it. So that really could increase how much this thing spreads. But we'll have to see where this goes. This is a very interesting development. And it's definitely a good one. Even if it's very, very contagious, this is definitely a good development if it's this much less severe. And if it's looking like a common cold. Because that's not a coincidence. It really does appear to have actual elements of the common cold, not just similar symptoms, but it actually has uh, some real similarity in its structure. And maybe that's the final stop for it, a common cold. A good example of what may have happened here, or I guess a good analogy, not a good example. Think of uh, a guy like Shaquille O'Neal, this big, muscular, strong guy, super tall, and think of him having a kid with a woman who's five feet tall with a small build, 95 pounds. What would the kid be like? Let's say it's a boy. What would he be like? Is he likely to look like Shaq body-wise? Probably not. He's probably not going to be seven feet tall and really big and strong. Uh, it could be a lot of things, but it could be in that entire range, but most likely he'd kind of be on the taller side and probably more around an average build. Like you'd expect him maybe to be like six foot three with an average build, which is a far cry from what Shaq is. So while that guy would still be a bigger than average guy, he wouldn't be unusual like Shaquille O'Neal is. So if you think of that, that's kind of what happened with the common cold and Delta. So whoever that person was, their body may have uh, inadvertently saved a lot of lives, strangely enough. It's weird how these things can happen. I don't know of any other virus that was a big problem for humanity that ended in this specific way. There's been a lot of viruses that have just died out from herd immunity or from just getting less severe over time. The Spanish flu, which is compared to COVID a lot from 100 years ago, uh, that died from a combination of herd immunity and becoming less severe. But I've never heard of one that it combines with an existing much less severe virus and then the next variant is actually a hybrid that is just greatly reduced in power for that reason. And I don't think anybody was expecting that. So this should be an interesting year as far as where COVID goes. This one's going to be a lot tougher to predict than 2021. 2021, the main question was how fast are we going to get the vaccine into people? How many will take it? And how well will it work? And will we get vaxxed enough to bring on herd immunity and end COVID? The good news was the vaccine worked well. The bad news was that no matter how high the 
population, a percentage of the population was that was getting vaccinated. It just was never enough. COVID is really doing a good job avoiding herd immunity. And it also wasn't helping that there were breakthrough cases, which weren't expected, that were happening, usually starting around the four-month point after the second shot, and especially after the five-month point. So that wasn't expected either. So that was what people were wondering coming into 21. And we had some good and bad news in 21 regarding COVID. It's still very persistent, and we're not going to vax our way out of this. But on the other hand, the vaccine worked extremely well. And those who took it very much avoided severe disease. But in 22, it's a lot more difficult to predict what's going to happen. But at the moment, it's looking pretty good. And it's possible that when the COVID story is written in the future, that Omicron will be seen as the turning point in a good way. Let's hope. So that's all I got. Trey Ruski, what's going on with you? Are you going to be doing anything for New Year's? Um, undecided. I'm going to go down to L.A. on the 30th, my dad's birthday. But probably just lay low for New Year's. Yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, you know what? You know, I'm going to be honest here. Part of the reason I'm trying to avoid getting Omicron is because I've put two years into avoiding this thing. So I kind of, I, I don't want to blow it at this point and then finally get COVID this way. I mean, yeah, this is a better version to get than the previous ones, it looks like. But I, I just don't want to get it. I, I kind of would like to be the guy that put the effort in and then watch COVID either completely die or become in common cold. And then I can go, ah, look, you know, I, it didn't get me. Like that's, that's the story I would like to eventually tell, not uh, avoid, avoid, avoid. Bah, I got o- Omicron. This sucks. So, you know, if it happens, it happens and it might, but I don't want to just like walk into it. I, I kind of don't want to just go into somewhere where it's like heavily transmitting in the U S and I'm just walking right into a super crowded place that this is going to happen to me. And since the booster is, it, it's it's better than not having the booster, but it's it's no longer where it's unusual to get a breakthrough. I will let this New Year's go as I let last year's New Year's go. And it's not like I've done nothing this year. Like It's not like the previous year where it was kind of depressing to do nothing on New Year's because I, I hadn't done anything all year. Here I, I, I took a two-week vacation in the summer and uh, I just went to Vegas, as I told you guys. And, you know, I've done some other things. I didn't travel as much as a typical year. But I still did things, and I also haven't stayed home. You know, I went to Dodgers games. I, I, I've done things. So it doesn't feel as bad to miss New Year's. I was looking forward to it, though. It was, it was sad to actually cancel the plans, to actually go through and say, yeah, I'm not going to do it. That it was kind of a hard thing to do. Given that I've put so much time into this, and I mean, look, I missed most of the World Series. I missed everything but the main event because I didn't want to get COVID and I wanted to make sure I had the booster and enough time for the booster to take effect before I sat down at a World Series event. So, 
And I think that was a wise decision based upon what happened there. I don't want to have done all this and then get COVID anyway. At least not make it too easy to get COVID. So that's, that's a lot of the reason I'm doing this. I'm not really worried that Omicron's going to kill me or hospitalize me or even at this point uh, give me permanent lung damage because it just seems like this isn't happening much with it. And I have uh, one other thing for you guys to think about before I end the show here regarding Omicron. Let's go back in time to the beginning of 2020 and let's change what COVID was. Instead of COVID being the original COVID that we knew that was killing people and hospitalizing people at a rapidly increasing rate, let's change it to being Omicron. Let's say the Omicron that we have now was original COVID. Let's say it started out this way. Would we have had masking and lockdowns and travel restrictions and all of this other stuff that's required today? Would we have had school shutdowns? Would we have any of this? Or or would this have just been another virus like the flu? Would it have been looked at like that? Like kind of just another flu to worry about, even if it's not actually the flu? I kind of think the latter. Remember, we didn't take COVID seriously for the first six weeks or so. At first, it was like, okay, what do we do about this? But people were still going out and there weren't many restrictions. It was mid-March when everything started locking down and everything started changing. Remember Dr. Fauci even had that infamous statement in February saying that uh, wearing a mask isn't useful. So this wasn't taken very seriously until people started rapidly dying and getting hospitalized in March. And then by mid-March, then a lot of things abruptly changed. This is in 2020. But what if we had Omicron instead of all that? What if Omicron was the original COVID and instead of people ending up in the hospital at the rate they were and instead of people dying at the rate they were, if it was mostly people getting cold-like symptoms, even if it was like a bad cold, with a, a very small percentage of them ending up in the hospital or dying, you know, kind of like the flu. And if we weren't getting cases of long COVID, like lung damage, and we weren't getting the loss of taste and smell, would there have been this panic? Or would this have been kind of like the swine flu, where most people just shrug their shoulders and go, okay, whatever? I think it would have been the latter. So what this might mean is that we could be treating 2022 COVID like we treated 2020 COVID, even though it's not the same thing. And we have to make sure not to do that. We have to make sure to live in the present, not the past. We have to make sure to look at contemporary danger, not what the danger once was. And that's what I'm going to be looking at. And if at any point I think, you know what, this really is just a cold, that's when my guard goes down. And I'm getting close. I I sound like I'm being contradictory here because on one hand, I'm saying I'm canceling my New Year's plans. And on the other hand, I'm saying soon I might let my guard down if I believe this is a cold. But I'm already thinking we might be very close to a cold. If that's what this is, 
I'm not worried. I get colds every year multiple times. So one more, I don't want it, but it's not the end of the world. Especially since I have the three vaccines and the chance of me getting severe disease from it is pretty low. Very, very low, I think. So that is my belief about Omicron at the moment. Maybe this will change as we learn more. But I think if it does change, it's going to be changing in the direction of, oh yeah, yeah, this is more cold-like than we thought it was. Okay, well, Trader Ruski, thank you for joining us. Uh, hope you guys were interested in the Mickey topic because that took up a large portion of the show. I knew that was going to happen when I got to it, especially because there were all these new developments and that Spencer guy getting involved. With, yeah, it's just a lot to talk about there, but there will be more. Well, it looks like that wraps up Poker Fraud Alert Radio for the year 2021. The next episode will probably be on January 1st or 2nd of 2022. That's what I'm looking at right now. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert if would like to know exactly when it is. Otherwise, we'll just kind of pop up. I'd like to thank Trader Ruski for coming on. I'd like to thank Belly Buster for the free roll donation. And we will continue to follow the various ongoing stories. Will people get paid for their uncashed in chips from 88 Social? Will you find out more about Mickey Mays, Mickey Maz, whatever way you pronounce his name? I haven't given out his full name, but you can find it pretty easily if you just Google. And what's going to happen with Omicron? They're suggesting you shouldn't get together with relatives if those are your plans this holiday season because of Omicron. That's that's BS. You know, go see your relatives. Don't don't be that cautious. Just if you want to avoid it, just stay away from crowds. Maybe don't go out to eat and stay home. Maybe don't go out to a New Year's party. Or do, you know, maybe you'll just get a cold. Who knows where this is going? We'll just have to wait and see. Well, thank you for listening, and thank you for sticking around with Poker Fraud Alert Radio this year. And we'll be back in 22. Have our 10-year celebration soon. Bigger free roll next week. R.I.P. Mark Fusil. Shalom. <laughs>